the Austrian School of Economics, a history of its ideas, ambassadors, and institutions, by Eugen Maria Schulach and Herbert Unterköffler, and translated by Arlene Ostzinner, narrated by Paul Strickreda. Copyright 2011 by the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and published under the Creative Attribution License 3.0. This audiobook was produced by the Ludwig von Mises Institute. For more information, or to discover more about the Ludwig von Mises Institute and Austrian economics, visit Mises.org. Preface After several years of preparatory work and many interruptions, it seems an odd coincidence that the authors completed their manuscript at the very time a global crisis in the financial sector suddenly became evident to all. Economic developments since that time appear only to confirm many fundamental insights of the Austrian school of economics, especially those in monetary and business cycle theory. Long-standing low-interest rate policies in the United States and a steady increase in the money supply and money equivalents in industrial nations seem to have led to a staggering volume of misallocations and countless unsustainable business models. The attempt of industrial nations to quell the pent-up need for correction through government intervention will in time lead to a gain that is deceptive at best, but hardly a real solution. These astonishingly purposeful government interventions are certainly no accident. In recent decades, the so-called welfare states have entered into a very close symbiosis with the financial sector. In no other sector of the economy, save perhaps the armaments industry in certain countries, are institutions, people, and the economy so closely interwoven with the state as is the case with the finance industry. It has often been possible in recent years to get the impression that welfare states might be competing in the most imaginative and opportunistic ways with the banking industry in their efforts to circumvent the basic laws that rule economics, money, and the market. While welfare states, with their increasing national budget deficits, have for many years nourished the illusion of growing prosperity. Banks and financial institutes have, on the one hand, provided finances for these deficits, but on the other hand, and to the wider public, they have acted as impresarios of an everything-is-affordable philosophy. Hence, the crisis, which has not yet come near reaching its full magnitude, will affect both the global financial sector and individual countries much more deeply than all crises seem thus far. Based on the assumption that the individual was the decisive economic agent, and thus centering its research on individual preferences and on the intersubjective balancing of these preferences in the context of market, the Austrian school has consistently pointed to the fact that institutions such as money, states and markets had emerged without any planning, without any central purpose and without force. They had emerged on the basis of human interaction alone and in a manner that was therefore natural, befitting both humans and human logic. This basic insight counters all political and economic ideologies that view such institutions as working arenas for the establishment or development of authoritarian activity aimed at influencing or even controlling the direction of individual preferences or their intersubjective balance. This meant that during the interwar period in Austria, the Austrian school was attacked, sometimes fiercely by political parties of both the left and the right. The Austrian school not only denied the legitimacy, but also the efficacy of many economic policies. Furthermore, the school had always identified itself with a universal science, 
in which there was no room for national, religious, or class-oriented constrictions. In ways, it even represented a kind of alternate world to many of the country's idiosyncrasies. It focused exclusively on the individual, and asserted that individual action on the basis of subjective preferences was the starting point for research. It was based on a realistic image of humanity that was not suited for inconceivable flights of idealistic fantasy, and therefore not amenable to cheap political exploitation. It was free of maniloquent utopias, upheld the principles of self-determination and non-violence, and was united in its fundamental criticism of any monopolistic and forceful intervention of the state. In addition, it emanated a highly scholarly ethos, which made possible the emergence of an uncommonly cosmopolitan and tolerant discourse. It follows that among the many intellectual legacies of the Austrian monarchy, the Austrian school of economics was one of the very few traditions that did not become entangled in vice and guilt in the midst of the political upheavals of the 20th century. The same ideologies of both left and right, which in the 20th century so often caused bloodshed and large-scale destitution and misery, accused with great impudence the Austrian school of blindness to the urgent economic questions of the period. It was due to this perspective as well that the history and philosophy of the Austrian school were not to be incorporated into the foundation and reconciliation myth of the Second Republic's Grand Coalition. Against this backdrop, it is to his credit that Professor Dr. Hubert Christian Ehalt, the publisher of the series Encyclopédie des Wiener Wissens, Encyclopedia of Viennese Learning, acknowledges this almost forgotten piece of Viennese intellectual and scholarly history. Despite delays on the part of the authors, he has remained a patient and loyal supporter of this project, and it is to him that we are particularly indebted. It seems to be in the nature of every larger undertaking that a considerable debt of gratitude is accumulated along the course of its development, and one which can hardly be repaid in a few lines. With gratefulness, we recall the many suggestions that led to the continuous evolution of the idea for this book. First, the extensive discussions of economic theory in the Haldenhof Runde in Kitzbühel, with the thoughtful host and profound expert on the Austrian school, Karl-Heinz Moore, the in-depth engagement with ordo-liberalism, repeatedly prompted by Dr. Rüdiger Stix, a colleague who combines Viennese charm with erudition and intellectual honesty in a manner hard to come by, and finally, the providential encounter with Professor Dr. Hans-Hermann Hoppe, then still at the University of Nevada, who introduced us to the current state of the Austrian School of Economics in the U.S. and piqued our interest most decidedly in the already almost forgotten history of the Austrian School. Professor Hoppe, whose friendship and hospitality led to a series of fruitful conversations, has continued to be well disposed to our project, contributing a number of important suggestions and giving it impetus. During the course of our considerable archival and literary research, we were lucky enough to have encountered a number of exceptionally helpful employees in several Viennese libraries. The University of Vienna Library's Dr. Roland Zwanziger, who more than once set off in person to search for some rare volume or other in the depths of the archive's basement, Frau Daniela Atanasowski, who sometimes postponed her lunch break in order to suit the author's time constraints, and Gabriela Freisener of the Economic Faculty Library, who, in addition to her skillful assistance, created a particularly hospitable atmosphere by providing us with Viennese coffee now and then. We were also received kindly in the Vienna University Archive, 
in the Library of Historical Science, in the Austrian Nationalbibliothek, and in the Library of the Austrian Parliament. Our sincere thanks go out to all of the above, including Veronika Weiser, for her valuable support and time-saving assistance in the finding of resources. We are grateful for the help and support we received on many occasions while drafting this manuscript from Rahim Tuchrisordegon and Gregor Hochheiter from the Institut für Werte Wirtschaft, Institute for Value-Based Economics in Vienna. Apart from many expert suggestions and help in researching the literature, they commented on our drafts and looked over the final draft critically. After having completed this book project, we left not only with the feeling that we had greatly profited from their tremendous knowledge of the subject, but also with the certitude of having forged a selfless and sincere friendship. Heartfelt thanks are also extended to Beata Huber for the many valuable and extensive conversations that accelerated the acquisition of knowledge. Of particular help was the proofreading by Dr. Barbara Fink of the publisher Bibliothèque des Provinces. Dr. Fink's sharp eye and mind brought to light a considerable number of incorrect source citations, which were subsequently corrected by the authors. The authors are also much obliged to those colleagues who contributed a great deal to their understanding of the dramatic ruptures in recent Austrian history, in particular to Professor Dr. Norbert Leser, who focused our site on genuine Austro-Marxism in the course of many friendly conversations, and to Professor Dr. Oliver Rathkolb, who offered a number of new perspectives on the great intellectual exodus of 1938 and on Schumpeter's work in the United States. Finally, our special thanks go to Professor Dr. Jörg Guido Hülsmann of the University of Angers, France, whose profound knowledge of the original Austrian school literature, himself a biographer of Mises, was able to offer advice and make suggestions regarding the history of dogmas on many occasions. He also very kindly took upon himself the task of looking through the final manuscript, all remaining deficiencies, inaccuracies, or even errors in content or form, are naturally the sole responsibility of the authors. Last but not least, it is our wish to extend our thanks to our nearest and dearest, to Elvira, for whom this book offered the opportunity to exercise the virtue of spousal tolerance, and to Veit Georg, who had to do without a number of games of soccer with his father, and to Kirsten, who faced with radical reduction of free time, always remained a loving soul and an affectionate partner. Eugen Maria Schulach and Herbert Unterköfler, Vienna, November 2008. The Austrian School in Brief The Austrian School of Economics, also called the Viennese School of Economics, was founded by Karl Menger in Vienna during the last third of the 19th century. From that time until today, its vibrant teaching tradition has had a significant influence on the formation and further development of the modern social sciences and economics in Europe and the United States. In the 1930s, a general change of economic paradigms proceeded to push the Austrian school ever closer to the academic sidelines. This trend was further intensified by the emigration of many of the school's proponents, and finally through the expulsion of its last remaining representatives when the National Socialists seized power. After the Second World War, the political atmosphere of coalition and cooperation across party lines did not lend itself to a restoration of the school. Held by many to be the intellectual heir of the French and English Enlightenment and political and economic liberalism, it was considered too old-fashioned. 
the Austrian school was no longer welcome in Austria. By means of their teaching and scholarly publications, however, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek were more or less able to sustain the tradition in the United States. From the 1970s onward, it has experienced a renaissance as the modern Austrian school of economics. Until 1938, the research agenda of the Austrian school was characterized by an astonishing multitude of diverse and, in some cases, even contradictory conclusions. Its 40 or so economists had in common their education in law, their almost exclusively elite or aristocratic public service backgrounds, and their employment with state-funded universities, the civil service, or institutions like banks or chambers of commerce that too had close ties with the state. In any case, the proponents of the Austrian school were highly successful socially and professionally. Five became government ministers, many held senior positions in the government or state-owned banks, and quite a few were granted aristocratic titles. All branches of the school shared the conviction that the subjective feelings and actions of the individual are those which drive economic activity. Based on this conviction, explanations for economic phenomena such as value, exchange, price, interest, and entrepreneurial profit were derived and step-by-step step expanded into a comprehensive theory of money and business cycles. Because of their subjectivist, individualistic approach, economists of the Austrian school regarded any kind of collective as unscientific in rationale. This led to fierce arguments with the Marxists, the German historical school, and later with the promoters of planned economy and state interventionism, and solidarity within the school itself. In the modern Austrian school of economics, questions regarding knowledge, monetary theory, entrepreneurship, the market process, and spontaneous order place themselves in the foreground, subjects that the older Austrian school with remarkable foresight had already taken up or dealt with in detail. This book endeavors to trace the development of this multifaceted tradition with all of its ideas, personalities, and institutions. Chapter 1. Vienna in the Mid-19th Century Sometime during the late summer months of 1859, we do not know precisely when, a fatherless, 19-year-old youth from Biawa, Biritz, on the Galician-Sedesian border, set off for Vienna with a Maturitätszeugnis from Krakow Gymnasium in his luggage, and perhaps a letter of recommendation or two from a teacher or relative as well. The Maturitätszeugnis is a certificate awarded in Austria, Switzerland, and some parts of Germany, indicating that a student has passed qualifying exams required to begin university studies. The gymnasium is roughly the equivalent to high school in the United States, but with a more rigorous academic agenda. It was one of many from the so-called crown lands pouring into the incessantly growing royal imperial capital and residential city of Vienna. The terms royal imperial, Kaiser Königreich, abbreviated KK, and royal and imperial, Kaiser und Königreich, abbreviated KUK, emblematized the dual monarchy in the Austro-Hungarian Empire after 1867. The western part, Cisleitanian, was an empire. The eastern part, Transleitanian, mainly with Hungary and Croatia-Slavonia, was a kingdom. Common institutions bore the denomination KUK, institutions of Cisleitanian, just KK. From 1820 to 1830, 
the share of inhabitants not born in Vienna had already grown from 9.5 to 30.5%. In 1856, that portion had grown to 44%. One-fifth of the immigrants originated from Bohemia and Moravia, another fifth from Lower Austria, and 11.5% from the Alpine countries. Whereas immigrants had been mainly German-speaking up to mid-century, the wave of immigrants now increasingly consisted of Czech speakers. In 1857, in one of the first censuses in Europe, 476,222 people were registered in Vienna and its suburbs. In 1869, there were 607,507, and in 1888, as many as 1.3 million. During the 19th century, the population grew sevenfold. Vienna became a metropolis, the fourth largest city in the world after London, Paris, and New York. It was not until 1871 that Berlin edged ahead, leaving Vienna to occupy fifth place for a long time. To our traveller, Karl Menger von Wolfensgrün, 1840-1921, the subsequent founder of the Austrian School of Economics, the cityscape still appeared as that of old Vienna. Enclosed on three sides by a city wall and moat, and naturally confined by an arm of the Danube on its eastern side. The city outskirts, the Glacis, had never been built upon for military reasons. Partly lined with avenues of trees, it served the inhabitants as an esplanade with plots for market stalls, coffee tents, playgrounds and junk dealers, and offered artisans and traders open storage and work areas. Within the city walls, the number of houses, 1,200, households, 10,600, and inhabitants, about 50,000, had remained virtually constant for decades. Immigrants settled in the outer boroughs and suburb. What struck young people from the provinces as particularly pleasant, a fellow student of Karl Menger remembered, was the hospitality of the local people most of all. The same was later even registered in a well-known encyclopedia. The main characteristics of the Viennese are mirth and bonhomie. The archetypal Viennese has an open heart and feels most content when he can be gentle and good. No matter how uproarious, public amusements are always harmless and jovial. In no large city will one feel more at home than in Vienna, and the stranger receives easy access into society. The raising of the city walls, commissioned in 1857 by Emperor Franz Josef I, was already underway at the time of Menger's arrival. Soon to be apparent changes and upcoming plans still to be realized resulted in animated discussions, even heated arguments. Every week brought a new surprise, first here and then there, some favorite spot of the old Viennese vanished. The columns of daily newspapers were filled with cries of anguish. In contrast, the younger generation of citizens inspired by the belief in progress and filled with confidence saw the dawn of a new beginning in the demolition of the stronghold ring. Johann Strauss the Younger, 1825-1899, lent the events of the time lively expression in his rhythmically jocund Demolier Polka, which means demolition men's polka, and his martial Explosions Polka, which means explosion polka. In any case, the enjoyment of theatre life and the desire for sensation that permeated public life appeared satisfied. The goings-on in front of and behind the scenes provided fodder for conversation in all circles. The few daily papers published in Vienna fed the reader with gossip from the theatre. 
As a culmination of this constructional redevelopment, the Ringstrasse, a circular road surrounding the inner city district of Vienna and magnificent boulevard of more than three miles, would at least be ceremoniously opened on May 1st, 1865. But the Theatre Mary facade could hardly cover up the fact that the general economic situation as a result of the ruined state of government finances was difficult. The 163 million guilders needed for constructing public buildings and grounds were financed by the partial selling of the newly available building areas to private companies, entrepreneurs and investors. A positive economic climate was created only after two exceptionally good harvests, and upon the added stimulation, albeit illusory and superficial, of the 1866 war against Prussia's being financed by an increase in the money supply. The size of the railway network, a reliable economic indicator of the time, almost doubled between 1866 and 1873. And between 1867 and 1873, no less than 104 construction companies were newly licensed in Vienna alone. The city quickly turned into a gigantic construction site. In place of two-story houses, approximately 500 private and public buildings, as well as 90 new roads and squares were constructed in the matter of a few years. Added to that, were the Viennese Mountain Springwater Main, the Danube Flood Control, three railway stations, and a considerable number of buildings in the surrounding towns and suburbs built in order to accommodate the enormous influx of immigrants, at least in part. The monumental architecture of the Ringstrasse was a strong expression of the citizens' new self-confidence. Among the eligible voters of Vienna, hardly making up more than 4% of the inhabitants, in 1870, it was 26,069 people. A liberal attitude became the predominant political trend. This mindset came to expression in the December Constitution of 1867, in which the relationship of citizen and state was codified, and a catalogue of basic individual freedoms and rights still valid to this day was laid down. The freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion and faith, freedom of assembly, and academic freedom were followed in 1868 by an extension of compulsory school attendance for children and a very controversial secularization of the school system. When Emperor Franz Josef lobbied by the business and society elites authorized the holding of a world exhibition in 1873, already excessive economic expectations were further fired up. The Viennese were hoping for the jingle of golden rain. Everyone is counting on Everyone is speculating on the world exhibition, wrote economist August Onken, 1844-1911, who was then appointed to the faculty of Universität für Bodenkultur, literally University of Soil Culture and today University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences. Another contemporary also made plain the euphoric mood. Around the year 1870, we were living rather in dulce jubilee. To be sure, one shook one's head at the audaciousness of the project, but one thought the boom would last, and one plunged right into it. On an area larger than 16 hectares, 200 exhibition halls for more than 50,000 exhibits were built, three new bridges were erected across the Danube Canal, and the first luxury hotels of Vienna were constructed for an expected 20 million visitors. In expectation of brisk business, the prices for rent and food increased enormously. A total of 1,005 companies, with a combined capital worth 4 billion guilders, were founded between 1867 and 1873. 
the number of banks grew from 12 to 141, 69 of which were in Vienna alone. The number of share titles on the Viennese stock exchange multiplied from 169 to 605. The overheated economy, stoking already rampant speculation, blossomed wondrously. Individuals who had only shortly before had to content themselves with some modest job, suddenly, on account of some successful venture, came into a fortune and also took pains to make this change in their position as conspicuous as possible. The whole of social life of the old imperial city was turned upside down. The previous humble coziness was replaced with a sometimes quite pompous and imposing extravagance. The fact that seasoned bankers had long since recognized the dangers and had gradually withdrawn from activities on the stock exchange did not make much difference. Experts and economists warned emphatically in public speeches against the stock market swindle and the corruption of the press. But it was virtually impossible to put a stop to the unchecked gambling and speculating according to the motto, Es stirbt der Fuchs, so gilt der Balg, a German proverb which approximates the meaning of the English, What can you get out of a cat but a skin? Johann Strauss der Younger aptly reflected this precarious mood in his operetta Die Fledermaus, 1874. Illusion makes us happy. In the end, the opening of the World Exhibition on May 1st, 1873, became the overture to the inevitable admission of complete failure. The exhibition halls were not yet completed, the weather was changeable, and the number of visitors remained below expectations. Many business aspirations shattered abruptly against reality. A little over a week later, the Viennese Stock Exchange recorded 110 insolvencies, and on the next day, Black Friday, the Great Crash, ensued, with 120 additional companies collapsing. By the end of the year, 48 banks, 8 insurance companies, 2 railroad companies, and 59 industrial firms had gone into liquidation or had even gone bankrupt. On the Stock Exchange, 1.5 billion guilders, four times the complete government revenue of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy in 1872, were blotted out. Many families fell on hard times, and 152 people in Vienna committed suicide. The Great Crash, whose devastating effects would live on in the memory of the Viennese citizens for a very long time, resulted in a kind of watershed in the general mentality. In the years that followed, liberalism increasingly lost political support, Pursuing security became the new guiding light, risk aversion, a rent-seeking mentality, and a guilds and small trades way of thinking became long-lamented basic components. The immediate effects were the renationalization of the railroad industries, protectionism, and restrictions of economic freedom, the Austrian tendency to a bureaucratic paternalism, and the desire on the part of economic interest groups to be shielded and protected acted in concert and close agreement. The Great Crash was thus the birth of the public welfare apparatus, in which the old Josephinian spirit of the authoritarian state again raised its head. From 1870 to 1914, the number of public servants in Cisleitania grew from 80,000 to 400,000. In Vienna, the number of municipal servants increased between 1873 and 1900 from 2,000 to 30,000. The political and intellectual climate in 20th century Austria, ranging from a conservative Catholic tradition to an Austro-revolutionary attitude, be it socialist, communist or national socialist, would have preferred 
to have let it be forgotten that the short phase of liberalism had created lasting material and spiritual values, an economic catching-up process and modernizing boost, an urbanity with cultural openness, as well as principles for a constitutional state with modern basic and individual rights. Ultimately, the development of individuality in the liberal era created precisely that tension-filled polarity of tradition and avant-garde, faith in progress and pessimism, and love of life and yearning for death, that was to become fertile soil for Viennese art, literature, music and science at the end of the 19th century. Chapter 2 Economics as an Academic Discipline Economic disciplines at Austrian universities developed from the 18th century science of cameralistics, which was intended to endow future civil servants with the necessary economic and administrative skills to manage the domains and estates of the authorities. The first relevant chair was instituted at the Theresianische Akademie in 1751, which at the time was an educational centre for young Viennese aristocrats. Later, the universities of Vienna and Prague followed suit. This development was driven mainly by Josef von Sonnenfels, 1732-1817, who in 1763 established the Polizei und Kameralwissenschaften, Science of Regulation and Kameralistics, at the Faculty of Philosophy in Vienna. In 1784, he relocated the chair to the Faculty of Law, from then on, and until 1919, economics remained part of the law curriculum under a variety of labels. With his Grundsätze der Polizei, Handlungs- und Finanzwissenschaft, 1765-1772, three volumes, Principles of Regulation, Administration, and Public Finance, Sonnen first presented a textbook which was a mixture of well-meaning concern and confining paternalism typical of the enlightened Josephian authoritarian state, named after Emperor Joseph II, 1741-1790. Until the middle of the 19th century, it served to educate prospective civil servants, and was only replaced by Die Grundlehren der Volkswirtschaft, 1846, The Basic Rules of Economy, written by Josef von Kudler, 1786-1853, one of von Sonnenfels's successors. Thus were Austrian students led until far into the 19th century into a way of thinking that took for granted the paternalism of the state as well as the comprehensive administrative monitoring of its citizens and the economy. With Kudler's death, this traditional Austrian strain would soon be lost. What followed was an increasing orientation to a German and Prussian universities, where cameralistic studies were assigned chiefly to the philosophy faculties. Only in Strasbourg, Würzburg, and Freiburg were they integrated into the respective law faculties. Independent faculties of political science existed in Munich and Tübingen. In the middle of the 19th century, in a phase of identity-seeking reorientation, the term Kameralwissenschaft, cameralistics, was replaced by a confusing multitude of denotations. For example, Finanzwissenschaft, public finance, politische Ökonomie, political economy, nationale Ökonomie, national economics, Volkswirtschaftslehre, social economics, or Staatswissenschaften, political sciences. For graduates, the terms Kameralist 
or nationalökonom were preferred. The term Volkswirt, social economist, tended to be rejected because of its linguistic closeness to Bierwirt or Schenkwirt. Both terms, Bierwirt and Schenkwirt, can be translated as publican or innkeeper. With the role of the German economist changing rapidly in the face of a growing nation-state and the developing industrial society, the inadequacy of his customary two-year education soon became apparent. This had a detrimental effect on career prospects in civil service and began to unsettle all of its members. Concerns that educated lawyers might possibly replace cameralists were voiced. By contrast, these sorts of problems were unknown to economists in Austria. Their foundational studies in law ensured them of sufficient career opportunities. In fact, demand was increasing greatly on the part of the Austrian state administration. The Verein für Sozialpolitik, founded with the substantial involvement by the German economist Gustav Schmoller, 1838-1917, succeeded in calling a halt to this uncertainty. From the beginning, tangible corporate interests played a major role, and for a short while setting up the society as an official trade association was considered. Most held the view that economics should be principally concerned with the possibilities of state influence on economic processes. On the basis of such a program, members expected jobs, resources, reputation, and influence. An understanding of economics as a science for analyzing and explaining the nature of the economy was neglected when compared to this view. With this self-assured reorientation, those who had recommended a combined legal and economic education in Germany gradually disappeared as well. The establishment of economics within varying faculties also resulted in typical Austrian and German graduates having remarkably different social profiles. Evidence shows that law students at the University of Vienna, who comprised about 40% of the empire's total law students, originated largely from the middle and upper classes, high-level civil servants, officers, lawyers, factory owners, businessmen. The same can be said of law students as a whole in Germany. The Faculty of Philosophy, however, where German cameralists studied, recruited members predominantly from the lower class. Perhaps even more than social background, institutions and curricula determined a significantly different scholarly socialization and a dissimilar intellectual character. In order to graduate as an economist in Austria, one had to complete a course in law, of which the history of law was a substantial part. While working on abstract law terms, terminology analyses and methods of interpretation and their practical applications, Students were being coached, above all, in analytical thinking, linguistic precision, and logic. The major subjects of jurisprudence were oriented toward hermeneutics. In contrast, cameralistics at German universities was based on a predominantly descriptive, empirical approach, evident from the encyclopedic breadth of the course alone. Areas of study ranged from farming, agriculture, mining, trade, and industry— to finance, political science, and government accounting, and the program was closely associated, both institutionally and methodologically, with the natural sciences. As far as their intellectual self-conception, career goals, career options, scientific culture, and methodological repertoire were concerned, 
economists trained in Austria and Germany basically came from two different worlds. Looking at university statistics, it is easy to understand German economists' fear of falling behind in their careers. The total number of students at the twenty German and Prussian universities had increased steeply, from thirteen thousand two hundred and forty-seven, from eighteen sixty-one to eighteen sixty-two, to twenty-four thousand two hundred and seven, from eighteen eighty-two to eighteen eighty-three, including the newly founded University of Strasbourg. It is true that the Kameralists were only counted along with the agriculturalists and the pharmacists for statistics purposes, but even so, they totaled only one thousand four hundred and fifty-five students in all, to which about one hundred students of the Munich and Tubingen faculties of political science should be added. In any case, their proportion in the student body decreased from ten percent in eighteen forty-one to less than six percent in eighteen eighty-one. Despite a general boom in education, the number of authors in the discipline of cameralistics, about half of whom held professorships, remained unchanged at about one hundred throughout the nineteenth century. In comparison, the total number of students at the seven German language universities of the Austrian monarchy—Vienna, Prague, Innsbruck, Lemberg, Krakow, and Chernovitz—had increased from six thousand thirty-four. From eighteen sixty-three to eighteen sixty-four, to thirteen thousand sixty-nine. From eighteen eighty-three to eighteen eighty-four, even though the University of Krakow was Polonized in eighteen seventy, and the University of Chernovitz had only been founded in eighteen seventy-five, the law faculties had two thousand five hundred and twenty-seven. From eighteen sixty-three to eighteen sixty-four, and five thousand four hundred and seven. From 1883 to 1884, students, respectively, thus constantly more than 40 percent of all students. In terms of student numbers, the Faculty of Law in Vienna was the largest law teaching institution in the world. Because of growing student numbers, the larger law faculties were given a second chair of economics in the 1860s. The two Viennese professorships were deemed to be particularly lucrative. Especially as tuition and exam fees flowed in plentifully, with a considerable three thousand to four thousand students attending, I had the most attractive outlook for my accounts. Recollected Albert Eberhard Friedrich Scheffler, eighteen thirty-one to nineteen o three, Karl Menger's predecessor. Nevertheless, some chairs remained vacant for years because of a great shortage of professors. Of the seventy-one professorships at all law faculties in the Austrian monarchy, only fifty were occupied in eighteen seventy-four. In Vienna alone, six of the seventeen chairs were vacant, because Austrian professors had to be qualified in law as well. The circle of possible candidates from Germany was limited from the start. Furthermore, many ideal candidates rejected the summons to Vienna because the faculty was considered to be too school-like. Research was neglected. And the climate among the teaching staff was considered less than harmonious. The shortage of local junior lecturers was the result of the boom of the Gründerjahre, meaning the economic expansion in Austria and Germany in the second half of the nineteenth century. This boom absorbed a not insignificant number of the most talented young lawyers, who received rewarding, often illustrious positions as directors, secretaries, and the like. Only a significant increase in public officials' salaries in the 1870s resulted in a greater influx of lawyers entering public service. When Karl Menger began his law studies in Vienna, Lorenz von Stein, 
1815 to 1890, was teaching political economy. The second professorship was occupied by Leopold Hasner von Arta, 1818-1891, who, after serving for only two years, was promoted to Minister for Education and later to Prime Minister, and did not return to the university. His successor, Albert E. F. Scheffler, from Württemberg, took over the office of Minister for Trade in 1871, and shortly thereafter went to Stuttgart. At about the same time, the Viennese publishing house Braumüller published a book by the up-to-that-time unknown 30-year-old Karl Menger. It was almost 300 pages long and would yet make history. Grundsätze der Volkswirtschaftslehre, 1871. Principles of Economics. Chapter 3. The Discovery of the Self. The Theory of Subjective Value. Tradition has it that, as a journalist of the Wiener Zeitung, Karl Menger, while studying the market reports, bumped into contradictions between traditional price theories and the explanations of the most experienced and sophisticated market participants. The Wiener Zeitung, Viennese newspaper, one of the oldest newspapers in Europe, became an official government newspaper in 1782. It is still published today. Some have viewed this story sceptically, others in turn have dismissed it as myth. But there would seem to be some truth at its core. As of March of 1866, Menger worked for many months on the business editorial team of the Wiener Zeitung, in which stock market reports were published regularly. And as if he were drawing on direct observation, Menger went into remarkable detail about stock exchanges and markets in his principles as well. The particular atmosphere in the Vienna Stock Exchange, then one of the most important in Europe, has been handed down to us vividly in the repeatedly reprinted Handbuch für Börse Spekulation, Handbook for Gambling at the Stock Exchange. What counted most in day-to-day -day dealings were future expectations. Past events were irrelevant. The market price was apparently determined solely by subjective preferences, by multiple emotions, conjectures and opinions, hopes and fears. Knowledge and information were critical. Menger, who in his principles stressed the importance of observation of real business life as a rich source of insight, must have received decisive inspiration from this environment. Karl Menger began preparatory work on his principles at the beginning of September of 1867 at Schleifmühlgasse 3, his new home, the Akalsplatz in Vienna. It complied in structure with the usual textbooks of the time. As for content, it addressed the goods, value, and price theories of the German economists, supplementing and developing them further. But within the confines of this conservative format, Menger went on to accomplish a radical break with tradition and completely rearranged his results on the basis of a thoroughly individualistic view of humanity and of the world. He dedicated his work to Wilhelm Rocher, 1817-1894, the doyen of German economics. Even though Menger called himself a collaborator when it came to German economics and complied with its structure and also with its terminology in many ways, he did not become its perfecter, but rather its vanquisher. Hitherto, German economists had invariably referred to a moral, religious or political framework, be it state welfare, God's plan, a normative, collective requirement, 
moral law, a moral consciousness, or to religion as firmest foundation and highest aim. Closely connected with this was the view that institutions like the people, the economy, tradition, law, nation, or language were in some ways entities in their own right, or had an essence of their own, and that these entities actually existed. German economists' understanding of the structure and functioning of the social universe was accordingly inclined to a metaphysical essentialism. By contrast, the principles did without any religious or quasi-religious references, and thus became the first secular economics textbook in the German language. Menger proceeded on an anthropocentric maxim, which he would formulate astutely years later, there is no economic phenomenon that does not ultimately find its origin and measure in the economically acting human and his economic deliberations. Fundamental economic laws, as that of the creation of value, could therefore also be demonstrated in an isolated economy or in one free of communication or by example of the solitary figure Robinson Crusoe. The Viennese economist Josef R. Schumpeter 1883-1950, was later to name this kind of approach methodological individualism. In the course of this shift to a modern individualistic foundation, Menger replaced the hitherto common terms singular economy and individual economy with the concept of the individual and also that of the person. With the theory of value, the nucleus of the principles, the idea of the economically acting individual as standard and engine of the economy is expanded to become a comprehensive theory. Classical economists had already encountered the so-called value paradox when they wanted to base the value of a good on its utility. Some goods were useful, but had only minimal value or none at all. Take water, for example, in regions where water is plentiful. Other goods, in turn, were considered to be of little or no use, but were viewed as valuable in economic commerce, as, for example, diamonds. It then seemed paradoxical that the valuation of water and diamonds invariably reverses in the setting of a hot, dry desert. To solve this paradox, the classicists drew upon the costs or the expenditure of human labor of manufacturing a given good. However, Pedantic authors soon realized that goods could very well be laborious to produce and yet remain without value on the market, as in the case of badly written books. As early as the first half of the 19th century, this inadequacy of the objective theory of labor cost and value led some German economists to gradually discover the role of the individual as a value-imputing subject and as an agent in the economic process. Renowned contemporaries of the young Menger were adherents of this German utility value school. Others demonstrated at least rudimentary elements of this kind of subjectivism. But their decades-long endeavors to create a consistent theory of subjective value stalled halfway. The reason was an institutional and epistemological dilemma that they could not solve. Institutionally, almost all economists were professors at state-supervised universities, and as public servants, were more or less part of the ruling order. Generally speaking, they pursued their science in a manner compatible with this ruling order. Epistemologically, the metaphysical essentialism, which they subscribed to philosophically, constituted an additional and almost unsurmountable barrier. 
Accordingly, there was no room in this scholarly and political worldview for the individual as autonomous agent, or if at all, then only in a very restricted fashion. This is why the valiant attempts to create a connection between scholastic precursors and the Austrian school are only possible at the cost of a completely distorting decontextualization. In contrast, Menger explained that the attributes of goods or products are nothing inherent to them, nor a property of them, but result only from their relationships to human beings and their needs. Nevertheless, Menger held on to two objective criteria, to the objective ability of goods to satisfy needs, and to the distinction between imaginary and real needs, something a consistent subjectivist would later reprove as a notorious slip. Menger, adopting the term importance, Bedeutung, from Albert Schaeffler, defined value in the following way, as value is the importance that individual goods or quantities of goods attain for us because we are conscious of being dependent on command of them for the satisfaction of our needs. For people, Menger said, the only important thing is the satisfaction of needs, but this importance is also transferred to goods. The differing importance of individual acts of need are revealed in an accordingly graded valuation of the goods. As an example of this kind of a ranking of needs, Menger cites a farmer who has 200 bushels of wheat at his disposal. The first two parts he uses for food for himself and his family, the third is seed grain for the next year, with the fourth he produces beer, and the fifth part serves to fatten the cattle. The remaining bushels he allots to the feeding of pets. In reply to the question of what the value basis of the wheat stockpile or of a part of it is, Menger answers that the value of the whole stockpile is determined by that part alone with which the need of lowest-ranked importance, in this case the feeding of pets, can be secured. It was Friedrich von Wieser, 1851-1927, one of Menger's later Habilitanten, who would refer to the utility of goods at the margin of utilization as marginal utility, this being the basis for the valuation of every single good constituting the stock. Habilitation is the highest academic qualification a person can achieve by their own pursuit in certain European and Asian countries. And after obtaining a research doctorate, PhD or equivalent degrees, the Habilitation requires the candidate to write a postdoctoral thesis based on independent scholarly accomplishments, reviewed by and defended before an academic committee in a process similar to that for the doctoral dissertation. Sometimes a book publication is required for the defence to take place. Whereas in the United States, the United Kingdom and most other countries the PhD is sufficient qualification for a senior faculty position at a university, in other countries only the habilitation qualifies the holder to supervise doctoral candidates. The word habilitation can be used to describe the qualification itself or the process of earning that qualification. A successful habilitation requires that the candidate in German, habilitant, singular, habilitanten, plural, be officially given the venia legendi, Latin for permission for lecturing, or the ius docendi, right of teaching, a specific academic subject at universities for a lifetime. Eugen von Böhm-Barwerk, 1851-1914, another habilitant, would state the same even more succinctly, 
the value of a good is determined by the extent of its marginal utility. Menger would logically apply this concept, pertaining equally to consumer goods, land, capital and labour, to the production and distribution of goods as well. He demonstrated the causal connections between goods using the example of the production chain field grain flour bread. Thus, the value of the field, here as a good of the fourth and highest order, ultimately arises from the value of the bread as a good of the first order. The principle of marginal utility also made it possible to plausibly demonstrate how the often diverging price expectations represented the respective margins of valuation of those willing to exchange. Within these margins is where bargaining or a price duel takes place. Accordingly, price is a resultant of subjective valuations put placed upon commodity and price equivalent within a market. Menger was of the opinion that, with his principles, he had provided a comprehensively valid price theory. His critics, however, saw in these results nothing more than independent analyses of terms, or reacted with incredulous amazement. The principles were soon in danger of sinking into oblivion, but it was perhaps the shock of the great stock market crash, 1873, even more so than the fabulous economic boom or the cultural and political liberalism of the second half of the 19th century that would lay the groundwork for its belated reception. Menger's economizing individual, with his perpetual neediness, his delusory conceit, his susceptibility to errors, and his persistent worries about the future must have appeared to his readers like a model from real life. In the 1880s, Menger's Habilitanten, along with Emil Sachs, 1845-1927, popularized the theory of subjective value and developed it in diverse ways. They were bolstered in their research after the rediscovery of the forgotten work of Hermann Heinrich Gossen, 1810-1858, with his formulated theory of marginal utility and his graduation of goods in numbers of classes. And when they became aware that the Englishman William Stanley Jevons, 1835-1882, the Frenchman Marie-Esprit Léon Valras, 1834-1910, and the American John Bates Clark, 1847-1938, had arrived at very similar conclusions to Menger's, without any of these authors having known of each other. Bembavec, who was the first to call the principles an epoch-making work, saw in these concurrences an assurance of no small measure for the correctness of the aforementioned theory. It was also Bimbalek who, in 1886, in the widely read Konrad's Jahrbücher, Konrad's Annuals, described in detail the new value theory with linguistic clarity, didactic talent, and a cheerful love of debate. At this point, however, neither had Menger's achievement been appropriately acknowledged, nor had the value theory research of his Havilitanten regarding business profits, tax equity, Maya 1884, or visas über den Ursprung und die Hauptgesetze des wirtschaftlichen Wertes, on the origins and the main laws of economic value, 1884, had been able to find positive resonance in Germany. There, theoretical research was largely rejected. Furthermore, those who did concern themselves with value theory revealed once more their epistemological and institutional dilemma. The new value theory was disparagingly described as a stencil. The figure of Robinson Crusoe, 
lampooned as a quite tiresome test dummy for the exact method, and the foundations of the marginal utility theory contested in as much as economic value could only emerge within a society. Another, Heinrich Dietzel, 1857-1935, was of the opinion that Wieser's Über den Ursprung did not belong to the literature of economics. Despite the controversies of the 1880s, the principle of marginal utility became a kind of shining torch for the developing Austrian school. Even though they arrived at very different answers, its supporters were able to make good use of the new value doctrine as a productive tool for explaining economic theory. In his cogent Positive Theorie des Kapitals, 1889, Positive Theory of Capital, Bernbarek presented anew the value and price theory, on the basis of which his famous Agio theory of interest was developed. And, as he first analyzed the sphere of production and implied the marginal utility principle over periods of time, intertemporally, his brother-in-law, Friedrich von Wieser, extended this principle to the costs, which he defined as foregone use, or as opportunity costs, later adopted in writings as Wieser's Law. Wieser's notion of the calculability of utility and his so-called theory of imputation led to profound controversy within the Austrian school that lasted for decades and produced more heat than light. That subjective value is not measurable and therefore also not calculable, was first proven by Franz Kohl, 1862-1914. After much endeavor and many mistakes, it became clear to succeeding generations that the value of goods of a higher order can never be directly converted into prices of goods of a lower order without operation of the market or market process. To the end of the 1880s, the theory of subjective value was considered a permanent part of the young Austrian school. Emil Sachs even saw in it a kind of natural law. An apple falls from the tree and the stars move according to one and the same law, that of gravity. With economic activity, Robinson Crusoe, and an empire with a population of 100 million follow one and the same law, that of value. Other of Menger's Habilitanten, Johann von Komorzinski, 1843-1911, and Robert Zuckerkandl, 1856-1926, further consolidated the position of the school with their value and price theory research. Hermann von Schulen zu Schrappenhofen, 1861-1931, also applied the subjective value theory to ground rent. And Eugen von Filipowitz, 1858-1917, a colleague of Menger's at the University of Vienna, contributed to a further dissemination of the theory with his successful textbook Grundriss der politischen Ökonomie, 1893 compendium of political economy, reprinted 18 times before 1926. The Austrian version of the marginal utility theory began to establish itself internationally in the early 1890s. Bimbalek's Kapitaltheorie and Wieser's Der Natürliche Wert, Natural Value, were translated into English. Both had previously described Austrian economics, or the Austrian school at length, in English-language academic journals. In his own rousing style, Bernbarbeck raved about the new developments from Vienna. The idea of final utility is to the expert the open sesame, as it were, by which he unlocks the most complicated phenomena of economic life and solves the hardest problems of the science. 
just what a powerful and fertile new ferment the marginal utility theory was actually to become would be seen 40 years later in the comprehensive bibliographical appendix to the article Grenznutzen, Marginal Utility, in the Handwerterbuch der Staatswissenschaften, Concise Dictionary of Political Sciences, which encompassed about 630 titles. Chapter 4 The Emergence of the Austrian School in the Methodenstreit the only critic who seemed to have surmised the momentousness of Menger's principles right away was an astonished Gustav Schmoller, an aspiring representative of the historical school's young generation. Schmoller asked if, left to Menger, economic problems might become purely private business problems. The economics of the historical school was distinctly different from that practiced in the classical Anglo-Saxon world of Ricardo and Mill. Its bent was historical, and thus relied much on empirical and inductive reasoning. With this emerged a central issue in a controversy which would later go down in academic history under the rather inaccurate term Methodenstreit, a dispute over the appropriate methodology. The turbulent reconstituting of a science that seeks unity across varying traditional strands, cameralistics, political science and political economy, processed along with a large influx of ideas from law, history, philosophy, and natural sciences, can best be described on the level of an event, complete with a decades-long and ongoing feud and a multitude of intense, even bitter, literary skirmishes. Therefore, it's hardly surprising that this aggregate of sciences lacked common ground and terminology, and that a view of the actual core of the controversy which was ultimately about the foundations, conditions, and limits of the economic and social sciences, was obstructed by a kind of Babylonian confusion of language and terms. As previously mentioned, the Verein für Sozialpolitik, Association for Social Policy, had tried, with Schmoller's substantial involvement, to establish a new role model for future economists. The fact that their analyses of economic phenomena were almost exclusively historical-empirical, and that they made their results available to politicians, especially when it came to finding an answer to the social question, complied with their view of themselves, and at the same time amounted to something of an employment scheme. Between 1872 and 1914, the Verein für Sozialpolitik published 256 research compilations and almost 200 conference reports. In this sense, Schmoller compared economics to the chorus in a Greek tragedy. It may comment on the events, but it does not appear on the political stage. Schmoller described the economy itself as clockwork, kept in motion by egoism, but in need of regulation. Subsequently, this view became the guiding idea of the historical ethical strain of German economics. During the 1870s, the division between Austrian and German economists also intensified in line with old and new resentments of a political-cultural nature. Austria's defeat by Prussia in 1866, the war against France, and the founding of the German Empire in 1871 had left the academic elite of the Danube monarchy with a deep resentment against Prussia. This had even led to brawls between German and Austrian students at the University of Vienna. In contrast, the historical school encountered a powerful surge in feelings of national unity. 
They openly supported Germany's pursuit of empire-building and its nationalistic expansion plans. Karl Menger put these antagonisms aside when he, for the first time, publicly criticized the Verein für Sozialpolitik for its bias and accused it of systematically taking action against moderate individualism in Germany. In the mid-1870s, Menger began his work on a methodology of economics. The manuscript was complete when he was appointed to the position of professor in 1879. But Menger deferred publication, and for the time being pressed ahead with educating the next generation of academics. Böhm-Barbeck received his habilitation in 1880, followed four years later and in short order by Friedrich von Wiese, Robert Meyer, Gustav Gross, Eugen von Filipowitz, and Viktor Mataya. This group that Menger had assembled surpassed by far the foreseeable staff requirements of the six German-speaking universities in the Austrian monarchy, but they served the ambitious plan of reorienting economics as a whole on German soil, as indeed Menger had personally noted. In his Untersuchungen über die Methode der Sozialwissenschaften und der politischen Ökonomie insbesondere, Investigations into the Method of the Social Sciences with a Special Reference to the Economics, published in 1883, Menger drew distinctions between historical, theoretical and practical strands of economics, and accused the historical school of confusing theoretical economics with its history. The practical economic science, said Menger, required a theoretical foundation, just as applied chemistry assumes a knowledge of theoretical chemistry, with powerful eloquence. Menger challenged a series of firmly held basic suppositions of the historical school. Visible economic phenomena would not alone guarantee the validity of the exact laws of economics. Economic phenomena are by no means inseparable, bound to the social and governmental development of nation. The term nation, Volk, describes neither a large subject that has needs, that works, practices economy and consumes, nor a large singular economy, but rather a peculiar complication of singular economies, and the dogma of human self-interest never means that all humans always act in the same way, because error and ignorance alone could create differences. Furthermore, the historical school strictly denies laws of nature in the economy, and is searching, on the other hand, for laws of development in history in order to vindicate for the latter the character of laws of nature. And finally, the terms used by the historical school were cloudy throughout, as the varying definitions of the term economics, by a total of sixteen of its representatives, obviously shows. In his investigations, moreover, Menger devoted himself in detail to the emergence of economic phenomena, by which he meant law, language, the state, money, markets, prices of goods, interest rates, ground rents, wages, and a thousand other phenomena of social life in general and of economy in particular. These were to no small extent the unintended result of social development. Thus, the economic interest of the economic individuals led, without any agreement, without legislative compulsion, even without any consideration of public interest, to the use of goods, which our predecessors called money. Menger thereby insinuated that the historical school often demanded measures of social policy without proper knowledge of the underlying causal relations. Reactions to Menger's investigations were numerous, and ranged from exhortative agreement and objective criticism to harsh rejection. The fiercest remarks came from Schmoller, 
in order to see basic final elements, scientifically speaking, in assuming human needs, the desire for procurement or self-interest, one would need a completely escapist, book-smart naivety. And Menger was not able to understand the historical school at all, because he lacks the necessary organ. Schmoller ended his largely scathing review in the style of a verdict. We have finished with this book. He went on to say that Menger lacked the universal, philosophical and historical education, as well as a naturally broad vision. The offending passages were silently toned down in a future edition. Menger's response appeared first in the form of a letter in Konrad's Jahrbücher. Because it expressed an accusation of the tyranny of the historical school, it is possible that Schmoller had refused the publication of a similar letter in his Jahrbücher. Menger supplemented the above with his Irrtümer des Historismus in der Deutschen Nationalökonomie, Errors of Historicism in German Economics, in 1884. His ad hominem criticism became more severe, and he angrily questioned Schmoller's integrity in addition. Like no other scholar in Germany, he was inconsiderate in his choice of means, master of both a personal as well as vulgar style, a prototype of the problematic nature in academia. Menger's final words were full of scorn. Let Schmoller, the methodologist, stride like a lion in the sands of the Spree, shake his mane, brandish his paw, and yawn epistemologically. Only children and fools will take his methodological gesticulation seriously henceforth. The Spree is a river that flows through the city of Berlin, where Gustav Schmoller ruled at the university from 1882 to 1913. The blow for blow between Menger and Schmoller framed the spectacular climax of the Mittordenstreit. But the angry vehemence of the Irrtümer proved to be counterproductive for Menger. Even his fellow campaigners felt he had gone too far in style and form. People were whispering about signs of nervous exhaustion behind his back. Menger's standing at the Viennese faculty was in any case shaken to such an extent that the proposal he made during consultations about the reform of law studies to separate economic theory from political economy in the curriculum was outvoted. Nor was Menger able to have an influence on the appointment of the successors of Stein and Brentano during appeal procedures. The ministry even deliberated appointing Schmoller to Vienna. In the future, Menger avoided any lapses in objectivity. In the two decades that followed, a complex and multifaceted debate generated over fifty relevant titles, not to mention the many annotations and digressions that appeared in publications continually and throughout. The topic areas of the ongoing Methodenstreit were primarily the classification of economics, the function of the subdisciplines, the re-evaluation of the classical economists, the emergence of social institutions, and the interplay of theoretical and empirical research, individualism and collectivism, as well as induction and deduction. In the field of economic theory, however, the historical-ethical orientation proved less than able to deliver satisfaction. The exceptions were Adolf Wagner, 1835-1917, one of Schmoller's colleagues at the University of Berlin, and his pupil Heinrich Ditzel, 1857-1935. Both were close to the historical-ethical school of thought with regard to economic policy but they were vehement advocates of Menger's position on methodological questions. Beyond that, many of the works of the historical school were comparable to essays by high school seniors, as even one of the more brilliant proponents admitted. 
Not exempt were those economists of the Austrian monarchy, who were counted as adherents of the historical ethical school. Friedrich Kleinwächter, 1838-1927, Professor in Chernowitz. Richard Hildebrandt, 1840-1918, Professor in Graz. And, at the time of his professorship in Vienna, Luyo Brentano, 1844-1931. The position of the Austrians was supported by Emil Sachs, Eugen von Böhmbarwerk, and a range of young Viennese lecturers. Sachs, who advocated a methodological individualism, developed an interpretation all of his own, in which he saw the individual to be determined above all by egoism, mutualism, and altruism. But the impact of his contributions was limited because of his abstract and cumbersome style. Bimbarek, on the other hand, who made use of gripping and visual language, became a rousing champion of the Austrian cause, albeit at the cost of substantial simplification. With the exception of some methodologically relevant annotations by Wieser, the other proponents of the emerging Austrian school authored no further contributions to methodology. Instead, they applied Menger's approach, and with this contributed to the emergence of the school of thought that was soon to gain the reputation of a particular logical astuteness. In the 1880s, the Viennese lecturers Robert Meyer, Gustav Gross, Victor Mataya, Robert Zuckerkandl, and Johann von Komorzinski produced monographs on the basis of Menger's teachings. They were followed in the 1890s by Hermann von Schollen zu Schadenhofen, Sigmund Feilbogen, and Richard Schiller. The Gesellschaft der Österreichischen Volkswirte, Society of Economists of Austria, played a decisive role in the consolidation of the young Austrian school. Politicians of every shade were often invited to regularly scheduled lecture evenings where timely financial, social, and economic-political affairs were discussed. In 1897, the exceedingly active society had a total of 232 members, some of whom also made important moves towards approaching the German Verein für Sozialpolitik. After holding its annual general meeting in Vienna in 1895, the Verein's Austrian membership jumped from around 10 to 144 of its total membership of 489. This contributed significantly to the Methodenstreits being conducted more rationally. That is not to say, however, that there were no further skirmishes. Schmoller spoke disparagingly of the Austrian circle of scholars, and as principal of the University of Berlin announced his intention to bar from teaching all those not following the current of the historical school, including the Austrians. In time, the Gesellschaft der Österreichischen Volkswirte sponsored the newly founded magazine Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung, Journal of Economics, Social Policy and Administration. It was published from 1892 onward by Eugen von Böhm-Barwerk, Karl Theodor von Inamar-Sterneg, 1843-1908, and Ernst von Plener, 1841-1923. From the beginning it was open to international authors and readers, and was the first German-language professional journal to provide an overview of the most important international articles. The program outline was set by Birnbarwerk, who in his opening essay unambiguously rejected all forms of bias and intolerance. To declare the theory as redundant means having the arrogance to say one does not need to know what one says when speaking, nor what one does when acting. This quotation translated for this edition and reputed to come from Pierre-Paul Royer-Collard, 
was mentioned by Dr. Karl Freiherr Ferdinand von Hock, a leading civil servant in the Ministry of Finance and an expert in finance administration in Vienna in the midst of the 19th century, in the Öffentlichen Abgaben und Schulden, Verlag der J.G. Kotaschenbuchhandlung, Stuttgart, 1863. The page preceding the foreword contains this quote alone, and it is that to which Böhm-Barleck refers. When the Zeitschrift first appeared, ten additional professors and lecturers had become part of Menger's circle. Four more habilitierte scholars would join them by the turn of the century. It was not only the academic identity, but also the name of the school of thought had already been step by step established. The first verifiable link of Menger's circle with the term Österreichisch, Austrian, happened at the height of the Mitordenstreit. Shortly afterward, one could read about a Menger school and of an Austrian young school of economics, and it was only Schmoller who in an 1888 review acknowledged the younger Viennese school. The term itself, Austrian school, initially appeared in foreign publications as Scuola Austriaca, or as Austrian School of Economics. An Österreichische Schule von Volkswirten, Austrian School of Economists, was first mentioned in a newspaper article of Menger's in 1889. Shortly thereafter, this label was used in a widely read essay by Heinrich Ditzel, and finally adopted in a textbook by Schmoller's colleague Adolf Wagner, 1835-1917. Little by little, The terms Österreichische Schule or Wiener Schule became established in subsequent years. Though upheld to this day, the claim that the granting of these names was intended to be pejorative cannot be proven. Chapter 5 Karl Menger, Founder of the Austrian School Far removed from the metropolis Vienna, in the small nondescript Galician town of Neusandes, today Novi Sanj, Poland, Karl Menger was born on Friday, February 28, 1840, the third of ten children. His mother, Kaoline, came from a wealthy merchant family that had purchased the surrounding Manovi estate. His father, Anton, was the descendant of a family that had once hailed from Bohemia and held the aristocratic title of Edler von Wolfensgrün. Karl was raised in a strict Catholic family. This must have been constricting to him and his two brothers, Max, 1838-1911, and Anton, 1841-1906, who would also gain great prominence as a German liberal member of parliament and as a socialist university teacher, to the extent that all three of them later distanced themselves from the church in a drastic way, with Anton even becoming an avowed atheist. There is no proof that the Menger brothers were of Jewish descent, and, in light of the above, it is extremely unlikely. The scant biographical records passed down indicate a childhood overshadowed by extensive misfortune and suffering. Karl lost four siblings. In 1848, he lost his father as well. Dearth and hardship were the consequences. The fatherless child grew up partly in Biawa and partly on his grandparents' remote country estate, in the Dunayech River Valley, an area flooded today by the Jezoro Tsiotsiensky Reservoir. It was there that he acquired his firm knowledge of the Polish language, which he would later need as a journalist in Lemberg. After changing school several times, Karl graduated from high school in Krakow and in the fall of 1859 began studying law in Vienna, often in poor health and in difficult financial circumstances. 
he completed further studies in the more tranquil Prague. Traces of his economics teachers during that time, Leopold Hasner von Arta and Peter Mischler, 1824-1864, can be found now and again in his first work, The Grundsätze der Volkswirtschaftslehre, 1871, Principles of Economics. Fundamentally, however, there was a great distance between Menger and Mischler, with his insistent and antiquated piety. Even as a student, Karl Menger displayed a trait that would be often evident later on. He had an assertive, sometimes aggressive character, and was not readily prepared to back away from authority. Two vehement arguments with professors from his time in Prague are well known. In the course of his habilitation, he did not shy away from causing a veritable scene when challenging the senior examiner. Later, in his Irrtümer, 1884, this characteristic was expressed in a decidedly forceful and uncompromising way. Even though the Methodenstreit put him under obvious physical strain, he nevertheless had no desire to back down. In 1867, Menger obtained his Doctorate of Law at the University of Krakow. During the time of his study, he earned his living as a journalist in Nuremberg, as co-founder of the Wiener Tagblatt, as an editorial journalist of the Wiener Zeitung, and as the author of a serialized novel. After obtaining his doctorate, he worked for a short time in an attorney's office, and then once again as a freelance journalist for various newspapers in Vienna. In September of 1867, he began the preliminary work on what would later be his principles. Until 1875, he was a contributor at the press office of the Ministerratspräsidium, Ministerial Council's chair. Menger succeeded in obtaining his Habilitierung for political economy at the University of Vienna in June of 1872, after his principles were published. Just a year later, he received a non-tenured professorship. He declined subsequent offers from Karlsruhe, Basel and Zürich. In 1876, he was appointed teacher of Crown Prince Rudolf, 1858-1889, and accompanied him in 1877 and 1878 on his travels across Europe. Menger imparted the Crown Prince, who was as highly gifted as he was erratic, with a liberal appreciation of economics and a great sensitivity for social problems. In 1878 he assisted Rudolf in writing an anonymous publication wherein the Austrian aristocracy was reprehended for being passive politically and inept economically. Menger eventually gave up his own aristocratic title, which he had used in 1867 for book signing. The reason for this was possibly not only civic pride, but because of the impossibility of proving the origin of the title unequivocally, as is often the case with Galician aristocratic titles. After attaining his full professorship in 1879, Menger began training young academics, thereby creating personnel resources for the future Austrian school. He assisted with a total of 13 habilitationen and was involved in five further habilitationen in related subject areas. Menger was considered an excellent, conscientious and stimulating teacher who possessed the didactic talent to combine simplicity and clarity with philosophical depth. He sought to emphasize the practical relevancy of his lectures with the help of the latest numerical data. If students showed interest, he readily made his private library available to them, debated with them patiently, ever so often invited them to Sunday outings, 
and made efforts to introduce younger students to former members of his seminar. He maintained lifelong friendships with many of them, to which the almost complete collection of their books and special editions in his library testifies. On committees, Menger was neither a leader nor a follower. It seems he was able to make an impression with his generally complex and analytically astute contributions, but was by no means always able to persuade. He remained just as much in the minority with his suggestions regarding university reform as he did on the Inquiry Commission on Currency for the preparation of a currency reform, in which he, as one of thirty-seven experts, delivered a well-heeded statement. In 1903 he found himself in a minority position again, when he, as a member of the Inquiry Commission on Housing Tax, voiced his scepticism about the state and criticised social affairs. Perhaps this was one of the reasons why Menger, who from 1900 on was a member of the Herrenhaus, did not take part in the debates there. The Herrenhaus is the House of Lords of the Austrian Parliament. In the 1890s, after the republication of his principles had been postponed yet again, Menger began once more to pursue extensive studies in adjacent subject areas. He devoted himself to biology, physiology, mathematics, and ethnology, which resulted in his adding about 1,100 books on ethnology, anthropology, and various research expeditions to his library. As he unexpectedly took an early retirement, the aim of these endeavours, his plan to publish a work on sociology, was never achieved. A fateful turn had led to a considerable change in Menger's life. His affair with the Galician-born feature writer Hermine Andermann, 1869-1924, twenty-nine years his junior, had produced an illegitimate son, the future mathematician Karl Menger, 1902-1985. Social conventions forced him to go into early retirement in 1903 and subsequently to withdraw to a great extent from public life. Menger, now well advanced in years, remained committed to his marriage. He lived with his family at Fuchstara Gasse 12 in the 9th Municipal District of Vienna until his death on February 26, 1921. He was surrounded by his books, which in the end constituted a library of 25,000 volumes. His own publications were now only sporadic. He kept in frequent touch with his students well into old age as if they wished to demonstrate the esprit de corps of this school with this true Viennese secret, which everyone in Vienna knew but did not talk about in public, his students adhered adamantly to the version of his taking voluntary retirement for the sake of further studies. Chapter 6. Time is Money The Austrian Theory of Capital and Interest The up-and-coming Austrian school received support from abroad even during the Methodenstreit. Leon Walras mentioned already well-known supporters of the new value theory from among the Romance countries in the preface to his Théorie de la Monnaie, 1886. In English publications, the subjectivist theory of value was gaining increased acceptance as well. The fact alone that it had been discovered at almost the same time by three authors, Walras, Menger and Jevons, was considered by Böhm-Barwerk to be substantive evidence of its veracity. In contrast, Gustav Kohn, 1840-1919, an advocate of the historical school, interpreted this brisk publishing activity to mean that the discovery of the marginal utility constituted a meagre morsel that would have to be shared by a 
number of like-minded discoverers. Yet within months, the derisive phrase meagre morsel was impressively refuted. In 1889 alone, members of the Austrian school published a notable number of monographs offering productive suggestions for further development. Bernbarek, Positive Theorie des Kapitals, Positive Theory of Capital, Zuckerkandel, Zur Theorie des Preises, On the Theory of Price, Wiese, Der Natürliche Wert, Natural Value, Schulen zu Schattenhofen, Untersuchungen über Begriff und Wesen der Grundrente, Analyses of the Concept and the Essence of the Groundrent, Sachs, Neueste Fortschritte in der Nationalökonomischen Theorie, Recent Advancements in the Theory of Economics, and Komarzinski, Der Wert in der Isolierten Wirtschaft, The Value in the Isolated Economy. Bernbarek achieved the most lasting impact by far. With his positive theory, he not only laid the foundations for an Austrian theory of capital and interest, but made a critical contribution to the international reputation of the Austrian school. He became one of the most discussed and quoted economists of his time. During a seminar led by Carl Gustav Adolf Knies, 1821-1898, at the University of Heidelberg, Bernbarek, as a scholarship recipient, had already thoroughly considered the relationship between the present and the future by posing the question, why is a debtor prepared to pay the creditor interest for a loan on top of paying back the amount of the loan itself? He answered this by explaining that future goods have a lower value than present goods, and the result is a difference in value between the present and the future, between loan and repayment. Payment and return are deemed equivalent when the difference in value has been balanced by a quantitative plus, namely interest. Without specifying further, he argued that a self-induced creation of capital value would make repayment of such amounts economically feasible for a debtor. The publication of Positive Theory was preceded by a wide-ranging, virtually complete collection and appraisal of all the established theories of capital and interest. Bernbarek dealt with more than 150 authors and laid out an exemplary history of dogma, whose structure suggests that he had already put together a complete draft of positive theory. Die Geschichte und Kritik der Kapitalzinstheorien, History and Critique of Theories of Interest, 1884, would give the further development of the Austrian school direction in two ways in particular. First, Bernbarek subjected the socialist labor theories of value by Johann Karl Rodbertus, 1805-1875, and Karl Marx, 1818-1883, to a detailed and consistently deprecatory criticism, thus laying the foundation for the critique of Marxism in the Austrian school's tradition. Second, he dismissed Karl Menger's utility theory, according to which capital rent is the remuneration for the hired use of capital. Bernbarek's objection was that Menger considered a good and the disposal over goods to be two separate value repositories and would lead to an incorrect double count. This was simply the logical outcome of his definition of the term good, which differed from Menger's and which Bernbarek had already presented in his revised post-doctoral thesis. This divergence and its consequences resulted in the founder of the Austrian schools taking a detached view of its definitive theory of capital and interest throughout his life. In his positive theory, the publication of which was held up for years, 
Bombardek defined capital as a group of products destined to serve to its further production or as a group of intermediate products. Based on this notion of capital, three kinds of capital yield were conceivable. Revenue from a loan, revenue from renting out a durable good, or revenue from a production process. All three types of revenue could ultimately be explained by the subjectivist value theory. The starting point had been the observation that in general present goods were valued more highly than future goods of equal kind and number. Two reasons can be cited. First, the ratio between demand and supply varies at different points in time because personal circumstances and future expectations are constantly changing. Second, we systematically underrate our future needs as well as the means to meet them. The causes of this misjudgment are our hazy picture of the future, our weakness of will, and our consideration of the brevity and incertitude of life. Bembava concluded from all this that we look at the marginal utility of future goods diminished, as it were, in perspective, and that thus the argio on present goods moves upwards. There is a third reason for the upward pressure on this argio premium, however, which does not reside in the sphere of the consumer, but in that of the producer. According to Bembarmek, it is in the nature of capitalist production that the elementary economic productive forces, labor and land use, possibly also in combination with natural forces, are combined in such a way that consumer goods are created either directly or indirectly. As a general rule, such indirect production would also lead to a greater result in output. Thus, one could use nothing but one's hands to break stones out of a rock face, or one could first extract iron, then use it to make hammer and chisel, and then get to work. An even greater and more time-consuming form of indirect production would be to take sulfur and sodium nitrate to manufacture gunpowder, fill it into drilled holes, and thus blast out the rocks. An operation like this would increase the result in output many times over. However, this rule would only apply for a wisely chosen capitalist process. With increasing diversity in production, the additional revenue would then decrease again after a certain point. Birnbavik borrowed the concept of productive diversion and its additional revenue from a number of predecessors whose ideas he developed and formulated more stringently. Later it would turn out that John Ray, 1796-1872, a Scotsman, had emigrated to Canada and fallen into oblivion, had already preempted the positive theory on key points in 1834. Interest, according to Bernbarek, thus had psychological and productive technical causes. It also exists independently of the prevailing economic and social system. A difference in value would exist between present and future goods even in a socialist state. The interest principle can therefore in no way be conceived as exploitation because it is not a historico-legal category, but an economic category, which springs from elementary economic causes. Bombardek, who considered the basic principles of his theory of capital and interest to be unusually simple and natural, had to supplement and expand his work considerably in order to combine the subjectivist value theory with his capital theory. He thus made a clear distinction between the reasons for the origin of interest and those which were responsible for the specific interest rate. Furthermore, 
as he had combined heterogeneous intermediate products and their variously long indirect production paths under the term capital, he had to introduce the term average period. This was illustrated with a simple diagram of figures. Moreover, he adopted Stanley Jevons's concept of wage funds because the labourers involved in indirect production paths had to be supported for the duration of the production process. Finally, the subjectivist value theory had to be reconciled with the law of costs, which states that in the long term the market price of reproducible goods will equal the production costs. These and other additions meant that the basically elegant theoretical structure appeared more and more contrived and overburdened. Nevertheless, Bernbavik's positive theory had an enormous impact internationally. It was translated into English as early as 1891 and into French soon afterward. In 1892, Swedish economist Knut Wixel, 1851-1926, saw to its mathematical reformulation. By the turn of the century, Bernbavik was counted among the world's most famous and talked-about economists. A second edition was published in 1900, and it contained a heftily expanded criticism of Marx. A third was published in 1913. Both editions included excursuses in which responses were given to objections that had been raised. Finally, Friedrich von Wiese arranged for a fourth publication in 1921, a complete edition in three volumes that was to be published under the title Kapital und Kapitalzins, Capital and Interest. Menge, whose notion of capital fundamentally differed from Böhm-Bavec's, took up an extremely critical stance. In small circles he even went so far as to call Böhm-Bavec's theory one of the greatest errors ever committed. There has been much speculation as to what might have led to Menger's stern rejection. It could hardly have been Böhm-Bavec's insufficiently consistent subjectivism, as even Menger's definitions of value theory contain some residual objectivism. A distinctive dividing line, however, were their differing methodological approaches. Menger took Böhm-Bavec to task for the obvious artificiality of some of his theories. Böhm-Bavec did indeed demonstrate an almost unconcerned, pragmatic, eclectic attitude when it came to methodological questions. Characteristic of this attitude was his rejection of the use of mathematics in economics. This was not for fundamental epistemological reasons, as was the case with Menger, but because he, along with most of his faculty colleagues, utterly lacked the necessary mathematical skills. Furthermore, positive theory seems in some respects to point in the direction of modern macroeconomics. Unlike other key works of the Austrians, it contains an unmistakable tendency to create highly abstract aggregates and demonstrates a hearty propensity to quantify, albeit in the modest guise of simple forms of calculation. Bimbalek's theory was also met with reservation or even rejection by the successive generations of the Austrian school, the 28-year-old Josef R. Schumpeter, 1883-1953, developed his own dynamic theory of interest, which must have appeared to Böhm-Bavec as a defamation of middle-class economic morality and a heralding of inflationist daredevil policies. Böhm-Bavec rejected it with rare forcefulness. Schumpeter's response was accordingly subdued. In the context of Böhm-Bavec's seminars, Rudig von Mises, 1881-1973, also made the criticism that his theory of capital and interest had proceeded on the assumption of a neutrality of money. 
According to Mises, Bombavec moved far beyond his published theories by the end of his life. It was finally Emil Sachs who, in Der Kapitalzins, 1916, Interest on Capital, presented the first comprehensive critique of Bombavec and compiled all of the arguments that future authors would raise against him. Bombavec's theory of capital and interest was a chain of thought too elaborately spun out and, owing to its unevenness, unable to withstand a tensile test. Above all, Sachs believed he could prove that each of the three reasons for a value difference between present and future goods was questionable. The durable goods, fixed capital, as such, could not yield any interest. But the term average roundabout production process, durchschnittlicher Produktionsumweg, was too indeterminate, and that the positive theory did not account for compound interest. Thus, Der Kapitalzins documented just another step in the drifting apart of the Austrian school at the height of its international eminence. External events, such as Menger's permanent withdrawal from university activity, Bombavec's death in 1914, and the outbreak of the war, however, scarcely allowed this internal split to come to the surface. In the last analysis, no economist of note agreed with Bombavec on every point, but for decades his work continued to have an unusually inspiring and fruitful impact. Among the representatives of the Austrian school, Bombavec was always revered as one of the greats. The generation of academics who came after the First World War felt compelled to qualify his work and make manifold changes or other shifts in emphasis. But this did little or no harm to the remarkable fascination with which Bombavec's theory of capital and interest is treated to this very day. This undiminished appeal might be due to the fact that Bombavec's monumental theory reveals a glimpse of the hidden logic or the grammar of economic phenomena. Chapter 7 Friedrich von Wieser From Economist to Social Scientist his tall, lean and slightly stooping appearance, his narrow bearded face, his blue eyes and his hair, whitened with age, always made a lasting impression on students and listeners. As a lecturer he spoke calmly and at a leisurely pace, without notes, and expressed himself in classical style. His admirers classed him among the greatest stylists of academic prose. In the culturally aware cities of Prague and Vienna, he was regarded as a connoisseur of art and good music, who would sometimes sit down at the piano himself to give society a sample of his ability. Even in his lectures, Friedrich von Wieser, whose stature and demeanour singled distance and aloofness, rarely tolerated questions and interruptions. A student who wished to have personal contact with him would have to pose some interesting questions. If this met with success, he dominated the conversation in truly royal fashion. The born thinker avoided disputing other people's writings and ideas directly. Managing without footnotes and bibliographies in his publications, Wieser spoke and wrote on the results of his own intense observations above all. One would think, not infrequently, he was witnessing the escapist in a monologue of a brooding mind. Come the end of his academic career, like a learned narcissist, whose cognitive paths circled around his own ego, Wieser's reflections on his own intellectual development took up only slightly less space than all of his references to other authors put together. 
Friedrich von Wieser was born in Vienna in 1851, the fourth of nine children. His father, Leopold, was initially the director of supplies in the war ministry and later vice president of the audit office. He was knighted in 1859. Friedrich attended the Viennese Schottengymnasium at the same time as the young Eugen von Böhm-Bawe. The Schottengymnasium, an institute for secondary education at the Benedictine Monastery, Schottenkloster, was founded by imperial decree in 1807. This would result in a lifelong bond between the two, and later Böhm-Bawerg would marry Friedrich von Wieser's sister Paula. Coming to grips with Roman law while studying law at the University of Vienna introduced him to the problems of economics, the writings of the English sociologist Herbert Spencer, 1820-1903, directed his attention to the great impersonal forces of human society. But only upon reading Menger's principles did he find the perspective he was looking for, one he would perceive later in life as liberation from cognitive distress. After finishing his doctorate in 1875, Wieser was able, as a result of Karl Menger's mediation, to gain a scholarship and hone his expertise under the great minds of economics in Heidelberg, Leipzig, and Jena. Thereafter, he spent a number of years in the State Finance Authority of Lower Austria, until he presented his Habilitation thesis Über den Ursprung und die Hauptgesetze des wirtschaftlichen Wirtes, 1884, on the origin and main laws of economic value. Going further than Karl Menger and William Stanley Jevons, he interpreted cost as foregone use or as opportunity costs, and introduced the term Grenznutzen, marginal utility, to economics. Wieser's first publication met with little response outside Vienna. Nevertheless, in 1884 he received, as Emil Sachs had before him, a non-tenured professorship in Prague. Due to national disputes, the local university had just been split into a German and a Czech university. But Wieser was able to quickly settle into the small-scale structures of the Deutsche Universität, which only had twelve university lecturers, and 572 students. In 1886, he married the daughter of a Prague architect. The marriage would remain childless. Wieser finally earned a tenured professorship with the publication of Der Natürliche Wert, 1889, Natural Value. In this work, he applied the marginal utility theory not only horizontally, that is, to trading and exchange, but also vertically, that is, to production processes. He defined the value of higher-order goods, productive goods, in light of the value of the consumer goods produced alongside them, thus developing his imputation theory. Wieser, who possessed a certain obsession with compulsive computability, is recognized as one of the first economists to realize the information value of prices. His analysis of economic processes was soon considered a kind of standard model of the Austrian school. It was presented comprehensively for the first time in Theorie der Gesellschaftlichen Wirtschaft, 1914, Social Economics. Wieser's notion of an economic equilibrium, which he conceived as an image of reality, ran distinctly counter to the principal ideas of Menger and Böhm-Bawerk. Looking back to Wieser, Ludwig von Mises would later explain that without market activities, the subjective valuations of the market participants could not be transformed into prices. In the 1890s, Wieser revealed a measured German nationalist position 
when he published several economic, historical, and statistical analyses of the crown lands, Bohemia and Moravia. As president of the Deutsche Gesellschaft für Kunst und Literatur, German Society for Art and Literature, he played an important role in the cultural life of Prague. He was even elected president of the Deutsche Universität Prague in 1901. Despite all of this, Wieser seized the longed-for chance of returning to the beloved homeland after Menger's withdrawal from his Viennese professorship. He participated actively in cultural life in Vienna too. His house in Döbling became a treasured meeting place for artists, politicians and academics. Döbling is a former suburb of Vienna, incorporated into the town in 1892. Even early on, he had given composers like Hugo Wolf and Anton Bruckner considerable encouragement in their work. After the turn of the century, having written quite a few works on monetary theory, Wieser turned more and more to sociological questions. In his Theorie der Gesellschaftlichen Wirtschaft, 1914, although remaining formally within the boundaries of methodological individualism, he nevertheless created an image of the individual which was more like a feeble caricature than a self-determining and rebellious actor, as described by Karl Menger. Wieser saw people as thoroughly tamed creatures. Even the sense of self is bred by the forces of society and is thus oriented in a way which is no longer purely personal. Egoism is thus nothing more than a selfishness of powerlessness. The First World War erupted only a few weeks after his Theorie was published. He was one of the very few Austrians to write several pieces that were moderate in tone, but nevertheless decidedly in favour of war. At the height of the war and transition economy, old Austria's experiment with central planning, the convinced statist Friedrich von Wieser became a member of the Herrenhaus. In the three last governments of 1917 to 1918, he held the office of Minister of Trade, and for a while also the office of Minister of Public Works. The disintegration of the monarchy hit the staunch German-Austrian particularly hard. After retiring from his lecturing duties in 1922, Wieser lived partly in seclusion in Vienna and partly in his summer residence in Brunnwinkel by the Wolfgangsee. Today Brunnwinkel is a part of St. Gilgen at the lake Wolfgangsee in Salzburg, Austria. He put together his work on sociology and political science in his magnum opus Gesetz der Macht, 1926, The Law of Power. In a rather disjointed manner, according to Menzel, appraised differently by Morgenstern, he presented a medley of comments, clever observations and sociological and historical analyses. On the other hand, Wieser here showed too many character traits of a nebulous mind. Anti-Semitic statements and an abstract Führerkult can also be found in the book, as well as sources indicating the contrary. Wieser was later labelled a fascist for this reason. Führerkult roughly translates as leader worship or literally leader cult. Wieser died in July of 1926 at his summer residence after contracting pneumonia. During his time in Vienna alone, the sophisticated, cultivated teacher had educated an estimated 15,000 male law graduates and, starting in 1919, female law graduates as well in economics. Apart from this, he left no mark worth mentioning, neither as a minister nor as a sociologist. As doyen of the Austrian school, he paved the way for his replacement Hans Meyer, who was, however, not capable of following in the steps of his great predecessor. 
as an economist, Visa built upon a strongly qualified subjectivism. His value calculation failed due to his notion of imputation. The following generations of the Vienna school would largely consider him not a part of their camp, but rather as belonging to the Lausanne school, which can be traced back to Léon Valras. Chapter 8 Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk Economist, Minister, Aristocrat In Austria, hardly any other economist has achieved the same kind of fame as Böhm-Bawerk, and with no other have such wide sections of the population come into contact. Admittedly, in an altogether trivial sense, his portrait adorned the hundred-shilling note that was in circulation from 1984 to 2001. Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk was in many respects considered an exception in professional circles too. He was one of the most quoted economists of his time, and an excellent reputation internationally, taught on the largest law faculty in the world, and more than once occupied the office of finance minister of a major European power. Along with Karl Menger and Friedrich von Wieser, he constituted the founding triumvirate of the Austrian school. Economist Ewald Schams, a former military officer, recalled a glorious campaign, characterized by harmonious cooperation and downright tactical unity. Menger had declared the fundamental principle, Wieser had provided the factual structure, and Böhm-Bawerk had taken on the duty to fight. He was the fighter in the cause of modern theory. The third of four children, Eugen Böhm, was born in Brünn in 1851. His father was knighted as Ritter von Bawerk in 1854 while vice-president of the Moravian governorship. Upon his father's early death, Eugen, only six years old, moved with his mother to Vienna. As mentioned in the previous chapter, he met Friedrich von Wieser, with whom he would develop a lifelong friendship while attending the Viennese Schottengymnasium. The two friends always sought to outdo each other in school and later graduated at the same time with degrees in law. After his graduation, Böhm-Bawerk joined the Lower Austrian Finance Department. With the help of Karl Menger, the two friends received two-year stipends to study at the universities of Heidelberg, Leipzig and Jena in 1875. In Heidelberg, Böhm-Bawerk dealt for the first time in a seminar paper with the subject that would occupy him for the rest of his life, the relationship in economics between the present and the future. One year later, he put the prototype of his later agio theory into writing. Upon his return to Vienna, he continued working in the finance department and was the first of Karl Menger's students to receive his Habilitation for Rechte und Verhältnisse vom Standpunkt der Volkswirtschaftlichen Güterlehre, 1881. In the same year, the young lecturer and civil servant married his friend's sister, Baroness Paula von Wieser. The marriage, described as harmonious, remained childless. In 1882, Böhm-Bawerk was entrusted with teaching a course in economics at the University of Innsbruck. Compared with Vienna, then the world's fifth-largest city, the University of Innsbruck, having the smallest law faculty in the Austrian monarchy with few more than 200 students and 16 lecturers, did not appear as a particularly attractive career step. Sentenced to Chernowitz, pardoned to Innsbruck, is an adage handed down to this day in university circles in Vienna. Nonetheless, the Innsbruck years were the happiest time of his life for the glowing Tyrol enthusiast. Before long, he was appointed to a non-tenured and, in 1884, to a tenured professorship. 
That same year saw the publication of Geschichte und Kritik der Kapitalzinstheorie, History and Critique of Interest Theory, Volume 1 of Capital and Interest, in which he dissected practically all theories of capital interest with tremendous rigor and astuteness. Though announced, the second volume was delayed, one reason being Birnbarbeck's election to Dean of Faculty. Another was that combining the theory of subjective value with his theory of capital proved to be rather difficult. As a kind of preliminary study, he published a two-part essay about the theory of subjective value in Konrad's Jahrbücher in 1886. This would be modified slightly and included in the already promised second volume, The Positive Theorie des Kapitals, 1889. With this easy-to-read and polished presentation, Böhm-Barbeck was able to distinguish himself as a sword of the new direction and made a crucial contribution to the further promulgation of the Austrian school. The two volumes, Geschichte und Kritik der Kapitalzinstheorie and Positive Theorie des Kapitals, published several times under the single title Kapital und Kapitalzins, were translated into English and established Böhm-Barbeck's international reputation. This was boosted even more by lively controversies and polemics Böhm-Barbeck fought on four academic fronts simultaneously, against the historical school's aversion to theory, against the Marxist exploitation theory, against the various cost-value theories, and against the efforts some were making to show that the Austrian school took no socio-political responsibility. Böhm-Barbeck's attempt to return to a professorship in Vienna and to be the successor of either Lorenz von Stein or Luyo Brentano were in vain. He finally took a post in the finance ministry, which at that time managed with a staff of just 121 civil servants and 67 supporting staff. One of his first tasks was to revive the abandoned preparations for a comprehensive tax reform. Böhm-Barbeck remained a civil servant up until 1904. Three times he was finance minister, 1895, from 1897 to 1898, and from 1900 to 1904. And in 1899, he was awarded a lifelong membership of the Herrenhaus. Apart from working on the tax reform of 1886, in the course of which a progressive income tax of no more than 5% was introduced, he also succeeded in reducing the government's interest burden by converting public debt. A balanced budget was of particular importance to Bembarek because he believed it was the only thing that would secure the stability of monetary value. He did not shy away from using all the tricks of an experienced bureaucrat to block status-seeking, politically-motivated projects that lacked secure funding, such as a shipping canal network for the whole of the monarchy. His maxim was that a finance minister should always be prepared to resign, but at the same time should always behave as if his desire was never to resign. He resigned from the post permanently in 1904, when excessive demands from the military finally threatened to strain the budget. In addition to his work in administration, Böhm-Barbeck devoted two hours a day to research and maintained close ties with the University of Vienna, initially as an examiner and, after 1891, as an honorary professor. In 1892, he contributed to the founding of the magazine Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung. Journal of Economics, Social Policy and Administration, and also played an important and integral role in the Gesellschaft Österreichischer Volkswirte. After resigning as minister for the third time, he accepted a professorship which had been specially created for him. 
Brimbavec's lectures were masterpieces, thanks both to his systematic clarity throughout and to his calm, considered, and one might say intellectually buoyant presentation. Among those who later met in his seminar, in which an unusually open discussion ethos was prevalent, were such eminent names as Ludwig von Mises, Franz Weiss, Richard von Striegel, Felix Zomari, Emil Lederer, Rudolf Hilferding, Otto Bauer, Nikolai Bukharin, or Josef Schumpeter. All in all, Böhm Barwerk came across as a somewhat formal but warm-hearted and empathetic person, the political economist in the true sense of the word, who from 1911 onward acted as president of the Kaiserliche Akademie der Wissenschaften, Imperial Academy of Sciences, died at the age of 63 while on vacation in Kramsach in the state of Tyrol in August of 1914. Chapter 9. Emil Sachs, the recluse from Voloska. Within the ranks of the Austrian school, Emil Sachs occupied an original, but now largely forgotten, position. Just a few years younger than Karl Menger, he was, at the start of his economic research, more of a competitor of Menger than a fellow campaigner, and only began supporting and further developing methodological individualism and the subjective theory of value after becoming a professor in Prague. He distanced himself from the Austrian school yet again a few years thereafter. Disappointed, he retired from university life. But after a quiet period lasting almost twenty years, he resumed his research and, in the last decade of his life, became an unusually prolific author. Emil Sachs was born in 1845 into a family of cloth manufacturers and civil servants from Javornik Jonski previously Javornik Johannesburg in East Silesia, today the Czech Republic. His father died a few months after his birth. The young Emil studied in Vienna, gained a doctorate of law, and worked initially as secretary of the Austrian Commission at the World Exhibition in Paris, and as a trainee legal officer at the Viennese Chamber of Commerce. In 1870, Sachs began teaching economics at the Polytechnisches Institut in Vienna, the precursor of the Technische Hochschule, Institute of Technology. An abridged version of his very first lecture, a theoretical foundation of railroad economics, was published in 1871. The renowned railway expert subsequently took over the post of secretary to the director of the Kaiser Ferdinand Nordbahn Railroad, and in 1874 received his habilitation in economics and finance from Lorenz von Stein. In 1879, the academic staff of the University of Vienna had unanimously voted upon a tenured professorship for Menger and a non-tenured professorship for Sachs. The Ministry for Education complied with the proposal in Menger's case, but Sachs, who had just published his two-volume work for Kehrsmittel, in der Volks- und Staatswirtschaft, 1878-1879, means of transport in economics and state economy, accepted his non-tenured professorship in distant Prague, where he became fully tenured one year later. At the end of the 1880s, he was elected dean and later president of the German University of Prague. At the beginning of his university career, Sachs, also a member of the Deutsche Liberale Partei, became an elected representative in the House of Deputies of the Imperial Council for the Constituency of Tropau, present-day Opava, Czech Republic, a mandate he carried out until 1885. The Deutsch-Liberale Partei is literally the German Liberal Party. It favoured classical liberal economic policies, advocated the unification of the German-speaking countries into one nation-state, 
and demanded a strict separation of church and state. In his role as politician he warned of the dangerous consequences of national strife and of the great political dangers it posed for the Austrian monarchy. Sachs joined Menger's circle early on, and was one of the first to support him in the Methodenstreit. Yet, from the start he developed a clearly autonomous position, which he presented in one of his main works, The Grundlegung der Theoretischen Staatswirtschaft, 1887, Foundations of Theoretical State Economy. In Sachs's opinion, the subjectivist theory of value embodies a kind of natural law, as an apple falls from a tree and the stars move according to the laws of gravity, one Robinson Crusoe and an empire of one hundred million obey the same law of value when it comes to economic activity. According to Zuck's claim, the driving forces of humanity were egoism, mutualism, and altruism. Human needs were the most important basic concept of economics. Zuck's drew a distinction between collective needs and individual needs, and, correspondingly, between a state economy and a private economy. Both were intertwined, however, on account of the law of value. Value controls and guides human relations toward the multifariousness of goods at large. It therefore also guides relations between people who are dependent on the rapports between goods. Value would thus result not only from the relationship of humans to the world of goods, but would also be a fruit of social coexistence. While the theory of value was developed within the Austrian school into a logic of values, Zucks pursued mainly psychological considerations, talked about valuation or feeling of value, and regarded value theory as applied psychology. This resulted, therefore, in significant differences within the mainstream of the Austrian school. Unlike Birnbalek, Zucks did not consider labor to be an economic good. He rejected Wieser's imputation theory and saw interest as being a result of the barter economy and not as an economic category. For Zucks, Bimbarek's theory of interest was weak and irreconcilable with the imputation theory. Finally, he also disagreed with the tax theory of the renowned and acknowledged expert of the school, Robert Meyer, 1855-1914, whom he accused of a lack of precision in scientific thinking. When the second professorship in Vienna next to Mengers became vacant once again, and Eugen von Filipowitz was appointed, Sachs had to acknowledge that his aspiration of returning to the University of Vienna would long be postponed. It was obvious that his work was not getting the recognition he had expected. Bitterly disappointed, he went into early retirement. Until the time of his death he lived with his wife in a remote house, with a view of the sea in Voloska, a small fishing village in Istria, a peninsula at the head of the Adriatic, today shared by Croatia, Slovenia, and Italy. With a resigned distance toward life, he looked for solitude as if contemplation were his greatest need. After a work hiatus of more than twenty years, during which there were only a few and insignificant interruptions, Zaks began to publish a new series of books, something almost sublime in light of events of the time like war and its miserable aftermath. Der Kapital Zins, 1916, Capital Interest, the second edition of his monumental three-volume Verkehrsmittel in Volks- und Staatswirtschaft, 1918-1922, and a lengthier contribution to Wertungstheorie der Steuer, 1924, the valuation theory of taxes. Emil Sachs lived to see his tax theory and his theory of public economy come to bear fruit, 
particularly in Sweden and Italy. Already an Italian citizen, he received an honorary doctorate from the University of Cologne in 1926. He was soon forgotten in the countries that emerged after the collapse of the Austrian monarchy, an event that affected him greatly. But on account of its originality, astuteness and profundity, his complex, comprehensive and sophisticated work, though difficult to cope with linguistically, still fascinates today. Chapter 10. Further Students of Menger and Other Supporters With only a few exceptions, the old Austrian school was made up of members who had studied under Karl Menger directly. Eugen von Möhm-Barberg and Friedrich von Wiese received their Habilitation from Menger, although they had not studied under him. Hermann von Schulen zu Schaddenhofen studied under Böhm-Barberg and received his Habilitation from him. Having independently arrived at an understanding of value theory and methodology similar to Menger's, Emil Sachs was the only one already to have had teaching qualifications. In his retirement application to the Ministry for Education in 1903, Menger listed all the postdoctoral students he had supervised. The only one missing was Gustav Gross. Robert Meyer, 1855-1914, Habilitation in 1884. After studying law in Vienna and Berlin, the native Viennese pursued an exemplary career as a civil servant in finance administration, where he reached the position of Sektionschef, that is, head of directorate, the highest civil service rank within an Austrian ministry. In 1910, he was made president of the Statische Zentralkommission, Central Commission for Statistics, and for a short time, finance minister. After that, he went into retirement, a year later, he was again asked to be president of the Statische Zentralkommission and retained this office until his death. As an expert on finance, whose teaching qualification was extended in 1887 to include political economy, Robert Meyer lectured at the University of Vienna and at other Viennese educational institutions. In his Habilitation Treatise, the subjectivist value theoretician justified progressive taxation, which he, as a senior civil servant, and along with Böhm-Barbeck, was actually able to implement during the reform of direct personal taxation. From 1911 onward, he served as co-publisher of the journal Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung, Journal of Economics, Social Policy and Administration. He was a champion of full-blown statism on social and economic policy matters. Gustav Gross, 1856-1935, Habilitation 1884. Originally from Reichenberg, today Liberetz, Czech Republic, Gustav Gross was the son of a railway director. After studying law in Vienna and Berlin and working at the governorship of Lower Austria, he received his Habilitation with a thesis on economist Johann Heinrich von Thunen, 1783-1850. Gross who published a treatise on business profits and the first academic biography of Karl Marx, among other things, devoted himself primarily in later years to social and taxation questions. From 1889 onward, he was a representative of the Deutsche Fortschrittspartei, literally German Progressive Party. Gross, who considered himself part of a tradition established by Albert Friedrich Eberhard Schäffler and Adolf Wagner, was not mentioned in the list of Habilitation students Menger compiled when he became a professor emeritus. In what he called the public sector, Gemeinwirtschaft, of the state economy, Gross saw laws at work 
that differed fundamentally from those in the private sector, and he supported Wagner's thesis concerning the steady expansion of the state's functions, which were, in his view, limited only by the family in the long term. What Richard S. Howey otherwise wrongly said of the less well-known Austrians, namely that they hardly wrote anything or nothing at all about the theory of marginal utility, applies to Gross. Gross taught as an unsalaried lecturer at the University of Vienna until 1897, and finally as an untenured professor. He was elected the last president of the monarchy's House of Representatives, when the war economy had fully expanded into central bureaucratic planning to at the end of the First World War. Eugen Filipovitz von Philipsberg, 1858-1917, Habilitation, 1884. The descendant of an Austro-Bosnian family of officers, Filipovitz grew up with only one parent still living, graduated from the Theresianium Academy, and studied law in Vienna. After periods of study in Berlin and London, he received his habilitation for research on the Bank of England. After a non-tenured and later a tenured professorship at the University of Freiburg, Filipovitz, who was only thirty-five years old at the time, was offered a position in Vienna. He was aligned to the historical ethical school on economic policy, having already strongly oriented himself toward Menger's ideas on methodological and value-theoretical questions during his time in Freiburg. In 1896, as a member of the Viennese Fabian Society, a circle of those advocating ambitious social policy aims, he became a co-founder of the Sozialpolitische Partei, socio-political party. He served for one term as one of its four representatives in the Niederösterreichische Landtag, the regional parliament of Lower Austria, of which the city of Vienna was a part. A subtle academic, he was not apt at defending himself against the polemics and rude attacks of his political opponents. In 1905, Filipovic became president of the University of Vienna. In 1909, he became a member of the Herrenhaus, the House of Lords of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. Correspondingly important was his role as promoter of the Austrian school, which he actively advanced with his successful textbook Grundriss der politischen Ökonomie, 1893, Compendium of Political Economy. For many years, he acted as chairman of the Gesellschaft der österreichischen Volkswirte, and from 1904 to 1917, he was co-publisher of the journal Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung, Journal of Economics, Social Policy and Administration. Victor Martaya, 1857-1934, Habilitation 1884. After a commercial apprenticeship and law studies in Vienna, Martaya, who was working for the Vienna Chamber of Commerce at the time, received the Habilitation for a thesis on ground rent and business profits. Among his diverse publications, one work in particular stands out, his trailblazing Recht des Schadenersatzes vom Standpunkt der Nationalökonomie, 1889, Indemnity Rights from the Viewpoint of Economics, which prepared the way for the modern economic analysis of law on the basis of the theory of marginal utility. In 1890, Mataya became an untenured, and two years later as Böhm-Bawerk's successor, a tenured professor at the University of Innsbruck. Later that same year, however, he returned to Vienna to establish a department for trade statistics and labor statistics in the Ministry for Trade. In later years, he was one of the first in the German-speaking world to deal with the nature of advertising and with Die Reklame, 1910-1926, advertising 
created the seminal document of the modern science of advertising. To at the end of his life, he published a textbook for economic policy, Lehrbuch für Volkswirtschaftspolitik, 1931, textbook of economic policy, which included some of his own contributions. Mattia was a bureaucrat through and through. He was first a head of directorate, twice a minister of trade, 1909 and 1911, and finally president of the Staatische Zentralkommission from 1914 to 1917 and from 1919 to 1922. By the end of the war, he had served in turn as minister of trade, minister without portfolio, and minister for social welfare, the first in an industrialized European nation. His statistical work made this versatile and original thinker a valued partner for representatives of employers and employees. The third camp appreciated his German-Austrian centralism. Of all things, it was thus that a representative of the Austrian school created the core of what would later become industrial relations. Matthias' career enriched us with the remarkable insight that welfare and warfare can easily derive from the same doctrine of the state. Robert Zuckerkandl, 1856-1926, Habilitation 1886 The son of a Jewish family from Gyur, Raab, Hungary. Robert Zuckerkandl received his Habilitation from Karl Menger after finishing his law degree. Prior to his accreditation as Hof- und Gerichtsadvokat in Vienna, he published Zu Theorie des Preises, 1889, on the theory of price, his only monograph on doctrinal history. A Hof- und Gerichtsadvokat is a trained lawyer who is admitted to the bar as well as legitimated to act for his clients with the governmental authorities and the imperial court. In 1894, he became Emil Sachs's successor as an untenured professor alongside Friedrich von Wiese at the Deutsche Universität Prague and received his tenured professorship in 1896. Zuckerkandl's teachings, his main work, and other published articles contributed significantly to the dissemination of Austrian school ideas. Johann von Komodzinski, 1843-1911, Habilitation 1890. At the age of 26, Johann von Komodzinski was reputedly only unable to accept an appointment at the University of Vienna because of external circumstances. After working successfully as a Hof- und Gerichtsadvokat for over 20 years, Komodzinski became the founder and president of the Wiener Advokatenklub, Viennese Lawyers Club. He received his habilitation for a paper on value theory, linking it to an earlier effort on the same subject. In his later works, he resolutely opposed von Thunen's wage theory and Marx in particular. The Nationalökonomische Lehre vom Kredit, 1903, the doctrine of credit in political economy, which he published in the last decade of his life, was rejected by the Austrian school as it was incompatible with Wieser's imputation theory and Böhm-Bawerk's theory of interest. Hermann von Schulern zu Schrattenhofen, 1861-1931, Habilitation, 1889-1892-1895. In 1889, after having practiced law, Hermann von Schulern zu Schrattenhofen, a born Tyrolese, received the Venia Legendi to teach economics at Innsbruck. A successful habilitation requires that the candidate be officially given the Venia Legendi, Latin for permission for lecturing, or the Ius Docendi, right of teaching, a specific academic subject at universities for a lifetime. 
In 1892, this permission was carried over to the University of Vienna, where in 1895 it was extended to the teaching of all aspects of political economy. He subsequently worked in the Statische Zentralkommission, Central Commission for Statistics in Vienna, and in 1899 held professorships for economics at the Technische Hochschule, University of Technology, the Hochschule für Bodenkultur, today University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences, and from 1915 on at the University of Innsbruck. From 1903 to 1905, he held the office of president at the Hochschule für Bodenkultur in Vienna, and from 1922 to 1925, that of president at the University of Innsbruck. In later years, Schulen zu Schattenhofen, who in his youth had still vehemently advocated the theory of marginal utility, turned to agricultural policy and history. His easy-to-read economics textbook, Grundzüge der Volkswirtschaftslehre, 1911, Main Features of Economics, is founded on the subjectivist theory of value. Julius Landesberger, 1865-1920, Habilitation, 1895. He completed his law studies at the University of Vienna in 1889 with a doctorate for which he received the highest distinction, Subauspecies Imperatoris. This was a rare honorary title, awarded when a doctor's degree was acquired with extraordinary distinction. Self-assured, he published his doctoral address right away, followed up by going into attorneyship, and over time published a number of articles on monetary and currency policy. After his habilitation, Landesberger became a sought-after business attorney with expert knowledge in antitrust law. After being bestowed with the title von Antburg in 1906, He was appointed to the General Council of the Anglo-Österreichische Bank, where he rose to the position of president. At the German Juristentag, a convention of lawyers of 1902, borrowing the English word concern, he coined the term Konzern, which in German is used to this day. Eugen Peter Schwedland, 1863-1936, Habilitation 1895. Schwedland came from a scholarly Protestant family in Budapest and studied law in Vienna. After some years of having worked as a lawyer, he taught economics and economic policy at the Technologisches Gewerbemuseum from 1890 on and eventually received his habilitation from the University of Vienna. The Technologisches Gewerbemuseum was a well-known school for higher education, college, focused on the promotion of science and industry. In 1902, he was made an untenured professor at the university, and in 1904, a tenured professor at the Technische Hochschule. From 1908 to 1921, he functioned as a high-ranking advisor in the Ministry of Public Works and in the General Commission for War Economy and Transition Economy. In his easily readable textbooks, he described the subjectivist value theory as the psychological foundation of the economy. He kept his distance from Menger. Both personally and intellectually, after the First World War, Schwedland shifted to its romantic organic economics. Siegmund Feilbogen, 1858-1928, Habilitation 1895. The son of a Moravian rabbi family, Siegmund Feilbogen completed his law degree in Vienna and, in the early 1890s, made a name for himself with several works on Adam Smith, Jacques Turgot, and David Hume. In 1895, he received his habilitation from the University of Vienna, and subsequently taught economics 
at the Viennese Export Academy. Founded in 1898 in order to provide professional training to future businessmen, in the import and export business in particular, it became today's Vienna University of Economics and Business, the largest university focusing on business and economics in Europe in terms of enrollment. Initially, Feilbogen also supported the Zionist movement. A peculiar story ended his career abruptly. On April 9, 1908, Feilbogen, along with his wife and sister-in-law, attended an Easter Mass celebrated by Pope Pius X in Rome. Witnesses apparently observed Feilborgen disposing of the consecrated host in a handkerchief. This incident became widely known. Feilborgen's assurances and avowals of respect for the Catholic Church fell on deaf ears in a Vienna turned noticeably anti-Semitic. He was subsequently dismissed from his position as teacher at the Export Academy. Isolated, and virtually ostracized, he continued to teach to the smallest of audiences at the University of Vienna. Rudolf Sieghardt, 1866-1934, Habilitation 1900 A rabbi's son from Tropau, present-day Opava, Czech Republic, Rudolf Sieghardt, with only one parent living, had to pay to study law in Vienna himself. In 1895 he converted to Catholicism, married the daughter of Karl Samuel Grünhut, 1844-1929, a professor for trade law at the University of Vienna, and joined the finance ministry. With his treatise on public gambling, the Öffentlichen Glückspiel, 1899, Sieghardt earned his Habilitation and subsequently went into politics. As the closest associate of Prime Minister Kerber, 1850-1919, he played a powerful and sometimes controversial role, particularly in regard to personnel decisions concerning top-level positions in the bureaucracy. In 1912, he became a member of the Herrenhaus and, as governor of the Bodenkreditanstalt, with its associated industrial concerns and newspapers, remained an influential leader in the business world, well on into the First Austrian Republic. Richard Schuller, 1870-1972 Habilitation 1903. Karl Menger's favorite pupil and last postdoctoral student, Richard Schiller, came from a Jewish family in Brünn. Because his parents' company had gone bankrupt, he had to pay for nearly all of his university education himself. With his first work, the Klassische Nationalökonomie und ihre Gegner, 1895, Classical Economics and its Enemies, Schiller demonstrated once more the fighting spirit of the Methodenstreit. With Schutzzoll und Freihandel, 1905, Protective Tariff and Free Trade, he at last received his Habilitation and was thus the first of the Austrian school to venture into the terrain of foreign trade policy. As an untenured professor, he published two noteworthy contributions on workforce demand and on the employment market. After Menger's death, he supported the publication of the second edition of The Principles with a very personal forward. Schiller made his career in the Ministry of Trade. He was promoted to the position of Sektionschef shortly before the abdication of Emperor Karl I. States and monarchs may be transient, but once obtained, the legal status of an Austrian civil servant is not. Schiller remained in this position until his retirement and contributed significantly to the foreign trade policy of the First Austrian Republic. He lectured at the University of Vienna up until 1928, and from 1930 to 1937 
was co-publisher of the Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie, Journal of Economics. Nevertheless, he distanced himself noticeably from the Austrian school. Schuller was forced to emigrate to the USA in 1940, where he continued teaching until 1952. Statisticians and Economists of Public Finance Menger routinely assisted with Habilitierungen in areas related to his field of expertise, as with the commercial law specialist Karl Adler, 1865-1924, Habilitation in 1893, the public finance economist Gustav Seidler, 1858-1933, Habilitation in 1883, and the statisticians and public finance economists Isidor Singer, 1857-1927, Habilitation in 1885, Ernst Mischler, 1857-1912, Habilitation 1885 in Prague, 1887 in Vienna, and Ignaz Gruber, 1842-1919, Habilitation in 1893. These practitioners and university lecturers had no direct influence on the teaching body of the Austrian school, but they shaped the intellectual milieu of the Austrian school inasmuch as they reinforced proximity to the state bureaucracy. Since each of his postdoctoral students was required to spend some years in actual administration, Menger himself had promoted institutional closeness between political economy and state bureaucracy. Students of Menger as contributors to professional journals. In the 1880s and 1890s, Karl Menger also brought people into his seminar who had graduated and were already employed and interested in economics. Many of them later played a part in disseminating the teachings of the Austrian school by publishing articles in professional journals. One of the most outstanding of these students was the Hungarian-born Julius Friedrich Ganz von Ludasi, 1858-1922, who was editor of various papers, regularly reviewed economics books and himself wrote an impressive methodological work of over 1,000 pages called Die Wirtschaftliche Energie, 1893, The Economic Energy. Noteworthy are his early criticisms of the mechanical image of Homo economicus and his conclusion that economics is the science of action. Ludwig von Mises, without ever referring to Ludasi explicitly, would further develop this action-oriented approach five decades later. Another professional editor from the milieu of Menger Circle was the native-born Czech Franz Kuhl, 1862-1914, who, like Ludasi, is largely forgotten today. The lawyer and royal imperial government councillor in Vienna constructed one of the first mechanical calculators and published an extensive work on needs in which he defined 29 categories of needs, with altogether 73 further subcategories. In his biography of Menger, Friedrich A. von Hayek identified a further group of Menger students. Only the following, however, as publishers of professional journals are mentioned here. Moritz Dup, 1865-1928, who from 1891 was the editor for economics at the Neue Freie Presse. Richard Reich, 1866-1938, a finance lawyer with habilitation, who in the First Austrian Republic was the president of the Austrian National Bank, Markus Ettinger, attorney for cartel, competition and economic administration law, and the first to predict the failure of any centrally planned economy on grounds that only the market price is a reliable regulator. Wilhelm Rosenberg, 1869-1923, lawyer and expert on banking and finance, who was credited with stabilizing the currency after the First World War. Hermann Schwarzwald, 
1871-1939, highest-ranking civil servant in the Ministry of Finance and author of several articles on currency and economic policy, and Ernst Zeidler, 1862-1931, who applied the principle of marginal utility to the sentencing of criminals in a groundbreaking paper. As professor for public law, he tutored the heir to the throne, Karl, and in 1917 became minister and subsequently prime minister, or rather, the last chairman of the monarch's cabinet. Others mentioned by Hayek either never published anything of significance, were no longer grounded in the Austrian school, or were successful as scientists in other areas, such as Christian Richard Thurnwald, 1869-1954, who devoted himself to ethnology permanently. Chapter 11. Money Makes the World Go Round. The Monetary Theory of the Business Cycle. In his debut work, The Principles of Economics, Menger considered whether money developed without any agreement, without legislative compulsion. Chapter 11. Money Makes the World Go Round. The Monetary Theory of the Business Cycle. And even without regard to the public interest. Accordingly, money had a natural origin and is not an invention of the state. Even the sanction of political authority is not necessary for its existence. Menger did not move beyond this original explanation. Later economists ascertained that determining the value of money with the principle of marginal utility led to a circular argument, as the exchange value of money determines the demand for money, but the demand itself is in turn dependent on the value of money, a young Viennese economist is reminded of the everlasting circle in a Viennese song in which gaiety comes from merriness and merriness is in turn derived from gaiety. During his inaugural lecture in 1903 at the University of Vienna, Friedrich von Wieser tried to explain the phenomenon of rising prices using the theory of marginal utility for the first time. Wieser emphasized that growing incomes lead to decreasing marginal utility, to lower exchange values, and finally to increased prices. Because increases in income result from the steady expansion of monetary economy at the expense of the household economy, a rise in prices would thus be nothing but a necessary developmental syndrome of the spreading monetary economy. Wieser's income theory of money found few adherents, and changed little in the way of the older Austrian school's abstinence from monetary theory. But things changed abruptly, with the sensation caused by the Staatliche Theorie des Geldes, 1905, literally public theory of money, the work of Georg Friedrich Knapp, 1842-1926 of Strasbourg, a statistician and agrarian economist of the historical ethical school, Knapp saw money purely as a creation of the legal system, based on an act of the sovereign and having nothing to do with an agreement within society. Knapp's thesis clashed irreconcilably with Menger's evolutionary thesis. Some saw it as further evidence of compliant trust in the state and academic mediocrity on the part of a large number of German economists. Furthermore, closer inspection revealed serious factual errors. The visible tendency of the older Austrian school to focus on the possibilities of malpractice by state authorities had its origins in the sound judicial education of its members. What resulted was a particular sensitivity on their part when it came to basic rights. They always viewed state intervention in the monetary system 
as a possible abuse, experience with the history of currency in the Austrian monarchy, contributed to this attitude as well. Karl Menger had taught Crown Prince Rudolf early on that governmental monetary policy was despotism and implied violence against the citizens. During currency reform consultations, Menger made similar comments. Menger's own notes in Knapp's book and comments that have been transmitted orally point in the same direction. And of all people, Ludwig von Mises, the young researcher who later founded the Austrian theory of money and the Austrian business cycle theory, uncovered a large-scale foreign exchange manipulation complete with a black money fund that had taken place in the state-monopolized Österreichisch-Ungarische Bank. Mises was even on the receiving end of bribery attempts. In his Habilitation thesis, Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel, 1912, The Theory of Money and Credit, Mises had already adhered to his aim of applying the principle of marginal utility to monetary theory in order to return the theory of money to the study of economics. He avoided the eternal circle with the so-called regression theorem. When evaluating money, the individual proceeds from a notion of purchasing power derived from previous exchanges. Those earlier exchanges, in turn, were influenced by even earlier exchanges. In theory, these experiences can be traced back to distant past times, in which money still had a purely goods character as a means of exchange. It was thus possible to evaluate its direct use. This bold but simple solution was bound to provoke ironical commentary. For some, it was more ancient theory than economics. For others, money had become, as it were, a ghost of gold. Mises followed up on Bohm-Babeck's theory of capital and on Wixel's distinction between a natural rate of interest and the monetary rate of interest. Further developing Bohm-Babeck's theory of interest, Knut Gustav Wixel, 1851-1926, had drawn a distinction between a natural rate of interest and a money rate of interest. The former would appear in a barter economy, meaning one without intermediation of money, when supply and demand were in accord. In modern economies, supply and demand certainly do not just meet in the form of goods, but usually in the form of money, so that divergences from this natural rate of interest may occur. Banks can expand the money supply by pushing the money rate of interest even below the cost price or the natural rate of interest. Because Mises had proceeded on the assumption of an economic, but not a legal concept of money, he included the so-called fiduciary media, Umlaufsmittel, which was understood to mean claims to the payment of a given sum on demand which are not covered by a fund of money. Fiduciary media appear in the form of checks, drafts or credit notes, or as circulation credit guaranteed by banks. They are effectively used as money, and thus expand the money supply of an economy. These loans are granted out of a fund that did not exist before the loans were granted. The going quantity theory assumed that changes in the money supply affected all individuals and prices in equal measure. In contrast, Mises thought that the effects differed depending on each individual situation. Individual economic subjects, after all, receive additional money supplies neither simultaneously nor uniformly. Accordingly, beneficiaries of monetary expansion are privileged compared with those who are the last to receive the additional money or who only have fixed nominal income at their disposal. Friedrich A. von Hayek compared this process to that of pouring vicious honey. 
It spreads unevenly when it's bored and forms a little mound at the point of inflow. Contrary to popular belief, and that held by Menger and Bombarek alike, Mises considered money to be anything but neutral. The reception of Mises' thoughts was somewhere between reserved and critical. Noteworthy was the misjudgment by John Maynard Keynes, 1883-1946, who considered the book critical rather than constructive, dialectical and not original. For Knut Gustav Lixer, much of it was too obscure, and Mises' accomplishment did not get as much as even a short mention in Josef R. Schumpeter's first doctrinal history. When Mises published a new edition of his Theory of Money twelve years later, 1924, his analyses had evidently already been confirmed by the collapse of some of the European currencies. As early as 1912, both Germany and Austria had gone off the gold standard completely while preparing for war, and not without encouraging acclamation from renowned economists. Even Schumpeter, in his Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Entwicklung, 1912, the theory of economic development, had argued for increasing credit as a means of stimulating growth. Bombardek, who had already recognized the fatal link between expanding the money supply and arming for war, warned the public in three newspaper articles against expanding the government budget, and thus living beyond existing means. Shortly before his death, Bombardek made it a point to once again emphasize the existence of economic laws against which the will of man, and even the powerful will of the state, remain impotent. Regardless of the above, the First World War was financed by a limitless expansion of the money supply. Inflationism, wrote Mises in the preface for the second German edition of Theory of Money and Credit, was the most important economic element in this war ideology. In Vienna, the income of a worker's family sank from the index figure 100, 1913-1914, to 34, 1917-1918, while that of a civil servant's family sank from 100 to 19. Inflation was a relentless leveller. In 1915, a Viennese court councillor still earned 8.6 times the amount of the lowest-earning civil servant. In 1920, it was only 3.3 times as much. The inflationary policy was carried over after the war. According to Otto Bauer, 1881-1938, inflation served the socialist government as a means to stimulate industry and to improve the lifestyle of the working population for two years. At the same time, subsidies for food imports and uneconomical state enterprises were financed with the help of an excessive increase in the money supply. Food subsidies would soon become the main source of this essentially self-inflicted inflation and put a heavy burden on the government budget. In 1920-1921, they constituted no less than 59% of its total. The money supply expanded in 1920 from 12 to 30 billion kronen, by the end of 1921 to 174 billion kronen, and it reached the level of 1 trillion in August of 1922. Inflationary policies had shattered both the economy and the government budget in the most devastating way. Members of the Austrian school spoke out in the daily papers and professional journals against the evil of inflation again and again, with Ludwig von Mises leading the way. They demanded serious stabilization measures, in the second edition of his Theory of Money, and more explicitly than in the first, Mises blamed the crisis on the unrestricted extension of credit, since banks and politicians had a common interest in further lowering the interest rate to facilitate cheap money 
a money system independent of deliberate human intervention, should be established as the monetary ideal. This would mean a return to money backed by gold. The restructuring of the Austrian government budget in 1922 was indeed successful, but only after politicians, amid the ferocious attacks of right- and left-wing statists, committed themselves to self-restraint. The Austrian school and its monetary theory stood in stark contrast to the ideas of the large majority of German economists, whose competency in monetary theory seems, in retrospect, to be stunningly inadequate. Faced with the destruction of their currency, they were quite powerless. Even their publications, which played down the significance of inflation, were delayed because the funds designated for their printing had become casualties of hyperinflation. But economists like Schumpeter, Keynes, and Carl Gustav Kassel, 1866-1945, supported the policy of monetary expansion and argued, more or less eloquently, against a gold-backed currency. Ludwig von Mises cultivated his legendary private seminar as an unsalaried lecturer at the University of Vienna, despite various animosities. It became the nucleus for monetary and business cycle research and gained an international reputation. A succession of gifted economists in his circle made remarkable contributions. Banker Karl Schlesinger, 1889-1938, wrote analyses based on Walras and a well-researched report on practical banking experience. Gottfried von Habeler, 1900-1995, published a critique of Schumpeter's monetary theory and a monograph on index numbers in which he demonstrated the limits of the measurability of economic variables. Fritz Machlup, 1902-1983, delivered a dissertation on the gold bullion standard. Martha Stephanie Braun, 1898-1990, authored reviews on monetary theory and banking, and Friedrich A. von Hayek, 1899-1992, wrote on currency policy and banking. While on a 14-month study visit in the United States and before joining Mises' private seminar, Hayek, soon to become the person upon whom the hopes of the Austrian school would rest, had already considered the question of currency policy and business cycle data. Hayek became the first head of the Österreichische Institut für Konjunkturforschung, Austrian Institute for Business Cycle Research, today Wirtschaftsforschungsinstitut, WIFO. It first commenced operations in 1927 after judicious preparations by Mises. Before long, the institute became a European pioneer of empirical economic research. Oskar Morgenstern, 1902-1977, who had published his first work, Wirtschaftsprognose, Economic Forecasting, in 1928, became Hayek's first associate and succeeded him in 1931 as the institute's leader. In his Habilitation thesis, Geldtheorie und Konjunkturtheorie, 1929, Monetary Theory and the Trade Cycle, 1933, Hayek, like Mises, assumed that the ups and downs of the business cycle are invariably caused by credit expansion. An expansion of the money supply, claimed Hayek, always brings about a falsification of the pricing process and thus a misdirection of production. Credit expansion is fueled by the bank's business model as they want to provide their customers with as much liquidity as possible. The interest demanded by the banks is therefore not natural interest or, in Hayek's terminology, an equilibrium rate of interest, but interest that is determined by the bank's liquidity considerations. He linked this theoretical approach to observations of economic activities in the markets of commodities, money and stocks by using a three-market barometer and in December of 1928 already came to the conclusion 
that the United States was on the brink of a severe economic slump. In October of 1929, the Great Depression did in fact appear with full vehemence. In 1931, Hayek was invited to hold a series of lectures at the London School of Economics, in which he developed, among other things, the notion of forced saving. Changes in the money supply or in the interest rate, according to Hayek, would invariably lead to a shift in demand for consumer goods and investment goods. In contrast to voluntary saving, which is based on true consumer desires, consumers as a whole would, in the case of monetary expansion, be forced to forego part of what they used to consume, not because they want to consume less, but because they get less goods for their money income. Even though the abstract and complex constructs were not easy to understand, Hayek's thesis earned him a considerable international reputation within a short time. Mises, who by then had refined his circulation credit theory, dared to state in a preparatory text for the 1928 Zurich Convention of the Verein für Sozialpolitik that there was only one monetary theory left, namely the monetary theory of business cycles. With the combined contributions of Machlup, Habler, Morgenstern and Richard von Striegel, 1891-1942, the Austrian school was able to present itself in Zurich as the authoritative research group in monetary and business cycle theory, and it showed itself to be on the cutting edge again in a Festschrift containing 62 contributions some years later. In this Festschrift, however, it became clear that divergent forces had made strong gains. Hans Meyer, 1879-1955, Long, the only tenured professor of the school, and his circle contributed little to monetary and business cycle theory. Even Mises' non-university seminar views on methodology and political economy were moving ever further apart. Striegel, who in his Angewandte Lohntheorie, 1926, Supplied Theory of Wages, had analyzed the effects of the business cycle on the production process from an Austrian point of view, was considered an interventionist on questions of economic policy. Braun's Theorie der staatlichen Wirtschaftspolitik, 1929 Theory of State-Run Economic Policy, ultimately spoke for a moderate statism. The question of whether the purchasing power of money could be measured at all was also hotly debated. Mises denied that it could, while Habeler accused him of not even being able to define the allegedly non-measurable. In addition, Habeler considered Hayek's Preis und Produktion, 1931, prices in production, sketchy and unfinished. Differences grew when Mises began to view economics more and more as an a priori science. Oskar Morgenstern strictly rejected Mises' a priorism. His keen interest in mathematics and statistical empirical research, which had led to an analysis of capital depreciation of companies listed on the Viennese Stock Exchange, provided another dividing line. Even Hayek no longer wished to follow Mises' philosophical shift and gradually moved away from him in terms of methodology. The old polarities represented by Böhm-Barwerk, Wieser and Sachs were conspicuously revived and forces were divided. As the most exposed representative of the Austrian school internationally, Hayek became involved in several disputes. His literary feud with Keynes is well known. It was so intense that letters were even exchanged on Christmas Day, 1931. As he had done seven years previously, Hayek weighed Keynes's theses on money and monetary policy and found them wanting, only this time more broadly and thoroughly. Keynes disputed the capacity of the market to regulate itself and recommended interventions to guide the economy and the currency system.
Hayek rejected the notion emphatically, seeing in these very interventions the cause of the crises. Hayek was able to hold his ground during the intense debate, and Keynes diluted or even revoked some of his positions. But the astute and aggressive criticism of Piero Sraffa, 1898-1983, left behind an unsettled professional audience. Hayek's distinction between voluntary saving and forced saving had begun to become unhinged, and so had the Austrian assumption that the equilibrium rate of interest should not be interfered with in a barter economy without money and banks. Hayek's reply was unable to clear up any lingering doubts. Some later thought that Hayek's grounding in capital theory was inadequate, which was the ultimate cause of the problem. Hayek tried to substantiate his position with ten additional articles in the four years that followed, but during this period of a fundamental reorientating in English economics, the charm of the Austrian theory of money and business cycles had already begun to lose its freshness and allure. Works reflecting the Austrian theory were still published. Machlup wrote on Börsenkredit, Industriekredit und Kapitalbildung, 1931, the stock market, credit and capital formation. Von Schiff wrote on Capital Consumption in Kapitalbildung und Kapitalaufzehrung im Konjunkturverlauf, 1933, Formation and Depletion of Capital in the Course of the Business Cycle. And von Striegel made a contribution on business cycles and production with Kapital und Produktion, 1934, Capital and Production, but for the time being they made no impact on the discourse in English-speaking countries. With political turmoil in Central Europe claiming its first victims and naming its first offenders among economists, the stepwise exodus of the Austrian school began. The Austrian monetary and business cycle theory lacked active propagation. After a fulminant start in the early 1930s, discourse concerning Austrian theoretical constructs had now come to a near standstill. Hamler and many of his colleagues were already living outside of Austria by the time, in 1936, he had completed his standard work on business cycle theories, a monument to the Austrian contribution. The Austrian school had been paralyzed by the political events of the time, and its reaction to Keynes's general theory of employment, interest and money, if there was any reaction at all, was spiritless or subdued. Looking back, Hayek would call it his greatest strategic mistake not to have taken a more extensive stand on Keynes's general theory. Only Gottfried Habler in Geneva at the time demonstrated the usual professional and critical rigor and considered Keynes's multiplier theory to be indefensible. Fritz Machlup supported him later on. Keynes's work was treated with kid gloves otherwise. It would be more than two decades before Henry Hazlitt an American inspired by the Austrian school, would submit the general theory to strong criticism in the failure of their new economics, 1959. The scene had undergone a dramatic change by the time Hayek, during the war, completed his magnificent attempt at a modified Austrian theory of money and business cycles. The Austrian school had become a little-regarded outsider. Keynes's thesis dominated economic theory in English-speaking countries. Against the traumatic backdrop of the economic depression, politics and public opinion readily followed the man who had so brilliantly and, on the surface convincingly, proposed to secure the future welfare of the world through government control of the economy, currency management, and state investment programs. Keynes also provided welcome arguments for a radical change of the social functions of economists, whom he qualified as indispensable advisers on economic policies. 
Chapter 12 Josef A. Schumpeter, Maverick and Enigma Schumpeter's ancestors, Moravian cloth manufacturers from Triesch, today Trest, Czech Republic, were of German origin, Catholic, and very popular on account of their charity toward others. Josef Alois was born in 1883. After the early death of his father, his mother moved to Graz, where in 1893 she married Lieutenant Field Marshal Sigismund von Kehler, thirty-two years her senior, and moved to Vienna. Kehler's excellent connections enabled Yoshi to attend the Theresianum, a high school primarily reserved for the aristocracy. This played a significant part in shaping his character. A lifelong friend and fellow student would describe Schumpeter later in this way. He never seemed to take anything in life seriously. He had been educated in Theresianum, where the pupils were taught to stick to the issue. One should know the rules of all parties and ideologies, but not belong to any party or believe in any one opinion. After graduating with honours, Schumpeter began studying law. He shifted his focus to economics, however, under the influence of Menger's pupils, Friedrich von Wieser, Eugen von Böhm-Barwerk, and Eugen von Wilebowitz. A colleague remembers that he, in seminars, attracted general attention through his cool scientific detachment, and had a playful manner in which he took part in the discussion. He went to the London School of Economics, and also to the universities of Oxford and Cambridge after graduating. He complemented his Austrian education with an English one, which in those days was still rare. At twenty-four, this fashionable young man, to whom the doors of English society stood open, married the apparently breathtakingly beautiful Gladys R. Seaver, daughter of a high-ranking dignitary of the Anglican Church, but the marriage proved to be a mistake. The couple pursued separate lives only after a few months. Schumpeter's employment with an Italian attorney took him to Egypt in 1907. He drafted his first monograph in the evenings after work, Das Wesen und der Hauptinhalt der Theoretischen Nationalökonomie, 1908, The Nature and Essence of Theoretical Economics. For this balanced account of the Methodenstreit and a forthright plea for methodological individualism, he received his habilitation in the same year. In 1909, he took on a non-tenured professorship in Chernovitz in present-day Ukraine. In 1911, at the age of 28, he was appointed as professor to the chair of political economy at the University of Graz, the youngest professor in all of the empire. He published his Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Entwicklung, 1912, The Theory of Economic Development, to at the end of the same year, its publication date was erroneously given as 1912. This work quickly found international recognition and would later become a classic. Before the outbreak of the First World War and at Max Weber's 1844-1919 suggestion, he described in Epochen der Dogmen und Methodengeschichte, 1914, Economic Doctrine and Method and Historical Sketch, the economic phenomena with help of related social sciences. Schumpeter accepted a guest professorship at Columbia University in New York and delivered 17 lectures at other American universities during the same period. Returning from America, he was immediately elected dean of the law faculty in Graz. Schumpeter thought of himself as a scientist first and foremost. He emphasized over and over that he wished to refrain from making any political judgments and on economic policy measures wanted to offer his help, if at all, only where theoretical decision-making was concerned. 
he nevertheless assumed political posts and functions. Because he feared an economic takeover from Germany during the First World War, he tried, with several memoranda, to prevent a planned customs union with the German Reich. He joined the German Sozialisierungskommission, Socialization Commission, immediately after the war, solicited by friends with Marxist leanings. To everyone's astonishment, Schumpeter advocated the complete and immediate nationalization of the coal mining industry, whereupon the Viennese author, cultural critic and journalist Karl Kraus, 1874-1936, derided him as an exchange professor as opposed to exchange student in terms of convictions, and added with biting irony that Schumpeter had more different views than were necessary for his advancement. In 1919, Schumpeter was even appointed as finance minister under the socialist regime. But after seven months, he had to resign. His budget had been completely rejected, and he was accused of having thwarted a nationalization program and thus of counteracting government policy. When it came to the economic independence of the young republic, Schumpeter spoke up with optimism at every opportunity. In contrast to this, Otto Bauer, state secretary for foreign affairs, pursued the goal of unification with Germany and argued its case on the basis of economic necessity. At the peace negotiations in Saint-Germain, Chancellor Karl Renner emphasized as well the economic non-viability of the radically shrunken Austria, with Schumpeter allowing himself a noble riding horse, paid for out of his politician's salary while the Viennese were going hungry, and appearing in public accompanied by prostitutes. His political reputation was soon effectively destroyed. Many months later he was appointed president of the Viennese Biedermann Bank. The bank went bust within three years. He was dismissed in disgrace and with a mountain of debt. Schumpeter had reached the low point of his life. Without capital, with a miserable reputation as a businessman, and without political renown. In 1925 Bonn made Schumpeter an offer he accepted immediately. His tenured professorship in political economy was a sensation from the start. For the first time in decades, theory was being taught at a German university. Bonn became the meeting place for economists from all over the world. Moreover, his lectures in the areas of finance, monetary theory, history of economic theory and sociology were judged as flamboyant and unconventional. As one former student remembers, he was very relaxed as he began his lectures, always without notes. He had a clear and agreeable Viennese way of talking that was slightly playful, but nevertheless very measured and emphatic. He did not skimp on his gestures when he spoke, from all sides of the lectern, usually leaning on it slightly with one hand in his coat pocket. He had calm, steady hands. His handwriting was generous, the characters interesting. Schumpeter later considered the essays he wrote during this time, for example, the Sozialen Klassen im ethnisch homogenen milieu, 1927, the social classes in an ethnically homogeneous environment, to be his most important work. Schumpeter also suffered staggering blows of fate in Bonn. In 1926 his mother Johanna passed away. His newborn son died a month later, as did Annie, his second wife, and the infant's mother, who had been stricken with puerperal fever. The daughter of the janitor of his parents' tenements, Annie, had fallen deeply in love with Oshomi at just seventeen. They moved into a grand villa in Bonn after their wedding in 1925 and threw many lavish parties. Schumpeter was devastated by the loss. Everyone who knew him noticed a radical change in his personality. For years he left Annie's clothes untouched, made daily trips to the cemetery, 
and developed an out-and-out religious cult around her death. In 1932, Schumpeter quit teaching in Germany and went to Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. As he had in Bonn, he was able to gather around himself an illustrious circle of enthusiastic students and young researchers, for example, the future Nobel Prize winners Paul A. Samuelson, 1915-2009, Vasily Leontiev, 1905-1999, and James Tobin, 1918-2002, the Austrians Gottfried Habeler and Fritz Machlup, and also socialists like Oskar Lange, 1904-1965, Paul Sweezy, 1910-2004, and Richard M. Goodwin, 1913-1996. He made a crucial contribution to the golden age of economics. His works on entrepreneur theory, as well as capitalism, made him the most recognized economist in the U.S. In 1947, he became the first foreigner to be elected president of the renowned American Economic Association. One year later, he even took over the chair of the International Economic Association, which at the time had a membership of 5,300 worldwide. Among all of the ambitious plans he had made after his arrival in the U.S., Schumpeter was in the end able to bring three large works to realization. Business Cycles, 1939, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, 1942, and History of Economic Analysis, 1954. The latter remained unfinished and was published posthumously by economist Elizabeth Booty, his third wife. The story goes that Schumpeter once said he had three goals in life, to be the world's greatest economist, Austria's greatest horseman, and Vienna's greatest lover. It became increasingly clear to him in the 1930s that these goals were probably out of his reach, at least when it came to economics. With a treatise on money, 1930, Britain John Maynard Keynes plunged the ambitious and egotistical Schumpeter, his exact contemporary, into a deep creative crisis. Schumpeter had just written a manuscript on monetary theory and was getting it ready for printing. Schumpeter could hardly bear the excitement of his students as they looked forward to the latest works by Keynes. Although Schumpeter was always able to fascinate colleagues, students and audiences with his polyglot education, his skillful storytelling and his tremendous intellectual flexibility, he never managed to build up a following of students for very long. Self-critical, he blamed his lack of leadership and conviction and noted in his diary, I have no garments that I could not remove. Relativism runs in my blood. This is one of the reasons I can't win, not in the long run. In terms of politics, Schumpeter revealed his most disagreeable side during the Second World War. Time and again he ranted against Slavs and Jews and sympathized with Adolf Hitler. At the same time, however, he lent his help to many of the refugees arriving in the United States. After 1945, he spoke of a Jewish victory and questioned the Nuremberg War Tribunal. Schumpeter, restless and driven, always seeking stability, and often beset with despair, depression, and premonitions of death, wrote several times in his diary that he considered his life to be a failure, and that he wished nothing more for himself than a gentle death. When American President Franklin Roosevelt, 1882-1945, died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage, Schumpeter, who had been unhappy all of his life, remarked in an obituary, a lucky man, to die in fullness of power. Schumpeter himself passed away in his sleep of a brain hemorrhage at Windy Hill, his summer house in Taconic, Connecticut, in 1950. Chapter 13. Schumpeter's Theory of Economic Development 
Josef A. Schumpeter always took the middle ground in areas of politics and academics. His work cannot be readily categorized even today. He felt himself obliged to the Austrian school on the one hand, and when he got to Harvard, was happy to introduce American students to Austrian teachings. But he also made all kinds of concessions to socialism, holding the German historical school and Gustav Schmoller in particular in high esteem in the 1920s. When he was 28, he tried to weave together these different traditions in the later famous Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Entwicklung 1912, the theory of economic development. As a starting point, he applied the equilibrium theory of Lausanne economist Léon Valras, 1834-1910, which stands in marked contradiction to the thinking of the Austrian school. Unlike Valras, however, Schumpeter was of the view that a static theory alone was insufficient to fully explain economic phenomena. In the preface to the Japanese edition of his Theory of Economic Development, he noted that one would have to assume a source of energy within the economic system that would upset the equilibrium of economies, as external factors alone could not be made responsible for such a change. Furthermore, in his strongly psychology-biased description of the role of entrepreneurs, Schumpeter drew on the groundwork of the Berlin political economists, Adolf Friedrich Johann Riedel, 1809-1872, and Albert Eberhard Friedrich Schäffler, neither of whom, however, he cited. Schumpeter's German, original Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Entwicklung, has been published nine times to date, it has been translated into numerous languages, including Italian, French, Polish, Brazilian, Japanese, Russian, Slovak, and Hungarian, with a considerable number of reprints in several of those languages as well. Schumpeter streamlined the original text so radically in the second edition, 1926, that it almost became a new book. The 1926 version gave birth to many of the memorable expressions that appear largely unchanged in later editions. As a rule, Discourse in the German-speaking world refers to the second or later editions. The book was received in the Anglo-American world in the form of an abridged, rewritten and imprecise translation from 1934, also based on the second edition, The Theory of Economic Development, 1934. The remarkable consequence is that the original text remains largely unknown to this day. Indeed, Schumpeter's name is linked in many cases to theses which he had explicitly opposed in his original work. Schumpeter, who proceeded on the assumption of a categorical distinction between static and dynamic economics, stated from his second edition on more precisely that economic development should not be understood as making the necessary adjustments, but in terms of those adjustments by which economic life itself changes its own data by fits and starts. These changes would come about while implementing new combinations of production goods, the manufacturing of a new product, for example, or the introduction of a new production method, the opening up of a new market, access to a new source of natural resources, or the creation or breaking of a monopoly. These processes of industrial mutation, which continuously revolutionize the economic structure from within, wrote Schumpeter, amount to a process of creative destruction and constitute the essential reality of capitalism. To be in a condition of dynamic imbalance is in the nature of capitalist markets. Old structures are periodically replaced by new. If a capitalist society were in equilibrium, it would be doomed. In this sense, innovation and creative destruction are its pivotal features. It is ultimately the entrepreneurial will, the entrepreneur's leadership, that spurs on economic growth and social change. 
Schumpeter stated in the original German edition that entrepreneurs even force their products onto the market, but in the fewest of cases are entrepreneurs themselves also creators. It is not part of the entrepreneur's function to find or to create new possibilities. They are always present, abundantly accumulated by all sorts of people. Plenty of people, as a matter of fact, did see it, but nobody was in a position to do it. Now it is this doing the thing, without which possibilities are dead, of which the entrepreneur's function consists. In the first volume of his business cycles, 1939, German Konjunkturzyklen, Schumpeter repeated that, without doubt, the great majority of changes in commodities consumed has been forced by producers on consumers. In most cases, the consumers would have resisted, and would have first had to be educated by elaborate psychotechnics of advertising. Railroads did not emerge because some consumers took the initiative in displaying an effective demand for their service in preference to the services of mail coaches. Nor did consumers exhibit a wish to have electric lamps or rayon stockings or to travel by motorcar or airplane, or to listen to radios, or to chew gum. Today's well-known description of the entrepreneur's motivation took shape in Schumpeter's revised second edition of the Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Entwicklung, 1926. The English version of this passage dissented slightly from the German original in that it omitted the naive and quixotic undertone in the character sketch of the entrepreneur. Apart from that, a quintessence was preserved in the translation. First of all, there is the dream and the will to found a private kingdom, and usually, though not necessarily, also a dynasty. Then there is the will to conquer, the impulse to fight, to prove oneself superior to others, to succeed for the sake of success itself. From this aspect, economic action becomes akin to sport. There are financial races, or rather boxing matches. Finally, there is the joy of creating, of getting things done, or simply of exercising one's energy and ingenuity. This is akin to a ubiquitous motive, but nowhere else does it stand out as an independent factor of behavior with anything like the clearness with which it obtrudes itself in our case. Our type seeks out difficulties, changes in order to change, delights in ventures. Schumpeter's fundamental distinction between entrepreneurs and their imitators, those he called mere managers, can be traced back to the leadership elite theory of his teacher Friedrich von Wieser. According to Wieser, only people of a very special kind occupy an exceptional position by having the courage to innovate and the desire to form the world in their image. They play the part of the trendsetter in the world of fashion, but also as founders of joint stock companies, as leaders of political parties or as strike leaders. Leading and following, writes Wieser, is the basic form of all social action. Masses do not unite because of contracts. They unite through leading and following. Although Visa understood leadership in terms of social function rather than in terms of people's drives or character traits, Schumpeter placed special emphasis, even in the first edition, on the psychological profile of the business leader. The psychological side of the entrepreneurial portrait was tied unmistakably to Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844-1900, and also to Max Weber's 1864-1920 charismatic leader, or Oswald Sprengler's 1880-1936 Faust-like human being, bringing to mind the emerging leader cult in Germany. In the first German edition, Schumpeter saw the entrepreneur as analogous to the creative artist and thinker, or described him as chieftains specializing in business matters. But from the second edition on, he placed more emphasis on the function of the entrepreneur. What he depicts is an elite that enjoys flaunting its accomplishments and strengths, 
and molds social reality, casting a spell over it with restless ambition. Members of this elite can be found among property owners or company founders, but the leading man might also be a manager, a majority share owner, or even someone who has no capital at his disposal. It is leadership rather than ownership that matters. In order to produce something innovative and to offer it on the market, an entrepreneur would have to withdraw already existing production goods from their previous use. For this purpose, he would need purchasing power, but he seldom possesses the needed investment capital. The entrepreneur does not usually save up to acquire the necessary means, nor does he accumulate any goods before beginning to produce. So funding is necessary in order to introduce new combinations. Entrepreneurs could only invest with the help of credit. Such credit is essentially the creation of purchasing power for the purpose of transferring it to the entrepreneur, but not simply the transfer of existing purchasing power. Accordingly, it is ultimately the banker who enables the introduction of new combinations, who authorizes people in the name of society, as it were, to form them. He is the effort of the exchange economy. The entrepreneur, writes Schumpeter, is never the risk-bearer. The one who gives credit comes to grief if the undertaking fails. Risk-taking is in no case an element of the entrepreneurial function. Even though he may risk his reputation, the direct economic responsibility of failure never falls on him. It applies that the lender, the banker, simply transfers purchasing power, yet by no means actual stock. In the original German version, Schumpeter had still noted, somewhat unassertively, that one could say, without any great sin, that the banker creates money. Later, in the English edition, this self-absolution was retained. After the second German edition, Schumpeter refined the language of his explanatory model even further. It is always a question not of transforming purchasing power, which was already in someone's possession, but of the creation of new purchasing power out of nothing. This is the source from which new combinations are typically financed. Ultimately, an innovator can only become an entrepreneur by previously becoming a debtor. With the help of loans, an entrepreneur could crush the attempts of others and establish his new products on the market. This would provide him with substantial profits. Since he has no competitors when the new products first appear, the determination of their price proceeds wholly or within certain limits, according to the principle of monopoly price. But his success would soon attract imitators. His profit margin would in turn decrease and soon give way to the competition. The entrepreneur's profit slips from the entrepreneur's grasp as soon as the entrepreneurial function is performed. It attaches to the creation of new things, to the realization of the future value system. It is at the same time the child and the victim of development. The appearance of imitators taking advantage of the pioneering work of the entrepreneur would on balance cause an economic boom. This would be evident in the creation of new jobs on the one hand and in wage increases and a higher interest rate on the other. But this would also result in a decrease in the demand for credit, and many of those new companies, in contrast to established ones which can fall back on accumulated resources, would go bankrupt. In other words, the wave of innovation would again subside, and the economy would slide into crisis. After a period of economic recession, innovative entrepreneurs would again emerge in some branches of industry, and the cycle would begin anew. The idea that the modern economy is mainly financed with the help of credit had been discussed years earlier by Rudolf Hilferding in Böhm-Barak's seminar. Hilferding published the same, but Schumpeter made no reference to it. 
Even at the time, critics thought it was easy to prove empirically that innovations were indeed not, or by no means exclusively, financed by debt. All in all, Schumpeter's theory of economic development enjoyed a mixed reception. He later remarked that the book had been rejected generally. Schumpeter's denial of capital interest in static economics and his thesis of the inflationary financing of innovative production processes. Elicited displeasure on the part of his former teacher Eugen von Bernbarwerk, who, in a lengthy critique, warned against the danger of false teaching presented in such a disarming manner, full of spirit and eloquence. Schumpeter's meek response and Bernbarwerk's rejoinder showed all too clearly how deep the rift between Schumpeter and the Austrian school had grown. After the First World War, the Austrian school got to the bottom of the link between credit financing and business cycles. Unlike Schumpeter, its members saw in the creating of purchasing power out of thin air a beguiling illusion that would undermine and ultimately distort the workings of the economy. Schumpeter's theory of economic development nevertheless enjoyed a remarkable renaissance in the last decades of the twentieth century. It served as the inspiration for what is called evolutionary economics and also modern research on innovation. With his work, capitalism. Socialism and Democracy, 1942, written during the Second World War, Schumpeter dedicated himself, among other things, to the question of whether capitalism can survive in the long term. Schumpeter answered in the negative: large corporations would take on the role of innovator more and more. Key decisions would no longer be made by ambitious small entrepreneurs driven by their desire for social advancement, but by paid managers. Instead of lively contact between all people and things involved in production. Schumpeter had already written in Socialistische Möglichkeiten von heute, 1920-1921, Socialist Prospect of Today. There would be ever more administration from some distant boardroom, and the capacity for technical innovation increases with the size of the company. It will be systematically undertaken by research and development departments of large businesses. Finally, in the late capitalist era, business administrators whose actions generally resemble those of civil servants. Rather than innovative entrepreneurs, would drive the economy. Everywhere we find industries which would not exist at all but for protection, subsidies, and other political stimuli, and others which are overgrown or otherwise in an unhealthy state because of them. The classic entrepreneur will be left with no arena in which to operate. Bureaucratic capitalism will slowly metamorphose into centrally planned socialism. Chapter Fourteen: The Austrian School's Critique of Marxism. Council republics were established in Hungary and Bavaria, according to the Russian-Soviet model, shortly after the First World War. Violent revolts erupted in many places in Germany. Vienna too was dominated by this revolutionary atmosphere, which middle-class circles embraced with calculated opportunism. Ludwig von Mises. Who at the time was a civil servant in the Chamber of Commerce of Lower Austria, recalled the following: People were so convinced of the inevitability of Bolshevism that their main concern was securing a favorable place for themselves in the new order. Bank directors and industrialists hoped to make good livings as managers under the Bolshevists. Otto Bauer was State Secretary in the Foreign Department at this time. The leading Austro-Marxist and later chairman of the Nationalization Commission, Mises knew him very well. They had attended Bernbarek's economic seminar together. At the time, Mises wrote of the winter of 1918-1919 in his memoirs, 
I was successful in convincing the Bauers that the collapse of a Bolshevist experiment in Austria would be inevitable in a very short time, perhaps within days. I knew what was at stake. Bolshevism would lead Vienna to starvation and terror within a few days. Plundering hordes would take to the streets, and a second bloodbath would destroy what was left of Viennese culture. After discussing these problems with the Bauers over the course of many evenings, I was finally able to persuade them of my view. In January of 1919, Bauer finally made the announcement in the Arbeiterzeitung that he wanted to carry out expropriations with reimbursements in heavy industry and large-scale landholding. The Arbeiterzeitung, or workers' newspaper, was started in 1889 and functioned as the main organ of the Austrian Socialist Party until 1989. It was banned from 1934 to 1945. It ceased publication as an independent newspaper in 1991. Organizational measures were to be taken in preparation for nationalization in other industries as well. The convincing Mises did, in those memorable nighttime discussions, was directed to its socialist political intentions that had the potential of endangering the short and unstable store of supplies available to the Viennese population even further. Of all the voluminous literature circulated during the subsequent debate on socialization, Schumpeter noted that even the most able were writing the most banal things. Mises was one of the few who kept his focus on the possible consequences of state intervention with sobriety and a sense of reality. The government-run war and transitional economy had provided numerous examples of the inevitable failure of central economic planning and had also proven the lesser economic productivity of public enterprises. Moreover, Mises realized early on that the interests of the Viennese Sozialisierungskommission, Commission for Nationalization, were by no means identical to the interests of the federal states. In any case, these nightly talks put such a strain on his relationship with Bauer that Mises tended to believe Bauer had tried to have him removed from the teaching staff at the University of Vienna. Mises was indeed no longer considered for the position of tenured professor in Vienna when it became vacant in 1919. It was given instead to Ottmar Spann, 1878-1950, a former colleague of Bauer in the Wissenschaftliche Komitee für Kriegswirtschaft, Academic Committee for War Economy, in the Royal Imperial Ministry of War. During the course of the nationalization debate of 1919, Mises defended private property and the market economy with the argument of economic efficiency of supply. But he had to argue the position almost single-handedly, as many members of the Austrian school had been appointed to senior positions in the central war and transition economy offices, thereby joining the statist camp. It almost seemed as if they had, over the course of their careers, completely forgotten that the academic dispute with Marxism had at no university been so profound and productive as it had been in Vienna. When the subjective theory of value had begun to take hold in the 1880s, other theories that competed with those of the Austrian school had also come to the fore. For example, the labor theory of value. In Capital and Interest, A Critical History of Economical Theory, 1884, Eugen von Böhm-Barbeck devoted a complete section to socialist notions, the exploitation theory, and subjected them to fastidious and detailed criticism. In 1885, Gustav Gross authored one of the first biographical sketches on Karl Marx. In the very same year, he produced a separate biography, Karl Marx, Eine Studie, Karl Marx's Study. 
Shortly thereafter, he reviewed the second volume of Das Kapital, capital. Hermann von Schulern zu Schattenhofen, first scholarly publication was Die Lehre von den Produktionsfaktoren in den Sozialistischen Theorien, 1885, study of the factors of production in socialist theories. The dispute with the socialist was soon to become a permanent fixture of the Austrian school. It is an irony of history that it was this school of thought that first introduced academic discourse about socialism into the seminar rooms and libraries of established economics departments. Criticism was aimed primarily at the labor theory of value whose contradictions and shortcomings were thought to have been overcome once and for all with the subjective theory of value. The socialist theory did not represent progress, but rather regression. Fierce controversy between Bernbawerk, Ditzel, and even Zuckerkandl, among others, brought competition between the two doctrines to a head. Dietzel held to the labor theory of value and held fast to the view that the principle of marginal utility was, in the end, nothing more than the good old law of supply and demand. Disputes with socialism soon went beyond the labor theory of value and brought the socialist state into question in many respects. Bernbawerk, for example, regarded interest as an economic category wholly independent of the social system. Interest would exist even in the socialist state. Wiese criticized socialist writers for their inadequate teaching of value's role in the socialist state. He came to the conclusion that not for one day could the socialist economic state of the future be administered according to any such reading of value. For Wiese, in the socialist theory of value, pretty nearly everything is wrong. Johann von Komodzinski extended the analysis to political science. He distinguished between a true philanthropic socialism and a delusory socialism aimed purely at class interests. After the posthumous edition of the third volume of Das Kapital, 1895, two in-depth contributions of the Austrian school marked the temporary cessation of its critique of Marxism. In one perceptive essay, Komodzinski tried to prove that Marxist theories were at the greatest possible odds with the real economic processes. The contradiction stemmed from the basic principle, not from the utopian thinking. In his famous Zum Abschluss des Marxischen Systems, 1896, Karl Marx and the Close of His System, Bimbavec summarized his previous critique and came to the conclusion, based on the well-known contradictions between the first two and the third volumes of Das Kapital, that the final Marxist theory contains as many cardinal errors as there are points in the arguments. They bear evident traces of having been a subtle and artificial afterthought, contrived to make a preconceived opinion seem the natural outcome of a prolonged investigation. The Marxian system, according to Bernbarek, has a past and a present, but no abiding future. A clever dialectic may make a temporary impression on the human mind, but cannot make a lasting one. In the long run, facts and the secure linking causes and effects win the day. Bernbarek foresaw that the belief in an authority, which has been rooted for thirty years in Marxist apologetics, forms a bulwark against the incursion of critical knowledge that will slowly but surely be broken down. And even then, socialism will certainly not be overthrown with the Marxian system, neither practical nor theoretical socialism. By the end of the 1880s, the law faculty of the University of Vienna became a center of research into socialism. In his sensational work, Das Recht auf den vollen Arbeitsertrag in geschichtlicher Darstellung, 1886, 
the historical view of the right to full labour revenue, Anton Menger, 1841-1906, one of Karl Menger's brothers, professor of civil litigation law, and the first socialist of the monarchy with a tenured professorship, made a case for the nationalisation of the means of production. Karl Grünberg, 1861-1940, a scientific Marxist, taught economics there starting in 1892 and was one among many of Mises' teachers. In 1924 he was appointed to Frankfurt, where he founded the Institut für Sozialforschung, Institute for Social Research, and edited the works of Marx. Anton Menger, Karl Grünberg, and later even Böhm Barbeck came to attract the young socialist elite, Marx and Friedrich Adler, Otto Bauer, Karl Renner, Julius Tandler, Emil Lederer, Robert Danneberg, Julius Deutsch, and Rudolf Hilferding. From Hilferding's pen came the first Marxist anti-critique directed at Böhm Barwerk, and his Das Finanzkapital, 1910, Finance Capital, was a remarkable outcome of the culture of the seminar. In it, he comments on the role of banks and their symbiosis with the state, seemingly anticipating the monetary and business cycle theory of the Austrian school, which was sceptical of both. On the eve of the First World War, the continuing exchange of ideas between these talented young people nurtured in Böhm-Bawek the belief that the labour theory of value had lost ground in theoretical circles in all countries in recent times. Theoretical arguments that had evolved over the years did not play much of a role in the post-war debate on nationalisation at first. In fact, ideas about the organisation of the economy and economic policy were prevalent. But it soon appeared that the ideas of nationalization functionaries had been openly inadequate. Many nationalized business establishments fell upon economic hard times. Entrepreneurs proved reluctant to invest when expropriations were announced. And amazingly enough, Otto Bauer seemed surprised at this reaction. In the federal states, state claims made the process of nationalization stall or fail altogether. But most notable was the threat of starvation in Vienna. In 1919, 150,000 of the 186,000 schoolchildren were undernourished or severely undernourished. This was an indirect consequence of a controlled war economy that had led to a quadrupling of follow land. Schumpeter, who in 1919 had had to resign as finance minister over the question of nationalization, took stock two years later. Though it has political appeal, nationalization accompanied by a comfortable lifestyle and a simultaneously abundant provision of goods, and the childish idea of bedding oneself in existing affluence is just nonsense. Nationalization, which is not nonsense, is politically possible today, but only so long as no one attempts it in earnest. Just when the politics of nationalization were beginning to lose momentum, Mises gained recognition for his spectacular essay Die Wirtschaftsrechnung im Sozialistischen Gemeinwesen. Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth. It was expanded substantially two years later and published as the book Die Gemeinwirtschaft, Untersuchungen über den Sozialismus, 1922. Socialism, an economic and sociological analysis. Mises made the point that rational economic management, that is, resource-conserving production and distribution of goods, which takes consumer preferences into account, can only be guaranteed with a free price system the free exchange of goods and freedom to implement all possible uses of the goods, and that with central planning these goals can never be achieved. If the means of production are not privately owned, then efficient business leadership and the consequent satisfying of consumer interests cannot be ensured. 
The core problem, according to Mises, is that in the socialistic community, economic calculation would be impossible. In any large undertaking, the individual works or departments are partly independent in their accounts. They can reckon the cost of materials and labor, and it is possible at any time to sum up the results of their activities in figures. In this way, it is possible to ascertain with what success each separate branch has been operated and thereby to make decisions concerning the reorganization, limitations or extension of existing branches or the establishment of new ones. It seems natural then to ask why a socialistic community should not make separate accounts in the same manner, but this is impossible. Separate accounts for a single branch of one and the same undertaking are possible only when prices for all kinds of goods and services are established in the market and furnish a basis of reckoning. Where there is no market, there is no price system, and where there is no price system, there can be no economic calculation. Socialism, therefore, is not able to calculate. This is the main assertion of Mises' argument, otherwise known as the calculation problem. There would be neither discernible profits nor discernible losses. Success and failure remain unrecognized in the dark. A socialist management would be like a man forced to spend his life blindfolded. Mises did not allow for the argument made by many bourgeois economists that socialism could not be realized because humans were still too underdeveloped in a moral sense. According to Mises, socialism would be bound to fail not because of morality, but because the problems that a socialist order would have to solve present insuperable intellectual difficulties. The impracticability of socialism is the result of intellectual, not moral, incapability. Mises's brilliant and overpoweringly logical analysis was not new. Its main features were already part of an inventory belonging to the early marginal utility theoreticians, but this was little acknowledged. Hermann Heinrich Gossen, 1810-1858, had already established that only in a society based on private property could the economy be adequately and most expediently managed. The central agency assigned by the communists to allocate various jobs, Gossen said, would learn very soon it had set itself a task whose solution was beyond the ability of human individuals. In terms of the earlier Austrian school, Friedrich von Wiese had already placed clear emphasis on the necessity of economic calculation. He was one of the first economists to recognize the relevance of the informational nature of value in an economy. Value, Wiese stated, is the form in which utility is calculated, and thus value comes to be the controlling power in economic life. Apart from a few sporadic contributions in the foreign literature, the problem of economic calculation in socialism was scarcely considered until 1919, not even by socialist economists. Erwin Wiesel, 1930-2005, the Viennese economist and historiographer of the Austro-Marxist debate on socialization, even claimed that one wanted to ignore the problem. At the height of the socialization debate in spring 1919, Menger student and business attorney Markus Ettinger warned that only market price could be a reliable regulator of demand and for the in- and outflow of capital and labor from one area of production to another. It is interesting that Max Weber, 1864-1920, who was in close contact with Mises during his stay in Vienna in 1919, also characterized money calculation in a book manuscript unpublished at the time of his death as a specific device of the purposive rational procurement economy. 
Mises' fundamental critique received international recognition into the 1920s. The notion that central planning without a price system would automatically be inefficient was seldom denied. But in the early 1930s, economists in the English-speaking world began responding with models for a socialist calculation in answer to Mises that included the idea of competition socialism. It prevailed and survived in socialist circles until the 1980s. The idea was that planners could adequately stimulate market development with trial and error loops in between individual planning periods. Subsequent calculations could then be made. Both Mises and Hayek responded in detail, and Hayek presented a concise summary of the complete debate in 1935. He first and foremost centered in on the hubristic notion of being able to plan economic and social systems comprehensively. Socialism, in all its right and left-wing varieties, was an ideology born out of the desire to achieve complete control over the social order, and the belief that it is in our power to determine deliberately, in any manner we like, every aspect of this social order. In contrast to Mises, Hayek emphasized the indispensable information function of market-induced prices that a market system has greater knowledge of facts than any single individual or even any organization is the decisive reason why the market economy outperforms any other economic system. Amid heated debate, the Austrians were hardly aware of the fact that Hayek and Mises were pursuing two ultimately different paradigms. Mises' massive attack on the utopia of an economically efficient socialism did not evoke much in the way of a direct counter-reaction. Because the instigators of nationalization were aiming only at partial socialization, they were able to get out of a tight spot by pointing to organizational issues. The counterattack came only after two years, when Helen Bauer, 1871-1942, diagnosed the bankruptcy of the marginal theory of value in the party organ of the Socialist Party, Bankrott der Grenzwerttheorie, 1924. Using revolutionary rhetoric and warlike language, she insinuated that the marginal utility theory served a frightened bourgeoisie as a bulwark and was used as the predominant theory to agitate against Marxism at the university level. But Bauer touched the Achilles heel of the marginal utility theories on one point. She called their imputation theory inadequate. The denunciatory intention of depicting the marginal utility theory as an ideology of the bourgeois owner class was particularly obvious in Russian theoretical economist and philosopher Nikolai Ivanovich Bukharin's 1888-1938 Economic Theory of the Leisure Class, 1919. Bukharin's personal attacks on Böhm-Barbeck occasioned an unemotional counter-criticism. Ludwig von Mises was a specially easy target for this kind of appraisal on the part of socialist authors. Mises held the conviction that liberalism was the only idea that could effectively oppose socialism. Liberalism, said Mises, is applied economics. In another work from the previous year, he had even stated that classical liberalism was victorious with economics and through it. The theory of marginal utility nevertheless found some support in Germany in the 1920s, even from socialist writers or others with socialist leanings. While preparing for the Dresden Convention of the Verein für Sozialpolitik in 1932, Mises repeated his junction of modern economics and liberalism and was promptly criticized even by advocates of the subjective theory of value. Despite the polarization, a young participant of the Dresden Convention, the postdoctorate graduate, attorney, and political scientist Hans Zeisel, 1905-1992, in the United States he named himself Hans Zeisel, 
sports correspondent of the Socialist Arbeiter Zeitung, and, until 1938, contributor to the now classical Marienthal-Studie, attempted the first synthesis in Marxismus und Subjektive Theorie 1931, Marxism and the Subjective Theory of Value. According to Zeiser, the notion of value had developed into a concept of human elective action. The goods concept had given way to the relational concept of possible uses. The so-called laws of the subjective theory of value were of a statistical nature and received their cognitive value when they are applied to empirically discerned demand systems. If one were to replace demand systems with demand with purchasing power, one would immediately recognize that demand is allocated according to class. The crucial Marxist line of thought that the level of wages and interest rates, etc., are dependent on class structure could be precisely articulated in the subjectivist theory of value. Subsequent changes in the political arena rendered any continued development of this interesting synthesis of praxeological thinking and the Marxist theory of distribution impossible. Chapter 15. 1918 and the Consequences of War. The Imminent Collapse. Although the Austrian school was critical of the historical, ethical school's belief in the state during the Methodenstreit, its position had gradually changed by the turn of the century. Karl Menger's fundamentally sceptical attitude toward the state receded in direct proportion to the increase in the number of his postdoctoral students who entered into civil service. The scepticism disappeared almost entirely after Menger's withdrawal in 1903. An increasingly symbiotic relationship with the state ensued. Active involvement of Austrian school members in the administration of the state reached its culmination precisely in the years of the so-called War and Transition Economy, 1912-1919. This was especially calamitous for the Austrian school. It had never before had such opportunities for influencing others. Its representatives taught at three Viennese universities and at the Export Academy. They played a leading role in the Gesellschaft Österreichische Volkswirte, Society of Austrian Economists, and even had their own publication, the Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung, Journal of Economics, Social Policy and Administration. Five habilitierte scholars had been appointed to the Herrenhaus in succession. Five had become ministers, some even several times, and two became members of the Reichsrat. Five out of a total of 17 habilitierte economists and public finance experts had become excellencies and were therefore highly ranked representatives of the monarchy. Aside from holding top positions in public administration and in the press, members of the school were found in the Chamber of Commerce and in higher echelons of large banks and industrial conglomerates, for example, Rudolf Sieghardt, Bodenkreditanstalt, and Julius Landesberger, Anglo-Österreichische Bank. To the end of the war, the influence of the school reached its height. Among its members were a prime minister and head of the emperor's cabinet, Ernst von Seidler, several ministers, Ernst von Seidler, Friedrich von Wiese, Viktor Mataya, the last president of the Reichsrat, Gustav Gross, representatives of university administration, Richard Schüller, Ignaz Gruber, Hans Meyer, Richard Raj, and leading members of the central administration of the war economy, for example, Josef Schumpeter, Eugen Peter Schwedland, or Julius Landesberger. The Gesellschaft Österreichische Volkswirte, which in 1897 had a total of 232 members, served as a forum in which representatives of administration, politics, press and business could meet. 
Banker Richard von Lieben, 1842-1919, and the sugar magnate and member of parliament, Rudolf Auspitz, 1837-1906, were among the regulars there, as were politicians from all parties. The basis of this war and transition economy was the Kriegsleistungsgesetz, War Effort Act of 1912. It would lay the foundation for the centrally controlled management of all economic sectors deemed strategically important in war, that is, for a state penetration of the economy. The aging Karl Menger, who saw catastrophe looming, warned against this development in vain. Bernbarek also reminded everyone on several occasions in 1914, the year in which he died, that neither politics nor administration could suspend the basic laws of economics. He was clearly pointing his finger at the government, which had begun to finance its costly war preparations by printing money. Up to 91 central offices were established during the war with the help of the Kriegsleistungsgesetz, some of which were in competition with each other. The coordinator was head of the directorate, the highest civil service position within the ministry, Richard Riedel, 1865-1944, whose attempts at management led to a large-scale squandering and to an undesired decline in production, especially in farming. Even in those areas in which sufficient resources were available, there were massive shortages that quickly led to a flourishing black market. Riedel, for whom the term Deutsch organisieren, to thoroughly organise, became the verb of choice, considered the level of black market prices to be a barometer of goods shortages, thus admitting, with unintentional cynicism, that even he could not dispense with the market. In March of 1917, at the culmination of this hyperstatism or war socialism, all central offices were answerable to a single Generalkommissariat für Kriegs- und Übergangswirtschaft, General Commission for War and Transition Economy. Most Austrian school economists participated in the work of these institutions of the war economy. Only Ludwig von Mises seemed to have had serious misgivings. The monarchy lacked entrepreneurial spirit. The government budget was inflated. The internal administration was costly and deficient, and publicly owned enterprises were badly managed on the whole. When Mises was assigned to the War Economy Department of the War Ministry, he reported back to the front. His decision may have been made easier by the fact that the department was run by Hans Meyer, and that Otto Bauer and Ottmar Spann were working there as well. Mises could hardly conceal his disrespect to admire and Spann. The practice of central economic planning was continued for some time after the end of the war, which indeed suited the plans of the revolutionary socialists. The philosopher Otto Neurath, 1882-1945, thus suggested taking quick advantage of this prepared ground. Since the war organizations were still in existence, the present moment was a particularly good time for nationalization. But surely enough, such statism also prolonged the economy of scarcity. In the winter of 1919-1920, the University of Vienna had to close down for several weeks due to a lack of heating fuel. Poverty at the university also had a direct effect on the Austrian school. The Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft, Sozialpolitik und Verwaltung, Journal of Economics, Social Policy and Administration, was discontinued due to financial reasons after 26 years of unbroken publication. Numerous university lecturers from German-speaking universities of former crown lands thronged to Vienna. Some had to take early retirement, but others were given positions in the administration. The number of professorships at German-speaking universities decreased 
from 2,254, 1913-1914, to 1,206, 1917-1918. Under these unfavourable circumstances, the institutional entrenchment of economics was reconfigured, and a six-semester degree programme of political science was set up in all law faculties. The following subjects became canonical. Economics, Economic Policy, Administration Studies, Public Finance, Economic History, Statistics, Political Science, International Law, General History, and Economic Geography. For the first time, women were admitted as fully matriculated students. The title awarded upon completion of a degree program was Dr. R.E.R. Paul, Dr. Rerum Politicarum, which, by the way, was not recognized as an academic qualification for legal positions in public administration. International isolation that had developed during the war further paralyzed the Austrian school, since the school had always championed a universal understanding of science and had cultivated lively exchange with economists from all over the world, this hit something of a nerve centre. The war had now destroyed that extensive network of contacts. Even more far-reaching, and no less devastating, were the effects of the great social changes that occurred during and after the war. Members of the Austrian school stemmed predominantly from the nobility. Johann von Komorzinski, Karl Menger von Wolfensgrün, Friedrich von Wieser, Eugen von Böhm-Barberg, Eugen von Filipowitz, Hermann von Schulern zu Schattenhofen, Ludwig von Mises, at this point in time Friedrich A. von Hayek and Gottfried von Habler, were just beginning their studies. Or from the educated and propertied middle classes, Robert Meyer, Gustav Gross, Victor Mataya, Robert Zuckerkandl, Hermann Schriedland and Richard Schiller. And some had only recently been given titles. Julius Landesberger von Antheim, Ignaz Gruber von Menningen, and Ernst Seidler von Feuchtenegg. Strictly speaking, they were the true losers of the war. Originally, the ruling classes of the Habsburg monarchy, who now saw themselves exposed to progressive material impoverishment as well. There was also the disturbing experience of social powerlessness in the face of the dominance of the left. This was clearly expressed by the crude ban on all aristocratic titles. For example, at the University of Vienna, this new era became painfully apparent when von Filipowitz's vacated professorship was awarded to Ottmar Spann, an outspoken and aggressive antagonist of the school. His collectivist or universalist economics appeared to the new ruling powers as a lesser evil, and obvious candidates, Josef R. Schumpeter and Ludwig von Mises, were simply passed over. We can assume that many members of the school, looking back, saw their involvement with the centrally planned war and transition economy as an intellectus sacrificium, effecting a compromise of their worldview. Along with economic hardship, social upheaval, international isolation and hostilities from right and left, they found the situation both depressing and demoralizing. A later historian from the fringes of the Austrian school recalled the absolute desolation and complete hopelessness that prevailed. Like the Viennese middle class, the Austrian school, on account of the events of the period, appeared to be an eagle with broken wings. Chapter 16 between the Wars, from Reformation to Exodus. Friedrich Wieser, then seventy years old, was considered the doyen of the Austrian school after the First World War. 
He had wandered away from several doctrinal areas over the years, and had in fact devoted himself to questions of sociology and political science. The second edition of his Theorie der Gesellschaftlichen Wirtschaft, 1924, Social Economics, remained largely unaltered. The new edition of Menger's Principles, 1923, compiled by Menger's son Karl from his father's legacy, also remained the same in many ways. As such, it documented the standstill which had arisen in the school in the meantime. The term marginal utility, long since established, was curiously enough not mentioned even once. But then again, Menger integrated collective need, collective bedürfnis, in his revised demand theory, which, when looked upon with subjectivist hindsight, would make the new edition appear to be a step backward when compared to the first. Wieser had named his pupil Hans Meyer his successor. He was able to persuade the widely respected legal scholar Hans Kelsen, 1881-1973, to support Meyer, who was not uncontroversial, with a newspaper article. Meyer had very few publications to his name and had received his first untenured professorship in Freiburg without having first obtained his habilitation. Karl Grünberg's 1861-1940 chair became vacant shortly after Meyer's appointment. Grünberg had moved to Frankfurt after having been demoralized and worn out by the quarrels within the faculty. Mises and Schumpeter were not considered once again for different reasons. Schumpeter accepted an appointment at the University of Bonn in 1935. In 1927, after much quarreling, the Viennese chair went to Ferdinand Degenfeld-Schornburg, 1882-1952, whose writings demonstrated a simple-mindedness which one would hardly expect in an academic environment. Ottmar Spann began training a growing number of young lecturers after assuming his professorship in 1919. In contrast, the only habilitant whom the Austrian school produced after Mises was Richard Striegel. It follows that a lot was expected where Meyer was concerned, and he was indeed able to recruit a succession of talented assistants initially, all of whom would later become successful. Oskar Morgenstern, 1902-1977, Paul Rosenstein-Rodan, 1902-1985, and Alexander Gershenkorn, 1904-1978. But Meyer was hardly in a position, nor was he willing, to offer a university post to everyone interested in the Austrian school. Ludwig von Mises felt himself so hampered by this, owing to jealousies and patronizing administration during his time as an external private lecturer, that he even compared Meyer to Spann. Spann himself missed no opportunity to publicly proclaim his contempt for the individualism of the Austrian school. The feud was even fought out in newspapers for a time, and culminated in crude anti-Semitic diatribes from Ottmar Spann and his circle, in which the theory of marginal utility was called a spawn of Polish-Jewish minds, and Menger and Bernbarbeck were pejoratively referred to as Jews. It was by no means a voluntary decoupling from the university but an unwanted marginalization within the university establishment that forced the scattered remnants of the Austrian school and its new generation to attempt reconvening outside of the universities and within private initiatives that had ties to each other. In the Rockefeller Foundation, the Mises Privatseminar, Hayek's Geistkreis, the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft and in the Österreichische Institut für Konjunkturforschung. In 1924, the Rockefeller Foundation had begun to award scholarships to European social scientists. The person responsible was historian Karl Francis Prebram, 1859-1942, whose choice of students proved fortunate. 
Oskar Morgenstern, Alexander Ma, 1896-1972, Gottfried Habeler, Paul Rosenstein Rodan, and Ewald Schams, 1889-1949, all established good reputations for themselves later on. The scholarships provided funding for study visits of one to three years' duration in the United States, and later in European countries as well, all for research and or publication projects. The Mises Privatseminar, Mises' private seminar, was without doubt the most important training arena for the Austrian school. Mises was teaching at the University of Vienna, but in 1919 he started gathering young social scientists to his office in the Viennese Chamber of Commerce at Strubenring 8 bis 10 every other Friday evening. Important problems of economics, social philosophy, sociology, logic, and the epistemology of the sciences of human action were debated, and the private seminar soon became an established institution. All members of the Austrian school frequented the seminar with a few exceptions, Maya, Weiss and Ma. Alongside trained economists, the group, amounting to almost 30 regular participants, included representatives of other disciplines as well, many of whom had studied two subjects or were exceptionally talented in more than one area. Seminar members later included such well-known historians as Friedrich Engel Janosi, 1893-1978, sociologists such as Alfred Schütz, 1899-1959, constitutional law experts such as Erich Erich Vöglin, 1901-1985, and law philosophers such as Felix Kaufmann, 1895-1949. The meetings continued for several years, and as a result of the intensive exchange of ideas alone, had the effect of propagating a school of thought. The main topics were monetary theory, methodology, and questions concerning economic policy. There were also regular lectures from visiting foreign speakers. The ingenious Felix Kaufmann came up with a catchphrase for the seminar, das Verstehen, Verstehen, to understand, understanding. Another discussion group was started by Friedrich R. Hayek and Herbert Fürth, 1899-1995, after Ottmar Spann had prohibited the open exchange of ideas in his seminar in the fall of 1921. Only men were permitted to participate in the discussion. This prompted Vienna's first female doctoral student, Martha Stephanie Braun, to give the gathering the designation Geistkreis, literally Circle of Spirit, an ironically intended allusion to the self-perception of its members as a circle of exclusive highbrows. Almost all of the male Mises Privat Seminar economists were members of the Geistkreis as well. Furthermore, members made efforts to attract outstanding representatives from other faculties. In this way, the circle grew from 14 founding members in 1921 to 25 in 1938. Members of both circles earned their living in various ways. There were entrepreneurs, Engelianosi Mahlup, bankers, Bloch, Lise Hetzfeld, Schlesinger, Schütz, managers, Kaufmann, Attorneys, Fröhlich, Fürth, Scheier, Winternitz, Chamber of Commerce employees, Mises, Habeler, civil servants, Schams, Bettelheim, Gabilon, clerks at the Chamber of Employees, Striegel, a journalist, Braun, and staff members of the Konjunkturforschungsinstitut, Business Cycle Research Institute, Hayek, Morgenstern, Minz, Lovassi, Schiff, Gerschenkron. Through individual members, both groups were also connected with the circles of Hans Kelsen, Moritz Schlick, 1882-1936, and Rudolf Carnap, 1891-1970, and with Karl Menger's Mathematisches Colloquium, Mathematical Colloquium. The multifaceted Felix Kaufmann captured this remarkable and intellectually charged atmosphere in song. Core issues of the Austrian school were articulated in verse form, set of Viennese melodies, 
and sung at the close of seminar sessions. The last grenadier of the marginal utility school, the Mises Meyer debate, the lament of the Mises circle, and others. Mises wistfully recalled this time after his escape. Within this circle, Viennese culture experienced one of its last flowerings. Whereas the tradition of the Austrian school was resumed and further developed within these circles, Spann and Meyer were dissipating their energies with a downright running battle that also affected Mises and the students. From the very start, great tensions had existed between the very active Spann and Meyer, who in some respects was out of his depth. Even cursory observers noted that they hated each other. They had gotten themselves into a kind of perennial logjam that affected all of their common dealings, the business of lecturing and examining, postdoctoral graduation procedures, the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft and the Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft und Sozialpolitik, Journal of Economic, Social Policy and Administration, which was published by Friedrich von Wieser, Ernst von Plener and Ottmar Spann. The delicate balance between the antagonists toppled after Wieser's death in 1926. After a fierce clash, Spann was expelled from the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft, the society Mises had established as platform for opinion leaders from business, administration, attorneyship and academia. It was not possible to publish the Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft und Sozialpolitik from 1927 onward. As a result of these controversies, the Austrian school ended up stronger in the end. Meyer was elected president, Hayek secretary and Machlup Börser of the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft. Meyer also found himself on the board of trustees at the Österreichisches Institut für Konjunkturforschung, which was established by Mises during this same time. As it provided a number of positions relevant to the discipline, Hayek, Morgenstern, Schiff, Lovasi, Gershenkorn, publication opportunities in the Institute's own book series, and a strong network for international contact, the Institute quickly became a critical center for the school. The reconstitution of the Austrian school, both in terms of content and personnel, was presented for the first time publicly at the Zurich Convention of the Verein für Sozialpolitik in 1928, where participants of the Mises Privat Seminar set new standards and received much attention for their contributions to business cycle research. The Austrian school blossomed spectacularly from then on and until the time of political upheaval in Central Europe. The unveiling of a memorial to Karl Menger in the Arkadenhof in a courtyard of the University of Vienna during a grand academic celebration provided a clear sign of recognition. Friedrich A. Hayek, Oskar Morgenstern and Gottfried Habeler received their habilitation in 1928 and 1929 and, with their courses alongside those of Meyer, Mises and Striegel, served as a quantitative counterbalance to Spann and his circle of students for the first time in many years. Even so, personal and content-related differences made for irritation between Mises and Meyer in particular. It was those in Meyer's circle, of all things, who questioned the foundations of the Austrian monetary business cycle theory. 1930, in turn, saw the reappearance of the school's traditional journal under a new name, Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie, Journal of Economics. New standards were set in the hands of its publishers, Hans Meyer, Richard Reich and Richard Schiller, and editors Paul Rosenstein, Rodan and Oskar Morgenstern. The first volume boasted a good 800 pages, with a total of 43 essays and shorter contributions, plus 83 collective and individual reviews of altogether 59 national and international authors, and a non-German-speaking readership was expressly targeted with abstracts of every essay in English and French. 
During these years, the Austrian school intensified its contact with foreign economists by recurrently inviting them to lectures or events, particularly to those at the Mises Privatseminar or at the National Ökonomische Gesellschaft. As a result of these new contacts, Hayek received an invitation to the London School of Economics in 1931, which ultimately led to an appointment to one of its professorships. A high point of this international cooperation was the appearance of the four-volume anthology Die Wirtschaftstheorie der Gegenwart, Economic Theory of the Presence, edited by Hans Meyer, Richard Reich, and Frank A. Vetter, which united a total of 81 authors from 18 countries in more than 1,400 pages. It was only in the course of this intensive intellectual exchange that it became readily apparent to the advocates of the Austrian school that they diverged decidedly from the marginalist mainstream on some crucial points, and from the mathematically oriented Lausanne school in particular. While the Lausanne school's approach was basically static, Rosenstein, Rodan, and Shams pointed out that time is an important factor for the Austrian school, for example. Hans Meyer revealed further fundamental differences. He criticized the unrealistic nature of some of the assumptions of the Lausanne school in the most significant of his academic essays, claiming that the utility of a good can neither be measured nor infinitely divided, nor indefinitely substituted. In addition, he claimed that the valuable relationship between economic factors were not readily reversible, because effects of quantitative changes in income on the variables of mathematical economic models are unpredictable and disproportional rather than proportional. Meyer then compared the functional mechanical price theory of the Lausanne School to the causal genetic price theory, which did not exhibit the aforementioned shortcomings. It is something of tragedy that the Austrian school enjoyed a greater general recognition in Germany than ever before on the very eve of the seizure of power by the National Socialists. Hans Meyer was able to take on a guest professorship for two semesters at the University of Kiel in 1931. And Ludwig von Mises, with typical tenaciousness, succeeded in placing the problem of value as one of the main subjects on the agenda of the Convention of the Verein für Sozialpolitik in Dresden, 1932. Though the fiercest adversaries of the subjectivist theory of value did not take part in the verbal discussion in the end, the convention resulted in a marked gain in renown for the teaching from Austria. The school's international recognition and networking encouraged the translation of further standard works into English, including Wieser's Theorie der Gesellschaftlichen Wirtschaft, Social Economics, 1927, Hayek's Geldtheorie und Konjunkturtheorie, Monetary Theory and the Trade Cycle, 1933, or the Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel, the Theory of Money and Credit, 1934, and the Gemeinwirtschaft, Socialism, an Economic and Social Analysis by Mises. Moreover, the many foreign scholarships led to the first foreign-language primary editions like Hayek's Prices in Production or the biographical sketch Karl Menger. Some of these publications were not or only much later translated into German, such as Rosenstein Rodin's La Complementarita, or Habler's Prosperity and Depression. This is an obvious reflection of the gradual disengagement of the Austrian school from its German language and Austrian intellectual and cultural traditions. Mises, filled with misgivings, wrote to his student and friend Machlup in 1934 that as a consequence of Hitlerism, the German language would lose its prominence and that English would become the future language of economics. By the 1930s, personal and academic connections with the English-speaking world already served as links to professional careers outside the country. Hayek and Rosenstein-Rodan received appointments in London 
in the same year, 1931. Habler accepted an invitation to Harvard University, 1931, moved to the League of Nations in Geneva, 1934, and returned to Harvard again later on. Indeed, the atmosphere at home contributed in no small part to the younger generations trying to make its fortune elsewhere. The smug to hostile treatment of intellectual elites at that time has aptly been described as embezzlement for Untreuung. The politically unstable situation, the establishment of a corporate state, and the noticeable receptiveness for the social theories of Spann were accompanied by an increasingly aggressive repudiation of everything liberal or individual or what was thought of as such. For this purpose, Spann came up with the derogatory epithet Neu-Liberal, neoliberal. Faced with censorship, the advocates of the Austrian school finally gave up their attempt to influence public opinion, and their retreat was the first step towards inner emigration. Furthermore, the increase in open anti-Semitism made some members of the school exiles in their own countries. Fritz Machlub, for example, was told at the University of Vienna that his application for habilitation would not be facilitated due to anti-Semitic reservations. The seriousness and hopelessness of the situation had in the meantime been demonstrated by Mises' relocation to Geneva, where he was at least able to obtain a very well-paid teaching post. After that, the Viennese Privatseminar ceased to exist. In a letter to Machlup in the year that followed, Hayek summed up a recent visit to Vienna, commenting that he had found the city comparatively unchanged, but that the intellectual atmosphere had declined visibly, particularly in the field of economics. After the exodus of Mises, Hayek, Haberler, Machlup, and Rosenstein Rodan, the director of the Institut für Konjunkturforschung, Oskar Morgenstern, became the most important representative of the school in Austria. Morgenstern carried out policy changes in two ways. First, both the Institute and the Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie were opened up to mathematical economists. Between 1935 and 1937, Karl Schlesinger, Abraham Wald, 1902-1950, and Johann von Neumann, 1903-1957, wrote five important essays in close contact with the Mathematisches Colloquium of the young Menger which prepared the ground for the neoclassical theory of equilibrium. Next, Morgenstern attempted, with only modest success, to establish himself as advisor of the corporate regime until he had no choice but to realize that the structure of the corporate state was inevitably based on lobbyism. The geographical separation of the Austrian school members who had emigrated was accompanied by a content-related and personal estrangement. The annexation Anschluss of Austria by Nazi Germany in March 1938 abruptly ended the beginnings of mathematically oriented economics rooted in the Austrian school. Jewish-Hungarian Karl Schlesinger, a long-time patron of the Austrian school and himself a qualified economist oriented toward mathematics, was one of the first victims. He committed suicide on the day of the invasion. In the days that followed, his dismal assessment of the situation proved well-founded for most of the other remaining members of the school, Helene Lieser and Herbert Fürth were imprisoned for a short time. Erich Schiff was taken into custody and forced to clean toilets, and Erich Wöglin had to endure a house search. At the universities, all lecturers and professors who were either Jewish or otherwise disliked by the Nazis lost their license to teach, among them Schiller, Habler and Morgenstern, and Wilhelm Winkler, a statistics professor sympathetic to the school. Hans Bayer, who originated from and sympathized with the Austrian school, was suspended from duty at the University of Innsbruck. Morgenstern was abroad at the time of annexation and did not return. 
he was replaced as director of the Institute in Austria by his deputy, Richard Kamitz, 1907-1993, who later became finance minister. Meanwhile, Hans Meyer, as president of the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft, implemented the so-called Aria-Paragraph and excluded all Jews from the society. Most members of the Austrian school left the country in the following weeks, some of them under perilous circumstances. The list includes Erich Vöglin, Felix Kaufmann, Alfred Schütz, Victor Bloch, Marianne von Herzfeld, Helene Lieser, Erich Schiff, Gertrud Lovasi, Alexander Gerschenkorn, Ilse Mint Schüller and her father Richard Schüller, and also Martha Stefanie. Among those who stayed was Ludwig Bettelheim Gabilon, who later died in a concentration camp, Leo Illy Schoenfeld, and Richard Striegel retreated into inner emigration. With his paper about Wichsel's process, Der Wichselsche Prozess, Striegel before he died of brain tumor in 1942, made one more unequivocal stand against the predominant belief in an endless political possibility of shaping economic conditions. Hans Meyer, Ewald Ma, and Ewald Schams remained in Austria and tried to adjust to the new circumstances. All the same, the Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie could only be published sporadically and in a reduced form. The Karl Menger Memorial, which in 1929 had been unveiled in the inner courtyard of the university and subsequently removed by the university administration, was defiled by Nazi students shortly after the annexation. When Meyer and Ma resumed their lectures at the University of Vienna after the war, Schams did the same at the Technische Hochschule, and with some difficulty, they did not even come close to reconnecting with the past. The seventy-year-old tradition of the Austrian school soon fell into oblivion. In a balance sheet showing the losses of the emigration, such was the title of an essay by Karl H. Müller, Verlustbilanz der Emigration, the Austrian school would appear only as a noted item. The substance of such a balance sheet item, however, is in its hidden assets, lying dormant in the residual value. Chapter 17 Ludwig von Mises The Logician of Freedom There is a photo in his wife's published memoirs showing Ludwig von Mises taking a stroll through the Prater in Vienna. The Wiener Prater is a large public park in the second district of Vienna, referred to simply as the Prater by locals. It is August of 1901. You see a slim, young man of medium height in imperial uniform. He is carrying an impressive sword, wearing a helmet richly decorated with golden braid and emblems, high boots, riding breeches, and a close-fitting jacket buttoned up right to the top. His lips, which are adorned by a small moustache, form a whimsical smile. Mises was just twenty years old. Looking at later photos, one gets the impression that he found it increasingly difficult to smile. His face displays a melancholy, introverted expression, something austere and sensitive at the same time. One sees a man who appears unrelenting but vulnerable. For a long time, maybe too long, he lived with his mother. At the age of fifty-seven, and shortly after his mother died, he ventured into a late marriage with his long-standing girlfriend Margit Sereni Herzfeld, whom hardly anyone had known about for over a decade. They married in Geneva. The witnesses were Gottfried von Habeler and Hans Kelsen, a former school associate who could hardly believe he was seeing his friend at the office of the county clerk. Margit von Mises, who had two children from a previous marriage, describes her Lou as tender and modest and in need of love, withdrawn and dejected, 
that sometimes also was irascible and quick-tempered. She neglected her own professional ambitions. She was an actress, dancer, and translator, in order to look after her husband and enable him to work undisturbed and in comfort. The household remained small and modest, but this did not infringe upon the couple's affectionate ways. The scholar had found his muse, and she hers. She let him work as much as he wanted. They usually went on lecture trips together, spent their vacations in the mountains, and remained devoted to each other into old age. Only once did his wife have to be firm with him. She forbade him from driving a car ever again, after an act of carelessness at the wheel had caused injuries to her face and broken five of his ribs. Ludwig von Mises, whose great-great-grandfather had been knighted by Emperor von Joseph, came from a family of assimilated Jews. He was born in Nemberg, Galicia, in 1881. A few years after his birth, his father took over a senior position in the railway ministry in Vienna. At the age of ten, Ludwig witnessed the serious illness and death of one of his younger brothers. His relationship with his brother Richard, who later became a famous mathematician, remained strained all of his life. Ludwig attended the Akademisches Gymnasium, studied law, and after a short term as a project supervisor in the civil service in 1909, began his career at the Viennese Chamber of Commerce. As an ordinary civil servant of the Chamber administration for the next 35 years, where he received lifetime tenure, making it impossible for him to be dismissed under Austrian civil service law, he effectively became one of the country's leading economists. In his role of economic advisor, he came into regular contact with government members. In late-night discussions in the winter of 1918-1919, for example, he was able to convince Otto Bauer, the leader of the Social Democrats, to thwart a Bolshevist experiment in Vienna. During this time he met and became friends with Max Weber, 1844-1919, who had begun to teach at the University of Vienna after the war, but died unexpectedly soon afterward. Influenced by Karl Menger and Eugen von Birnbarberg, Ludwig von Mises devoted himself to the ideas of the Austrian school even as a young man. In 1912 he achieved his habilitation with his Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel, the theory of money and credit. The broadly reaching economic subjects he dealt with subsequently were mostly problems for which he considered the prevailing opinion false. Mises did little to conceal the fact that he felt nothing but contempt for quite a few of his fellow economists. His opinions, in particular those concerning German tenured professors, were severe and ruthless. In social democratic post-war Austria, he only managed to gain a post as an unsalaried lecturer. The new ruling powers resented him bitterly for his emphatic opposition to all forms of collectivist ideology. In 1927, along with fellow campaigner Friedrich R. Hayek, and with the support of his employer, Mises succeeded in founding the independent Österreichisches Institut für Konjunkturforschung, the precursor of today's Österreichisches Institut für Wirtschaftsforschung, WIFO. His private seminar which he held every second week in the Viennese Chamber of Commerce, and from which, between 1921 and 1934, the next generation of the Austrian school, including economists, lawyers, and sociologists like Gottfried Habeler, Felix Kaufmann, Fritz Machlub, Oskar Morgenstern, Paul N. Rosenstein-Rodan, Alfred Schütz, Richard Striegel, and Eric Erich Vögelin, would emerge, 
helped to re-establish the Austrian school after the First World War. His students valued Mises as a thoughtful and inspiring teacher. They met regularly after these fortnightly sessions in a nearby bar, where the discussions continued. Despite being without a doubt an academic outsider, Mises regarded himself as the economist of the land. Mises accepted the offer of a guest professorship in Geneva in the spring of 1934, after the Nazis had gained power in Germany. As a civil servant of the Viennese Chamber of Commerce, he took advantage of an early retirement, but until 1938 remained in contact with his employer, under whose mandate he advised the Austrian government and central bank. On the evening of the annexation, Nazis broke into his apartment and seized his library and papers. His writings were a thorn in the side of all manner of collectivists, socialists, communists, national socialists, fascists, and later also the advocates of the so-called welfare economy in Europe and the United States. He would see neither his library nor his notes and manuscripts again. While in Geneva, aside from teaching, Mises dedicated himself primarily to the completion of his magnum opus Nationalökonomie, Theorie des Handelns und Wirtschaftens, 1940. As a result of the confusion caused by war and the bankruptcy of his Swiss publisher, however, it remained largely unnoticed. In the same year, he fled with his wife via impossible routes from Geneva via France, with the Nazi henchmen on their tails, to Spain, Portugal, and finally to New York. In the United States, Mises, now almost sixty years old, had to make do with his savings and small scholarships. But international, political events, and if nothing else, being forced to leave his home country, were particularly hard to deal with. The couple had to pick up and move several times within a short period. The fact that he had learned English only by reading also created some problems for him at first. He considered it good fortune to accept, with gratitude, the U.S. citizenship that was conferred upon him a few years later. In 1945, he secured a post as visiting professor at New York University, where he, until 1969, schooled further Austrians, such as Marie and Rothbard, 1926-1995, and Israel Kirtner, born 1930. Once in New York, Ludwig von Mises resumed the task of publishing his work. Omnipotent Government, 1944, Bureaucracy, 1944, and Planned Chaos, 1947, appeared in speedy succession. Human Action, a Treatise on Economics, 1949, the revised English edition of his magnum opus, Nationalökonomie, gradually brought him the success he had longed for. In these, as also in earlier and later works, the anti-capitalistic mentality, 1956, and theory and history, 1957, for example, Mises always proved to be an astute observer and thinker who remained true to his principles. He anticipated some developments as logically foreseeable consequences long before they actually happened, for example, the World Depression at the end of the 1920s, the economic failure of fascism, National Socialism, and in particular, Soviet Communism. Because of his radical liberal stance, he rejected state intervention in the economic process and wrote emphatically against statist claims throughout his lifetime. He distanced himself explicitly, however, from anarchism. Nevertheless, the effect of his ideas over time was that libertarian and anarcho-capitalist movements in the United States would choose Ludwig von Mises, the tenured civil servant from Austria, to be one of their intellectual forefathers. Mises's opponents, who were always in the majority, categorized him as obstinate, intolerant, and extreme. His students emphasized the intellectual openness and broad-mindedness 
which prevailed in his private seminar. He remained convinced that his theses reflected truth and that his work was meaningful, even though it brought him neither wealth nor academic glory during his lifetime. His work exhibits a rare clarity and straightforwardness, independent of political circumstances and fashions of the time. He finally retired from teaching at the university at the age of 87. He died in New York a few years later, 1973, at the age of 92. He claimed to have, quite atypically for an Austrian, attempted the impossible. I fought because there was nothing else I could do. And throughout his life he remained loyal to the motto he had chosen early on. Tu ne sede malis, sed contra audientior ito. Do not give in to evil, but proceed ever more boldly against it. From Virgil's Aeneid. Chapter 18. Friedrich August von Hayek. Grand Seigneur on the Fence. Friedrich August's great-grandfather, Josef Hayek, on account of his commercial success, was knighted by Emperor Joseph II a few weeks before the French Revolution in 1789. He had risen to a state administrator and had founded two textile factories near Brunn and Vienna. The family fortune was largely lost during the course of the 19th century, but the family in turn produced a high school principal, an ornithologist, a botanist, a chemist, a beetle specialist, and three physicians. Friedrich August's father, who worked as a physician as well, published standard works on Austria's botanical geography in his free time, which led to his being offered an unsalaried lecture post at the University of Vienna. His mother, Felicitas, whose kinship to the Wittgensteins and whose friendship with the royal imperial finance minister Eugen von Böhm-Barwerk, contributed significantly to the social status of the family, raised three more academics. The two youngest sons, Erich and Heinrich, started careers as a chemist and anatomist, respectively. But Friedrich August, born on May 8, 1899, would make his family's name known worldwide. Young Fritz accompanied his father on botanical expeditions into the region surrounding Vienna early on. Here he received his first training in scientific methodology, as a photographic assistant. Through his family, he became acquainted with the future Nobel Prize winners Erwin Schrödinger, 1887-1961, Karl von Frisch, 1886-1982, and Konrad Lorenz, 1903-1982, who had been fascinated by geese, even as a young child. These men would become his valued colleagues. His parents placed little importance on religious education, but they did accompany him to the Burgtheater, where he became acquainted with the works of the great playwrights. During Hayek's middle school years, he displayed the typical signs of a gifted student who was not being sufficiently challenged. He attracted the teacher's attention, usually in a negative way, due to his intelligence, laziness, and lack of concentration and interest. At the same time, he would read Aristotle and socialist pamphlets, especially during religious education, and under his desk at that. After graduating from the Elisabeth Gymnasium and serving as an officer in the First World War, he enrolled at the University of Vienna to study law, but spent most of his time concerned with economics, psychology, the philosophy of science, and philosophy. Hayek read works by Menger and Böhm-Bawerk, made initial contact with the Austrian school, and also got to know some members of the Wiener Kreis. The Vienna Circle, was a group of philosophers of logical positivism at the University of Vienna from 1922 to 1936, 
chaired by Moritz Schlick, 1882-1936. Insufficient opportunities for the training and employment of psychologists finally made him decide to deepen his knowledge of economics as part of his political science studies under Friedrich von Wieser, who would later be his doctoral advisor. Wieser also supervised his habilitation in political economy in 1929. After receiving his law doctorate in 1921, Hayek, along with Josef Herbert Fürth, an old friend from his youth and from his time at the university, founded a private discussion group, the so-called Geistkreis. Gottfried Habeler, Fritz Machlup, Felix Kaufmann, Oskar Morgenstern, Erik Wögeling, and Alfred Schütz, among others, belonged to its inner circle. Like many of his generation, who returned from the battlefields of the First World War, Hayek sympathized with socialist ideas, but he was quickly persuaded otherwise by reading Mises's Die Gemeinwirtschaft, 1922, Socialism, which contained the proof that economic calculation was impossible in a socialist community. Hayek subsequently took up a professional position in the newly formed Abrechnungsamt, an institution created to process reparation payments and to deal with the consequences of war, and in which Mises was one of his superiors. In 1923, Hayek finished a second doctoral thesis in political science, and then spent a year studying in the United States. Mises recognized Hayek's talent quite early on, and invited him to his private seminar. With him, he established the Österreichisches Institut für Konjunkturforschung, where Hayek was able to perform difficult pioneering work at the economic grassroots. Hayek's scholarly contributions, which gradually brought him international recognition, led to Geldtheorie und Konjunkturtheorie, 1929, Monetary Theory and the Trade Cycle, a treatise which would eventually become his Habilitation paper, and enabled him to take up a post as unsalaried lecturer at the University of Vienna. At the invitation of Lionel Robbins, 1898-1984, in 1931, Hayek was given the opportunity to give a guest lecture at the London School of Economics. He made such a good impression that he was promptly offered a tenured professorship. Every Thursday evening he held a seminar which was attended by prominent economists, such as John Hicks, 1904-1989, and Abba P. Lerner, 1903-1982, and representatives of the Austrian school as well, including Gottfried Habler, Fritz Machlub, and Paul Rosenstein-Rodan. Hayek was soon enriching London's cosmopolitan scholarly community, along with Ludwig Wittgenstein, 1889-1951, art historian Ernst Gomrich, 1909-2001, and Karl Popper, 1902-1994, who also attended the seminar. But at the end of the 1930s, and while on the way to becoming John Maynard Keynes's 1883-1946 major opponent, Hayek became more isolated academically. Having spoken out against the policy of expansive state employment and having warned against its inflationary consequences during the nadir of the Great Depression, his recommendations hardly offered much scope to politicians keen on implementing policies. By contrast, Keynes's proposals pressing for further government intervention were gladly seized upon by politicians and within a short time became the guidelines for economic policy decisions. Hayek considered himself an Englishman at heart. He held the philosophy of the Scottish Enlightenment and the English legal system in equal esteem, and became a citizen of Great Britain in 1938. If one cannot fight against the Nazis, one ought to at least fight the ideas which produce Nazism, wrote Hayek in a letter to Fritz Machlup in 1941. Thereafter he began preliminary work on The Road 
to serfdom, a haunting analysis of the German and Soviet varieties of socialism that also described democratic socialism as an insidious path to servitude. The book appeared in 1944, during the Second World War, and was a resounding publishing success. It made Hayek famous worldwide. In April 1945, an abridged version appeared in the Reader's Digest and reached more than 600,000 readers. It was followed in 1950 by a comic strip version in Look magazine. This popular warning against the threatening post-war totalitarian collectivism brought about by holding on to the planned war economy in peacetime and the awaited dynamics of any centrally planned economy fell on fertile ground. Opponents of socialism found in it ample intellectual ammunition. But since Hayek's ideas during the Cold War were also appropriated politically and put into the same category as other non-socialist schools of thought and movements, his reputation as a social scientist was quickly ruined. In 1947, he managed, nonetheless, to gather in Vivier, on the shores of Lake Geneva, 39 non-collectivist thinkers from all over the world whose aims were to discuss the future of liberalism on a broader basis. Among them, Wilhelm Röpke, 1899-1966, Walter Eucken, 1891-1950, Ludwig Erhardt, 1897-1977, Milton Friedman, 1912-2006, Henry Hazlitt, 1894-1983, Karl Popper, Fritz Machlub, Lionel Robbins, 1898-1984, and also Ludwig von Mises. With this was founded the Mont Pelerin Society, a kind of liberal internationale, which serves to this day as a platform for advocates of a free market economy. After the war, Hayek married his cousin, Helene Varhanek, with whom he had cultivated an intimate connection for some time. Complicating the matter was that both had to file for divorce first. Hayek's first wife put up considerable resistance, and Helene Varhanek's husband died shortly before the appointed divorce date. After some troubling times, the couple moved to the University of Chicago in 1950, where Hayek assumed a tenured professorship for moral and social sciences. This suited him very well, as he was able to offer all manner of different programs and maintain contacts far beyond the scope of his primary subject area. In the two decades that followed, Hayek would publish those works that would secure his lasting importance as a theoretician of a liberal society. Individualism and Economic Order, 1948, The Sensory Order, 1952, and his magnum opus, The Constitution of Liberty, 1960. He returned to Europe in 1962 and took over Walter Eucken's chair for applied economics at the University of Freiburg. He presented the fruits of his work in social philosophy most impressively in his Freiburger Studien, 1969. After becoming Professor Emeritus, Hayek took up a guest professorship at the University of Salzburg, but this was a move he soon regretted on account of petty bureaucratic quarrels and the country's intellectual climate. He returned to Freiburg after having a heart attack and wrote his three-volume late work, Law, Legislation and Liberty, 73, 76, 79, Denationalization of Money, 1977, and finally The Fatal Conceit, The Errors of Socialism, 1988. It summarized the very essence of his thinking for the last time. He died in Freiburg in 1992, at the age of 93, and was buried in Vienna. In 1974, a year after Mises' death, Friedrich August von Hayek was awarded the Sverius Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel for his work on the theory of the business cycle. 
Remarkably, he had to share it with Swedish Social Democrat Gunnar Myrdal, 1898-1987. But Hayek's work went far beyond pure economics. Expert circles considered him not just an economist, but also a philosopher of law, an ethicist, a social theoretician, a historian of ideas, a legal expert, a theoretician of science, a systems theoretician, and a theoretical psychologist. It's much more the case with social sciences than with natural sciences, wrote Hayek in his Freiburger Studien, that a particular problem cannot be solved by just one of the specialist subjects. Not only political science and law, but also ethnology and psychology and, of course, history, are subjects with which an economist should be more familiar than is possible for one human being. And the problems of economics overlap time and again with those of philosophy above all. It is certainly no coincidence that in a country that had long taken the lead in economics, namely England, almost all great economists were philosophers as well. And all great philosophers were significant economists too, at least in the past. Chapter 19 Other Members of the Younger Austrian School This chapter introduces other members of the young Austrian school who achieved their habilitation. The order is determined by the year of their respective degrees. In addition, further students, whose work was published, are presented in summarized form. The account will concentrate on the years up to 1938, which marks the end of the school in Austria. Richard Reich, 1866-1938 Reich studied law in Vienna and Innsbruck, and after his PhD in 1889, went into finance administration. In 1910, he was promoted to head of department. Later, he became director of the Bodenkreditanstalt and subsequently acted as undersecretary of the Staatsamt für Finanzen, 1919-1920, and as president of the Österreichische Nationalbank, 1922-1932. In the course of his work, he was able to distinguish himself as a resolute advocate of a rigorously balanced budget. In 1906, Reich received his habilitation in finance law and, until 1928, taught accounting at the University of Vienna. In addition, he was co-publisher of the compilation edition Wirtschaftstheorie der Gegenwart, Economic Theory of the Present, 1927-1932, and of the Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie, Journal of Economics, 1930-1937. He himself published several articles on questions of payment transactions and monetary policy. Hans Meyer, 1879-1955. Born and raised in Vienna, Meyer received his PhD in law in 1907 and worked in the Austrian finance administration until 1911. This included a year of study in Heidelberg. Meyer never achieved his habilitation. His personnel file contains the following short memo. Prior to completing habilitation at the university, due to unpublished manuscripts, theory of price formation, appointed untenured professor at the University of Freiburg. After leaving Freiburg, he went to the Deutsche Technische Hochschule in Prague. When the war was over, he worked as director of the financial planning section in the Austrian Army Administration in Vienna. In 1921, he took up a position as professor in Graz, and in 1923, he was appointed successor to Friedrich von Wieser in Vienna. Meyer was constantly involved in trench warfare with his opponent, Ottmar Spann. His relationship with Mises was also strained. Despite his small number of academic contributions, 
Meyer hardly wrote more than a handful of essays and some articles in the fourth edition of the Handwörterbuch der Staatswissenschaften, concise dictionary of political sciences. He was made dean of the faculty in 1927-1928 and received offers from Frankfurt, 1927, Bonn, 1932, and Kiel, 1933. He already moved into the highest earning bracket in middle age. Friedrich Wieser had used every opportunity to cultivate Hans Meyer. He was an influential mentor and developed a kind of father-son relationship with him. After Wieser's death, Meyer moved into the house left to him by Wieser in Vienna's 19th district. The tall, slim, strawberry-blonde beau with a winning appearance was unable to fulfill academic expectations. He remained a loner, who kept a notable distance between himself and most other members of the Austrian school. By and large, Judgments about Meyer are unfavorable and not free of personal resentments. From the emigre's point of view, Meyer's career embodied the dark side of the country they had been forced to leave, the favoritism, the cautious commitment, the smug complacency, and the blatant opportunism, all of which made it possible for him to swear an oath of loyalty to a total of five different regimes. Richard von Striegel, 1891-1942 Richard von Striegel, who came from a bohemian family to which the civil service was not unknown, obtained the Doctorate of Law in Vienna in 1914. In 1922, during the course of his professional work in ancillary institutions of the Arbeitskammer, Chamber of Workers, he achieved his habilitation with a methodological paper that appeared in an expanded edition as Die Ökonomischen Kategorien und die Organisation der Wirtschaft, 1923. Apart from lecturing at the University of Vienna, he also taught at the Hochschule für Welthandel, College for World Trade, today University of Economics and Business. As a long-time participant in the Mises Seminar, and as one of the few students of the Austrian school who had achieved the Habilitation, Striegel was held in high esteem in the post-war years, as a person and professionally. He refined the Austrian money and business cycle theory in Kapital und Produktion, 1934, Capital and Production, which described how changes in the value of money inevitably lead to false allocations. Like all of his writings, his textbook, Einführung in die Grundlagen der Nationalökonomie, 1937, Introduction to the Basics of Economics, is characterized by its factual, clear, and intelligible style. Educated in the classics, cultivated and originating from a family with liberal traditions, Striegel remained in the country after the annexation and died of a brain tumor in 1942. Franz Xaver Weiss, born 1885, year of death unknown. This native-born Viennese with Jewish roots completed a doctoral degree in law in his hometown in 1909. After writing an article entitled Die moderne Tendenz in der Lehre vom Geldwert, 1910, Modern Trends in the Teaching of the Value of Money, he started working in the Wiener Kaufmannschaft, Viennese Merchants' Society, and in his spare time worked on Böhm-Bawek's theory of interest. Weiss wrote some articles for the third edition of the Handwörterbuch der Staatswissenschaften, Concise Dictionary of Political Sciences, was editor of the Zeitschrift für Volkswirtschaft und Sozialpolitik, Journal of Economics and Social Policy, from 1921 to 1925, and published shorter writings of Böhm-Bawek, whom he admired, 1924 and 1926. In his Habilitation, he renewed and expanded the critique of David Ricardo, which led to his being offered an appointment at the Deutsche Technische Hochschule in Prague. 
In addition, he lectured at the Deutsche Universität Prag. In the 1920s and 1930s, he published several papers about the theory of value, ground rent, and the problem of value. Weiss disputed the view held by Mises that liberalism and the subjectivist theory of value naturally belonged together. It is not possible to determine the year of his death, but he is said to have survived Nazi rule in Bohemia by going underground. Alexander Marr, 1896-1972 From Popitznirtsnaim, in today's Moravia, Marr graduated in Vienna with a PhD in German, Scandinavian Studies and History in 1921. He took an additional doctoral degree in political sciences, becoming a Dr. R. E. R. Paul in 1925. He subsequently received a scholarship from the Rockefeller Foundation and was able to achieve his habilitation shortly after his return in 1930. But as a student of Meyer, critical of Birnbach, as Mises and Hayek pointed out when looking at his earlier work on price, interest and monetary theory and foreign exchange policy, Ma remained an outsider. He was one of the few representatives of the Austrian school who participated neither in the Mises Privat Seminar nor in the Geistkreis. Ma remained in Austria after 1938 and worked in the Central Office for Statistics until he took over Meyer's chair in 1950. At the end of the war, Ma attempted as a genuine advocate of the fundamental ideas of the Austrian or Viennese school to come to a compromise with mathematical economics and the Keynesian paradigm. Oskar Morgenstern, 1902-1977 Originating from Görlitz in Saxony, Morgenstern studied political science in Vienna, where he became Meyer's assistant when only a student. He took his doctoral degree in 1925. After several years of studying abroad, he worked with Hayek in the Österreichische Institut für Konjunkturforschung and two years later became his successor. With Wirtschaftsprognose, eine Untersuchung ihrer Voraussetzungen und Möglichkeiten, Economic Forecasting, a study of its prerequisites and possibilities, he achieved the Habilitation in 1929 and lectured in Vienna up until 1938. Morgenstern soon belonged to the inner circle of the Austrian school by virtue of his intellectual brilliance and remarkable energy. As university lecturer, director of the Institut für Konjunkturforschung, editor of the Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie, Journal of Economics, board member of the Nationalökonomische Gesellschaft, advisor to the Österreichische Nationalbank, the Central Bank of Austria, and the Ministry of Trade, participant at the Mises Privatseminar, and initiator and author of regular columns on economic policy, he was active in almost every field. Morgenstern distanced himself from Mises when Mises began, from 1933 onward, to advocate a priorism openly. His turn to it mathematics further deepened the rift that separated him from Mises, but the situation never escalated, most likely due to Mises' hastened move to Geneva. Morgenstern lost his teaching license and was removed from office as director of the Institute in the course of the Nazi annexation of Austria in 1938. He subsequently emigrated to the United States, settled at Princeton University, and along with the mathematician John von Neumann, 1903-1957, published the groundbreaking Theory of Games and Economic Behavior, 1944. Morgenstern soon ranked among the American elite of social scientists and worked for renowned think tanks, the Atomic Energy Commission and the White House. In helping to found the Institut für Höhere Studien, 
Institute for Advanced Studies in Vienna in 1963, and taking on a scientific advisory office, he remained tied to his country of origin until his death. Gottfried Haberle, 1900-1995, the descendant of a minor aristocratic family of civil servants, von Haberle von Porkersdorf near Vienna, Haberle. Gained his doctorates in law and political science, 1923 and 1925 respectively, where after he worked in the Chamber of Commerce. In 1927 and 1928, he graduated from postdoctoral studies in London and Harvard respectively. He achieved his habilitation with Der Sinn der Indexzahlen, 1927, the meaning of index numbers. After his return, in addition to his lectures at the University of Vienna. Some of which were held jointly with Hayek and Morgenstern. He participated regularly in the Mises Privat Seminar, and gave guest lectures at Harvard University, 1931-1932, from time to time. He quickly gained international recognition for his research on international trade. In 1934, Habele received an offer to write a broad compilation of all current business cycle theories that was later included in his main work, Prosperity and Depression, 1937. And which subsequently brought him into contact with most of the world's well-known economists. He accepted an appointment at Harvard shortly after its publication. Haberle was politically undesirable. He was stripped of his teaching certification during his absence immediately after the annexation. In the years that followed, he used his excellent contacts and his organizational talents to help emigrants and exiles in many ways. Haberle gained an excellent reputation in the United States, became advisor to the Board of Governors of the American Central Banking System, and was later elected to a series of honorary offices, such as President of the American Economic Association in 1963. He maintained ties with the Austrian school until his death. Hans Bayer, 1903-1965. Bayer, the son of a Viennese Hofrat. A title granted to civil servants for long-standing commendable services, gained his doctorate in political science in 1924 and became Meyer's assistant. In 1929, he obtained a doctorate in law at the University of Innsbruck, and in the same year achieved his habilitation in Vienna with a paper concerning the Lausanne Schule und die Österreichische Schule der Nationalökonomie, Lausanne School and the Austrian School of Economics. Thereafter. He worked as an attorney in the Niederösterreichische Gewerbeverein, Lower Austrian Trade Association, a secretary general of the Hoteliersvereinigung, Hoteliers Association, and from 1934 as secretary of the Kammer für Arbeiter und Angestellte, Chamber of Workers and Employees. In 1937, he became untenured professor in Innsbruck, but immediately after the annexation was given compulsory leave and transferred to the ministry. After the war. He returned to Innsbruck as a professor, and in 1956 became director of the Sozialakademie of the Dortmund University of Technology. The Sozialakademie is the institute at the Dortmund University of Technology whose work consists in training labor representatives. Bayer began distancing himself from the research agenda of the Austrian school in the early 1930s, worked on questions of economic and labor policy, and came to terms with the corporate state. Although he continued to show sympathy for the Austrian school, he kept his distance on matters of content and followed the Keynesian mainstream. Further authors of the younger Austrian school: If everything had gone according to plan, Fritz Machlup, Machlup Wolf, 
1902-1983, would have been positioned in the above list of scholars with habilitationen. The son of a Jewish businessman grew up in Wiener Neustadt. In addition to working in his parents' cardboard factory, he studied political science in Vienna, where he gained his doctoral degree under Mises with Die Goldkernwährung, 1925, the gold bullion standard. He participated in the Mises Privat Seminar regularly, and in addition to his business activity wrote reviews, essays, books, and more than 150 newspaper articles. Being an entrepreneur and workaholic, he was also active in the Austrian cardboard cartel, and from 1929 to 1933 taught at the Volkshochschule Ottakring. The Volkshochschule was an adult education center primarily attended by blue-collar workers. Ottakring, Vienna's 16th district, was dominated by blue-collar workers with a strong socialist bent. Machlup originally wanted to gain his habilitation with Börsenkredit, Industriekredit und Kapitalbildung, 1931, the stock market, credit and capital formation, a sound analysis of stock market finance from the point of view of Austrian monetary theory, but Professor Spann and Degenfeld Schoenburg informed him that his application would not be considered on account of his Jewish origin. Also, Meyer was not prepared to support one of Mises' students. Machlup left the country in 1933 and was offered a guest professorship at Harvard University in 1934. One year later, he sold the shares of his factory in the lower Austrian Ibs Valley and emigrated permanently to the United States. During the war, he stood by many persecuted Austrians and assisted them in leaving the country or escaping. In the U.S., Machlup carried on with his academic career at various universities. He focused in particular on international currency problems and questions regarding competition and market forms, and laid the foundations for an economic theory of knowledge. In 1966, he was elected president of the American Economic Association. Fritz Machlup was always described as an extraordinary personality. His agility, intellectual clarity, esprit, and great didactic abilities were an inspiration. One American student, obviously impressed by this ball of energy from Wiener Neustadt, composed a rhyme in his honor which included the line Mach one, Mach two, Mach three, Machlup. Like Machlup, Paul Nazis Rosenstein Rodan, 1902-1985, also from a Jewish family in Krakow, did not receive his habilitation due to reasons involving race and faculty policy. Rosenstein Rodan gained his doctorate in law in Vienna and became Meyer's assistant. At the age of 25, he wrote the much-acclaimed article on the notion of marginal utility for the fourth edition of the Handwerter Buch der Staatswissenschaften, Concise Dictionary of Political Sciences. It was followed by an equally prominent contribution on the role of time. He triggered an international debate by showing that the role of time was not, as a rule, taken properly into account in the economic concept of equilibrium. In 1931, Rosenstein-Rodan received an appointment to teach at University College in London, whereafter he distinguished himself as a highly esteemed expert on developing countries. His last position was that of associate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Ewald Schams, 1889-1949, studied in Graz under Schumpeter and worked in Vienna as Sektionsrat, one of the highest-ranking civil servants in the Ministry for Education. In addition, he taught as an unsalaried lecturer at the Technische Hochschule, University of Technology in Vienna, and was a regular participant in the Mises Privatseminar. Schams 
who according to Hayek had a reticent, upright appearance reminiscent of an officer, was an outstanding expert of the Lausanne school of Léon Valras. He was accomplished in mathematics and worked on questions of methodology and epistemology in particular. After the annexation, he remained in the country and adapted to the Nazi regime. This was also the reason why, at the war's end, he was not able to return to the Technische Hochschule until 1947. After studying in Freiburg im Breisgau in Germany, Martha Stephanie Braun, 1898-1990, became, in 1921, one of the first women to gain a doctorate in political science at the University of Vienna. She worked thereafter as a freelance business journalist. As a participant in a Mises Privat seminar, she continually wrote reviews and articles on banking and monetary economics and questions concerning economic policy. In 1929, she published her Theorie der staatlichen Wirtschaftspolitik, Theory of State-Run Economic Policy, the first German-language attempt at a theoretical rationale and definition of economic policy. After the annexation, she emigrated to the United States, where she anglicized her name to Martha Steffi Brown and held, as her last position, a professorship at Brooklyn College. Erich Schief, 1901-1992, was born in Vienna, and proved in Kapitalbildung und Kapitalaufzehrung im Konjunkturverlauf, 1933, formation and depletion of capital in the course of the business cycle, that the depreciation of money undermines a company's calculation assumptions and therefore inevitably leads to malinvestment. After holding a post at the Institut für Konjunkturforschung in 1927-1928, he worked as a newspaper editor and attended the Mises Privat Seminar regularly. On account of his Jewish origins, he fled to the United States in 1938, where he continued to work in economics. Karl Schlesinger, 1889-1939, was one of the most outstanding personalities from the wider Austrian school circle, but is almost forgotten as an economist today. He fled from the Hungarian Soviet Republic to Vienna, pursued a career in banking, and ended up working as deputy director of the Anglo-Österreichische Bank and as chairman of the Bankvereinigung, Banking Federation. Although he was close to the Lausanne School and showed an interest in mathematical economics, he promoted the Austrian School. As an expert on banking and currencies, he published papers on questions regarding monetary theory, currency policies, and banking business, and studied mathematics under Abraham Walt from 1933 to 1934. His essay Über die Produktionsgleichungen der ökonomischen on the production equations of the economic value theory, was to become a significant foundation of neoclassical equilibrium analysis. Karl Schlesinger committed suicide on the day of the annexation. Leo Illy, Schoenfeld, 1888-1952, originally called Schoenfeld, was a regular participant in the Mises Privatseminar. While working as an accountant and auditor after the First World War, he published articles on economics as well as the monograph Grenznutzen und Wirtschaftsrechnung, 1924, Marginal Utility and National Accounting, with which he tried to revive the abandoned discussion on marginal utility. He remained in Austria after the annexation, gained a teaching certification after the war at the Universität für Bodenkultur, another at the Hochschule für Welthandel, College of World Trade, and finally a Habilitation at the University of Vienna under Hans Meyer. His textbook, Das Gesetz des Grenznutzens, the theory of marginal utility, published in 1948, was an easily comprehensible and condensed version of the theory of marginal utility. 
About one-third of the regular attendees of the Mises Privatseminar, or the Geistkreis, published only sporadically. Victor Bloch, for example, with his mathematically-oriented contributions on the theory of money markets and interests, and Gertrud Lovassi and Ludwig Bettelheim Gabilon, who wrote studies on economic history. Articles by Eric Verglin, 1901-1985, Alfred Schütz, 1899-1955, and Felix Kaufmann, 1895-1949, each in their respective subject areas, became part of economics discourse in one way or another. Historians Friedrich Engel Janosi, 1893-1978, and Alexander Gershengron, 1904-1978, were predominantly attracted by the interdisciplinary makeup of the two circles and wrote nothing pertinent to economics. The following were also participants of the above mentioned circles and did not publish Marianne von Herzfeld, Rudolf von Klein, Walter Fröhlich, Ilse Minz Schüller, Rudolf Löbel, Robert Welder, Emanuel Winternitz, Elli Offenheimer Spiro, and Adolf Redlich Redley. Chapter 20 Praxeology A New Start from Ludwig von Mises. Ludwig von Mises created a whole new discipline based on extensive methodological deliberations, which he called the science of human action or praxeology. He may have been inspired to a significant degree by a long-since-forgotten over-one-thousand-page work, Die Wirtschaftliche Energie, 1893, Economic Energy, written by Hungarian-born journalist and Menger student Julius Friedrich Ganz von Ludasi, 1858-1922. Von Ludasi suggested borrowing the cognitive foundations of economics from Immanuel Kant, 1724-1804. He also casually provided an ultimate definition of economics. All actions have a purpose. They are therefore purposive. They are purposive, even when they do not seem so to a more astute economic mind. That is to say, they have been undertaken from the viewpoint of the acting individual in order to attain his objectives. Economic insights have to do with economic actions. Economic actions, however, are simply actions. They must adhere to laws which apply to actions in general. Economics is therefore the science of action. Ludwig von Mises' goal was to understand human action in general, and subsequently to be able to clearly think through and present economic action as well. Such an all-encompassing praxeology must not be based on experiences bound by time and place, that is, on empirical data, but would have to be a science which, in all of its branches, is a priori. Because a universally valid science of human action is derived, like logic and mathematics, not from experience. It is prior to experience. It is, as it were, the logic of action and deed. Thus, the classical laws of economics were ultimately not derived from experience, but by deduction from the fundamental category of action, which has been expressed sometimes as the economic principle, that is, the necessity to economize, sometimes as the value principle or as the cost principle. Empirical research said Mises, which gathers its knowledge, a posteriori, that is, from experience, only allows for predictions in the form of hypotheses, which result from induction, that is, by generalizing individual observations. In order to gain empirical validity, they need to be investigated further, either by making new observations, or with the help of experiments with the goal of either discarding them as useless, or attaining them in the form of laws. Yet empirical laws never lose their hypothetical character in order to prove them conclusively, 
the process of validation would have to be continued ad infinitum. It is always possible that hitherto unobserved cases would run contrary to the claim and thus falsify the original hypothesis. Thus, empirical knowledge offers no ultimate certainty. Furthermore, every observation necessarily involves theories which play a decisive role in selecting what appears to be important. In empirical research, the observing subject is then necessarily involved in the observation process. The fear that empirical research would dominate and manipulate the theory and practice of economics in the future was on the forefront of Mises's mind. The notion of viewing human beings as mere test cases in order to put economic hypotheses into practice and to subsequently confirm them, manipulating human action within the scope of social, political experiments and with the aid of government force, for example, was undoubtedly anathema to Mises. Economics, therefore, needed a secure foundation. In his search for the roots of scientific thinking, Mises came across Immanuel Kant, a philosopher who wanted to clearly dissociate the field of knowledge from those of faith and conjecture. Going beyond Kant in his reflections, Mises eventually came up with a line of reasoning that would not stop until it reaches a point beyond which it cannot go. Scientific theories are different from those of the average man, only in that they attempt to build on a foundation that further reasoning cannot shake. In Critique of Pure Reason, 1781, Immanuel Kant developed the notion of there being two different ways of classifying judgments. On the one hand, judgments could be either analytical or synthetic, whereby the truth value of analytical judgments, for example, bachelors are unmarried men, can be sufficiently verified with the aid of logic. The truth value of synthetic judgments, however, cannot be verified with the aid of logic, for example, Today the weather is fine. On the other hand, judgments could be a priori or a posteriori. Observations are needed to confirm a posteriori judgment, gained from experience, but not to confirm a priori judgments, which precede all experience. According to Kant, scientific knowledge would necessarily be valid and generic, whereby a priori analytical judgments always fulfilled these criteria, Sentences such as, bachelors are unmarried men, are necessarily and universally valid because it is impossible to say, bachelors are married too. But a priori analytical judgments have the drawback of not delivering any real findings. They are tautological, that is, nothing new is added which was not already clear and given from the outset. The crucial question, according to Kant, must therefore be, are a priori synthetic judgments possible? Kant himself was convinced he had found a whole series of such judgments, mathematical and geometrical theorems, or the principle of causality, for example. According to Kant, the truth of a priori synthetic judgments could be derived from self-evident axioms. Axioms are self-evident when you cannot dispute their truth without contradicting yourself. These kinds of axioms could be found to the extent that we consider ourselves cognitive human beings and thus understand the concept of our thought processes, the way our intellect works, and ultimately how our thinking apparatus is constructed. Mises has been rightly called a Kantian, because he agreed with Kant in all of these deliberations. But what he did not agree with was Kant's idealistic assumption that reality is a mere construction of the intellect. According to Kant, a thing as such 
das Ding an sich, is unknowable. Reality can only be recognized as it appears to us by virtue of our reasoning, as we quasi-simulate or reconstruct it with the help of reasoning. Therefore, no direct path to truth is available. Mises, the realist and logician, could not accept the idealistic outlook, later adopted by constructivism, that thinking and reality are two separate worlds. In one simple, clear step, Mises went further than Kant in his thinking, based on self-evident axioms, true, synthetic, a priori judgment, are not purely cognitive constructs and therefore conform to reality precisely because they are not just categories of reasoning, but also categories of action. Our intellect is always within an acting person. It never appears in isolation, as if it were a spirit, but within an acting human being. Therefore, the categories of our reasoning, for example causality, ultimately have to be founded in the categories of our action. Action means intervening in reality at an earlier point in time in order to achieve results at a later point in time. Every acting person must assume that a constant relationship between cause and effect does indeed exist. In this way, causality is a basic prerequisite of action. As a true a priori synthetic judgment, it proves to be both a category of thinking and of acting, both in cognitive and real terms. The chasm between thinking and reality, and between the internal and external worlds which Kant had considered an insurmountable barrier, had been bridged. Human action, Mises said, is conscious behavior. Conceptually, it can be sharply and clearly distinguished from unconscious activity, even though in some cases it is perhaps not easy to determine whether given behavior is to be assigned to one or the other category. This is what distinguishes the general theory of action praxeology from psychology. The subject matter of psychology are the internal events that result or can result in a definite action. The theme of praxeology is action as such. Action, that is conscious behavior, is thus by definition always rational. One is unwarranted in calling goals of action irrational simply because they are not worth striving for from the point of view of one's own valuations. Such a mode of expressions leads to gross misunderstandings. Instead of saying that irrationality plays a role in action, one should accustom oneself to saying merely, there are people who aim at different ends from those that I aim at, and people who employ different means from those I would employ in their situation. It is not the task of the science of human action, Mises wrote in Human Action, to tell people what ends they should aim at. It is a science of the means to be applied for the attainment of ends chosen, not, to be sure, a science of the choosing of ends. Ultimate decisions, the valuations and the choosing of ends, are beyond the scope of any science. Science never tells a man how he should act. It merely shows how a man must act if he wants to attain definite ends. As the science of human action is subjectivistic and takes the value judgments of acting man as ultimate data not open to any further critical examination, it is itself above all strife of parties and factions. It is indifferent to the conflicts of all schools of dogmatism and ethical doctrines. It is free from valuations and preconceived ideas and judgments. It is universally valid and absolutely and plainly human. In the German predecessor of human action, Mises emphasized this more conspicuously. Value judgments, he said, can neither be proven nor justified and substantiated 
nor rejected and discarded in a way every logically thinking man needs to accept as valid. Value judgments are irrational and subjective. One can commend and condemn them, approve or disapprove them, but one cannot call them true or false. Ultimately, it is important to become separated from the metaphysical systems of the philosophy of history. These systems presume to be able to detect the true and real essence behind the appearance of things which are hidden to the profane eye. They imagine themselves capable of discovering the final purpose of all mundane activity. They want to grasp the objective meaning of events which they maintain is different from their subjective meaning, that is, the meaning intended by the actor himself. All religious systems and all philosophies of history proceed according to these same principles, notwithstanding the bitterness with which they fight each other. Marxian socialism, German national socialism, and the non-German movements related to it, which have taken a variety of forms, are all in agreement on logical method, and it is worth noting that they can all be traced back to the same metaphysical foundation, namely the Hegelian dialectic. It was patently clear to Mises that all those ideologies that were to turn the 20th century into a bloodbath were ultimately based on Hegel's philosophy of history. The philosophical counter-strategy that Mises developed, intended to debunk the dominating philosophy, was extreme sobriety. He didn't allow himself any excessive enthusiasm. Praxeology is unable to give any answer to the question of the meaning of the whole. It deliberately abstains from intruding into the depths of metaphysics. It suffers lightly the reproach of its opponents that it stops at the surface of things. If one wanted to explore and describe human action, one would have to recognize that every action is preceded by thinking, insofar as thinking is to deliberate beforehand over future action and to reflect afterward upon past action. Thinking and acting are inseparable. Every action is always based on a definite idea about causal relations. Action without thinking, practice without theory, are unimaginable. The reasoning may be faulty and the theory incorrect, but thinking and theorizing are not lacking in any action. On the other hand, thinking is always thinking of a potential action. It is of no relevance for logic whether such action is feasible or not. The act of thinking is always purposeful, intentional. When action is eventually taken, it is not simply giving preference. Thus, a man may prefer sunshine to rain and may wish that the sun would dispel the clouds. He who only wishes and hopes does not interfere actively with the course of events and with the shaping of his own destiny. But acting man chooses, determines, and tries to reach an end. Of two things, both of which he cannot have together, he selects one and gives up the other. Action, therefore, always involves both taking and renunciation. Consequently, the acting individual applies the means to attain his ends. The use of one's own labor is generally included, but definitely not in every case. Under special conditions, a word is all that is needed. He who gives orders or interdictions may act without any expenditure of labor. To talk or not to talk, to smile or to remain serious may be action. To consume and to enjoy are no less action than to abstain from accessible consumption and enjoyment. For to do nothing and to be idle are also action. They too determine the course of events. The goal, purpose or end of all action is the result which ultimately is always the relief from a felt uneasiness. 
acting man is eager to substitute a more satisfactory state of affairs for a less satisfactory. His mind imagines conditions which suit him better, and his action aims at bringing about this desired state. The incentive that impels a man to act is always some uneasiness. A man perfectly content with the state of his affairs would have no incentive to change things. He would not act. He would simply live free from care. But to make a man act, uneasiness and the image of a more satisfactory state alone are not sufficient. A third condition is required. The expectation that purposeful behavior has the power to remove or at least to alleviate the felt uneasiness. In the absence of this condition, no action is feasible. These are the general conditions of human action. Man is the being that lives under these conditions. He is not only homo sapiens, but no less homo agents. A means, according to Mises, is what serves to the attainment of any end, goal, or aim. Means are not in the given universe. In this universe there exists only things. A thing becomes a means when human reason plans to employ it for the attainment of some end, and human action really employs it for this purpose. Thinking man sees the serviceableness of things, that is, their ability to minister to his ends, and acting man makes them means. Means are necessarily always limited, that is scarce, with regard to the services for which man wants to use them. If this were not the case, there would not be any action with regard to them. Where man is not restrained by the insufficient quantity of things available, there is no need for any action. Step by step, Mises subsequently described a science of rigorous universality, like those of logic and mathematics, formulated sentences that were logically derived from the basic concept of action and that revealed nothing that was not already present in the prerequisites. With the concept of action, Mises said, we simultaneously grasp the closely correlated concepts of path and goal, means and end, cause and effect, beginning and end, and thus also of value, wealth, exchange, price, and cost. All of these are inevitably implied in the concept of action, and along with them the concepts of valuing, scale of value and importance, scarcity and abundance, advantage and disadvantage, success, profit, and loss. Also included is the notion of temporal sequence. What distinguishes the praxeological system from the logical system epistemologically is precisely that it implies the categories both of time and of causality. The praxeological system, too, is a prioristic and deductive. As a system, it is out of time, but change is one of its elements. The notions of sooner and later, and of cause and effect, are among its constituents. Anteriority and consequence are essential concepts of praxeological reasoning. So is the irreversibility of events. To put it simply, praxeology was thus nothing but logic plus time within the framework of causality. Accordingly, praxeology enables us to make predictions about future events. Admittedly, these predictions necessarily lack quantitative precision because the allocation of scarce resources to want satisfaction in various periods of the future is determined by value judgments and indirectly by all those factors which constitute the individuality of the acting man. In the closing words of his Nationalökonomie, the German predecessor of human action, Mises explicated succinctly what that implies. Praxeological and economic insights cannot inform us about the future of society and of human culture, or about the course of future events. 
These facts may disappoint some people and make them underestimate the significance of praxeological and economic insights. However, man has to accept that there are limits to his mind's thinking and research. We will never know what the future has in store for us. It cannot be any other way. Because if we knew in advance what the future would unalterably bring, we could no longer act. That men act, and that they do not know the future, are not two independent matters, but only two different modes of the same fact. Chapter 21 Friedrich August von Hayek's Model of Society and His Theory of Cultural Evolution in The Road to Serfdom, written in England during the Second World War, Friedrich August von Hayek outlined those fundamental ideas which would later become typical of him. He believed the development of our Western civilization was only possible because people submitted to impersonal market forces. No one consciously planned and organized this development. It came about spontaneously in the course of increasingly more complex exchange relationships on the path toward cultural evolution. The intent to change this structure in future and shape it with the help of ideas could be the only outcome of incomplete and therefore erroneous rationalism. No individual or government agency has anything approaching a complete overview. Authority over all of our lives cannot be assigned to anyone. Political planning and regulation would necessarily lead to a worsening of conditions and destroy personal freedom in the end. This fundamental notion, which became the leading idea of evolutionary economics, can be traced back directly to Karl Menger. In his Principles of Economics, he describes the nature and origin of money as the result of human actions, but not of human design. In his investigations into the methods of the social sciences, he expanded the application of this basic idea to a series of other social structures, which he understood to be law, language, the state, money, markets, prices of goods, interest rates, ground rents, wages, and a thousand other phenomena of social life in general, and of economy in particular. These were, to no small extent, the unintended result of social development. The Road to Serve Them, probably Hayek's most popular work, was dedicated to the socialists of all parties. In other words, to everyone who was hoping that economic planning would lead to a new Jerusalem. Hayek demonstrated meticulously that socialism, in whatever form it manifests itself, is incompatible with the idea of freedom, and that the rise of national socialism was not a reaction to the socialist spirit of the times, but had instead been its inevitable consequence. Whether national socialism or Soviet communism, a controlled economy will always end in despotism. In contrast, a free society does not need first to be artificially constructed through violent revolution and subsequent re-education, but is attained in an evolutionary way through consistent adherence to market economy principles. Because these principles had been progressively destroyed by socialist ideas, it is vital to restate them so as to clearly and tangibly instill the idea of freedom in people's consciousness. Individualism, based on traditions and conventions, which in principle affirms family values, cooperation between small communities and groups, and local self-government, is the foundation of a free society. Such individualism, wrote Hayek in Individualism and Economic Order, has the advantage of establishing flexible but normally observed rules that make the behavior of other people predictable in a high degree. In contrast to this is a socialist-inspired false individualism, 
which wants to dissolve all these smaller groups into atoms, which have no cohesion other than the coercive rules imposed by the state, and which tries to make all social ties prescriptive. Genuine individualism is characterized by all forms of planning being carried out by a large number of individuals instead of centrally by a government agency. Only a plurality of individuals can make the best use of the entirety of possible knowledge. Practically every individual has some advantages over all others because he possesses unique information of which beneficial use might be made. Economic research claiming that an unequivocal solution comes about if all facts are known to an individual has nothing to do with reality. Instead, research needs to show how a solution is produced by the interaction of people, each of whom possesses only partial knowledge. To assume all the knowledge to be given to a single mind is to assume the problem away and to disregard everything that is important and significant in the real world. That economic research could become so blind can be explained by its increasing orientation to it the natural sciences. Little by little, empirical methods conventionally used in the natural sciences had been formally imposed upon the social sciences, which led finally to fiasco. To start here at the wrong end, to seek for regularities of complex phenomena which could never be observed twice under identical conditions, could not but lead to the conclusion that there were no general laws, no inherent necessities, and that the only task of economic science in particular was a description of historical change. It was only with this abandonment of the appropriate methods of procedure that it began to be thought that there were no laws of social life other than those made by men and that all observed phenomena were all only the product of social or legal institutions. As we might observe that parts of biological organisms move in a manner suggesting that their purpose is the preservation of the whole, Hayek wrote in The Counter-Revolution of Science, Studies on the Abuse of Reason, 1952, that we can observe how the independent actions of individuals in spontaneous social circles will produce an order which is no part of their intentions. The way in which footpaths are formed in a wild, broken country is such an instance. Certainly there exist social structures that have neither been consciously planned by anyone in particular, nor whose functions are consciously maintained by anyone, but are nevertheless vastly beneficial for the attainment of human goals. According to Hayek, many of the greatest achievements are not the result of consciously directed thought, and still less the product of a deliberately coordinated effort of many individuals, but of a process in which the individual plays a part which he can never fully understand. They are greater than any individual precisely because they result from the combination of knowledge more extensive than a single mind can master. A collectivist who wants to understand social institutions objectively, said Hayek, will necessarily fail in his attempt to accurately define their nature and how they function. He will be driven to imagine these to be the creation of one ingenious mind, and will finally make the political demand that all forces of society be made subject to the direction of a single mastermind. While it is the individualist who recognizes limitations of the powers of individual reason, and consequently advocates freedom as a means for the fullest development of the powers of the inter-individual process. Collectivist thinking opens the gates to despotism. Based on misunderstood rationalism, it paves the way for dangerous irrationalism. This can only be prevented to the extent that conscious reason acknowledges the limits of its own capabilities. As individuals, we should bow to forces and obey principles which we cannot hope fully to understand, yet on which the advance and even the preservation of civilization depends. 
Historically, this has been achieved by the influence of the various religious creeds and by traditions and superstitions which made men submit to those forces by an appeal to his emotions rather than to his reason. The most dangerous stage in the growth of civilization may well be that in which man has come to regard all these beliefs as superstitions and refuses to accept or to submit to anything which he does not rationally understand. The rationalist, whose reason is not sufficient to teach him those limitations of the powers of conscious reason, and who despises all the institutions and customs which have not been consciously designed, would thus become the destroyer of the civilization built upon them. There's only one alternative to control by arbitrary rule, wrote Hayek in the Constitution of Liberty, 1960, universal submission to formal laws. This means that individuals, because of deeply rooted moral convictions, voluntarily comply with certain guidelines. Freedom, therefore, requires responsibility, but it must be clear that the responsibility of the individual extends only to what he can be presumed to judge, that his actions take into account effects which are within his range of foresight, and particularly that he be responsible only for his own actions or those of persons under his care, not for those of others who are equally free. Since responsibility cannot be expected of everyone, freedom is above all freedom under the law. However, this order must be without dictates a universal abstract set of rules, free of arbitrariness, that are restricted to defining competing spheres of action in order to optimize the latitude of each individual. Freedom has economic significance for the reason that it allows room for the unforeseeable and unpredictable. Since one cannot know which experiments with procedures, products, or services will prove to be successful, maximum freedom to develop is most expedient. It is because every individual knows so little, and, in particular, because we rarely know which of us knows best, that we trust the independent and competitive efforts of many to induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it. In his Freiburger Studien, Hayek writes that coercive government measures should be limited to the enforcement of universal rules of conduct exclusively. Government should not have specific objectives. This is because a market-based system is not based on some common objective, but instead on reciprocity, that is, on the balance of different interests to the mutual advantage of the participants. In a free society, terms such as the common good or public interest should only be understood in abstraction. This alone offers any randomly singled-out individual the best chances to successfully employ his skills for his personal objective. Government measures ostensibly serving the common good, such as progressive taxation, for example, wherein the majority burdens a minority against the minority will, are nothing but cases of arbitrary discrimination that destroy personal freedom. Governments should therefore refrain from influencing income distribution in favor of social equity. A person can only develop in an optimal way within the framework of a regulatory system based on law and tradition and largely removed from the grasp of rulers. Constant competition in such a system would always favor behaviors that had proven successful. It is impossible to predict where competition, which can be characterized as a procedure for discovering facts, will ultimately lead. Yet it is plain that those societies which draw on competition for this purpose know more, and thus ultimately generate more wealth for everyone. Such a regulatory system which one could also call spontaneous order, and which has always, wherever it appeared, made use of the market and of private property, always leads to a great or open society, or an advanced civilization. In the original German, offener, or Große Gesellschaft in italics, 
was obviously borrowed from Karl Popper, The Open Society and Its Enemies, 1945. In English, the term appears for the first time in Hayek's Law, Legislation and Liberty, 1981. The Greeks called an order created by humans taxes, and a spontaneously created order cosmos. According to Hayek, cosmos comes into being from regularity in the behavior of the elements of which it is made up, and therefore has no particular objective or purpose. It is an endogenous system, growing from the inside, or, as the cyberneticists say, a self-regulatory or self-organizing system. On the other hand, taxis, as a decree or an organization, is determined by an efficacy outside the system, and is therefore exogenous or imposed. Since in a taxis all knowledge at individual's disposal has to be first channeled to a central organizer, that knowledge will always be more limited compared to that at the disposal of individuals within a cosmos. Rules and norms created within the framework of the cosmos are to be called nomoi, the meaning of nomos being a universal rule of just behavior, which applies equally to all people for an unknown number of future cases to which the objective circumstances described in the rule pertain, regardless of the consequences brought on in a specific situation by adhering to the rules. Such rules limit protected individual spheres by letting every person or organized group know which means they may employ in pursuit of their goals without the actions of the various people coming into conflict with each other. By contrast, the rules and norms created within the framework of a taxis are to be called theses, the meaning of thesis being such a rule which is only applicable to certain persons or which serves the aim of rulers. The distinction between no more the universal rules of behavior, and theses, the rules of organization, is comparable to the classical distinction between civil law, including penal law, and public law, constitutional and administrative law. It is instructive to remember that the idea of law in the sense of nomos, that is, an abstract rule independent of any concrete individual will, applicable regardless of consequences to individual cases, a law that could be found and was not created for particular, foreseeable purposes, together with the idea of personal freedom, existed and continued to exist only in countries such as ancient Rome and modern England, where the advancement of civil law was based on precedent and not on written law, where it lay in the hands of judges and jurists, and not in the hands of legislators. In addition to the closely linked concepts of cosmos, taxes, and nomos, theses, Hayek distinguished between values and goals. Values originate in cultural tradition and I would guide human action for a lifetime, whereas goals determine human action only in particular instances. An open and free society is based on its members sharing common values. Conversely, the possibility of freedom disappears when we insist there should be a united will issuing orders that direct members to its certain goals. Those values or rules of just behavior that have decisively contributed to the emergence of an open and liberal society, had already, Hayek wrote in Law, Legislation and Liberty, The Mirage of Social Justice, been formulated by the Scottish philosopher and economist David Hume, 1711-1776. Hume called them the three fundamental laws of nature, that of stability of possession, of its transference by consent, and of the performance of promises. In civil law systems, these principles were later summarized as freedom of contract, the inviolability of property, and the duty to compensate another for damage due to his fault. Historically, abstract rules and spontaneous order developed in mutual dependency. 
For just as the mind can only exist as part of a system which exists independently of it, a system can likewise only develop because millions of minds constantly absorb and modify parts of it. According to Hayek, man did not adopt new rules of conduct because he was intelligent. He became intelligent by submitting to new rules of conduct. What ultimately made humans good was neither nature nor reason, but tradition. There is not much common humanity in the biological endowment of the species, nor did human beings develop in the context of freedom at all. As members of small hordes, which they had to cling to if they wanted to survive, they were anything but free. Freedom is an artifact of civilization which liberated humans from the shackles of the small group. It became possible by the gradual evolution of the discipline of civilization which is at the same time the discipline of freedom. Ultimately, we have to admit that modern civilization is possible by and large only by ignoring indignant moralists. This fact, Hayek points out, was formulated by the French historian and sociologist Jean Becher, 1905-1983, as follows. The expansion of capitalism owes its origins and raison d'être to political anarchy. Chapter 22. The Entrepreneur. Since the early 17th century, mention has been made of the projector, the ingenious idea-smith who was at the same time inventor, alchemist, reformer, but also fantasist and carpetbagger, as well as the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur was described for the first time by Richard Cantillon, 1680-1734, an Irish-French banker, in his essay Sur la nature du commerce en général. 1732, as follows, an entrepreneur is a person who assumes the economic risk by buying and combining factors of production in order to offer goods on the market with the intention of making a profit. The achieved profit is to be understood as a kind of risk premium. Members of the Austrian school delved more deeply into this basic description, beginning with Karl Menger and Victor Mataya, and on through Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich A. von Hayek, Entrepreneurial action was assigned more significant, even central relevance. Schumpeter's Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Entwicklung, 1912, The Theory of Economic Development, erected more of a heroic literary monument to the personality of the entrepreneur. According to Schumpeter, risk was borne not by the entrepreneur, but by the banker. In his main work, Grundsätze der Volkswirtschaftslehre, 1871, Principles of Economics, Karl Menger described the work of the entrepreneur as preparing and directing processes which serve the transformation of goods of higher order into goods of lower and first order. Specifically, this involves a. obtaining information about the economic situation, b. economic calculation, all the various computations that must be made if a production process is to be efficient, provided that it is economic in other respects, c. the act of will by which goods of higher order are assigned to a particular production process, and finally d. supervision of the execution of the production plan. In the early days of entrepreneurship, said Menger, the entrepreneur himself would still step into the production process with his technical labor services. His specific function became more clearly apparent only with progressive division of labor and an increase in the size of enterprises, and finally it assumed the nature of an economic good. Even today, the value of entrepreneurial activity has to be included in the value of all goods necessary for a production process. The distinctive features of this category of activities are twofold. First, they are by nature not commodities, not intended for exchange, 
and for this reason have no prices, and second, they have command of the services of capital as a necessary prerequisite, since they cannot otherwise be performed. Unlike other forms of income, for example labor wages or capital interest, the income of the entrepreneur is, according to Victor Mataya in Der Unternehmergewinn, 1884, The Entrepreneurial Profit, much more difficult to identify. There is a need to develop a precise conceptual definition of this income. Firstly, it is incorrect to view the use of capital as a general feature of business ventures. For, if this were the case, what would all those producers be who, solely through their own labor, place their products on the market? Another improper narrowing of the term is, when one describes the intention of the entrepreneur to acquire income as part of the nature of the business venture, purely benevolent institutions like savings banks, societies with business-like natures that do not work to at their own ends, cooperatives, for example, and certain state institutions, etc., definitely bear the characteristics of business ventures and may even produce an entrepreneurial profit, but are nevertheless not set up with the intention of achieving this or any other such income. But what all business ventures do have in common is the production of market values, goods destined to be sold, which is guided by the entrepreneur and that this production takes place on his behalf. According to Mataya, entrepreneurial profit is the income which results entirely from economic exchange and which furthermore accrues to the owner of the business venture absolutely and exclusively. Entrepreneurial income and entrepreneurial profit, therefore, need to be clearly distinguished. While the entrepreneurial income includes those incomes which befit the individual entrepreneur as capitalist and laborer according to the capital in his ownership and his amount of work, the entrepreneurial profit is created only when the earnings of the business venture, difference between costs and revenue, result in a surplus over and above these two quantities. Capital profit, according to Mataya, is simply the reward for the productive involvement of capital in the creation of goods, whereas entrepreneurial profit is a premium for the most productive exploitation possible of already existing goods of a higher order, effectively the proceeds for the administration of a kind of social office. Just as every human action is directed to the future, and is, as Ludwig von Mises wrote in Nationalökonomie, human action, always speculation, Entrepreneurial action always involves the future use of the means of production. Economics calls those entrepreneurs who are especially eager to profit from adjusting production to the expected changes in conditions, those who have more initiative, more venturesomeness, and a quicker eye than the crowd, the pushing and promoting pioneers of economic improvement. And what distinguishes the successful entrepreneur from other people is precisely the fact that he does not let himself be guided by what was and is, but arranges his affairs on the ground of his opinion about the future. He sees the past and the present as other people do, but he judges the future in a different way. Ultimately, however, anyone can become a promoter, entrepreneur, if he relies upon his own ability to anticipate future market conditions better than his fellow citizens, and if he attempts to act at his own peril and on his own responsibility are approved by the consumers. One enters the ranks of the promoters by aggressively pushing forward, thus submitting to the trial to which the market subjects, without respect for persons, everybody, who wants to become a promoter or to remain in this eminent position. Everybody has the opportunity to take his chance. A newcomer does not need to wait for an invitation or encouragement from anyone. 
he must leap forward on his own account, and must know for himself how to provide the means needed. The capitalists, the enterprises and the farmers, wrote Mises in Bureaucracy, 1944, are ultimately nothing other than those means which serve to manage economic affairs. They are at the helm and steer the ship, but they are not free to shape its course. They are not supreme, they are steersmen only, bound to obey unconditionally the captain's orders. The captain is the consumer. Neither the capitalists, nor the entrepreneurs, nor the farmers determine what has to be produced. The consumers do that. If the consumers do not buy the goods offered to them, the businessman cannot recover the outlays made. If he fails to adjust his procedure to the wishes of the consumers, he will very soon be removed from his eminent position at the helm. Other men, who did better in satisfying the demand of the consumers, replace him. In a capitalist system, the consumers are the real bosses. They, by their buying and by their abstention from buying, decide who should own the capital and run the plants. They determine what should be produced and in what quantity and quality. Their attitudes result either in profit or in loss for the enterpriser. They make poor men rich and rich men poor. Thus, the capitalist system of production is an economic democracy in which every penny gives a right to vote. The consumers are the sovereign people. The capitalists, the entrepreneurs and the farmers are the people's mandatories. If they do not obey, if they fail to produce at the lowest possible cost what the consumers are asking for, they lose their office. Their task is service to the consumer. Profit and loss are the instruments by means of which the consumers keep a tight rein on all business activities. Friedrich von Hayek described the role of the entrepreneur with an eye on competition in particular. By uncovering hitherto hidden knowledge in a systematic process of discovery, he is able to supply entrepreneurs with information relevant to them. Wherever we employ competition, we do not know the relevant circumstances. In sport or in exams, when awarding government contracts or awarding prizes for poems and, not least, in science, Hayek wrote in his Freiburger Studien, it would obviously be absurd to hold a competition if we knew in advance who the winner was going to be. Therefore, I would like to consider competition systematically as a process for discovering facts, without which they would either remain unknown or at the very least not be utilized. In addition, competition is a method for breeding certain types of mind. It is always a process in which a small number makes it necessary for larger numbers to do what they do not like, be it to work harder, to change habits, or to devote a degree of attention, continuous application, or regularity to their work, which without competition would not be needed. Competition generally fosters discipline and helps motivate existing talent to achieve outstanding results. One revealing mark of how poorly the ordering principle of the market is understood, Hayek wrote in The Fatal Conceit, The Errors of Socialism, 1988, is the common notion that cooperation is better than competition. Of course, cooperation is also useful, but particularly in small, homogeneous groups in which there is a great amount of consensus. But when it comes to adjusting to unknown conditions, there is not much merit in cooperation. Ultimately, it was competition that led man unwittingly to respond to novel situations, and through further competition, not through agreement, we gradually increase our efficiency. Chapter 23. The Rejected Legacy Austria and the Austrian School after 1945 The Austrian School effectively ceased to exist on Austrian soil by the end of the 1930s. 
apart from a few exceptions, Hans Meyer, Alexander Ma, Ewald Schams, Richard von Striegel and Leo Ili Schönfeld, many of its members had already left the country in the preceding years, or had had to flee for racial and political reasons after the annexation of Austria by the German Reich in 1938. Academic productivity declined dramatically, and almost came to a standstill at the beginning of the war. While Hans Meyer continued to produce the Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie, Journal of Economics, with Alexander Ma as editor, he had to share the role of publisher with Walter Eucken, 1891-1950, Guillermo Marschi, 1889-1941, a supporter of Mussolini, and Heinrich von Stackelberg, 1905-1946, the leader of the Nationalsozialistische Dozentenschaft, Association of National Socialist Lecturers of the University of Cologne. Despite this concession, the ensuing volumes appeared only at irregular intervals, 1939 and 1944. Moreover, the readership had been significantly reduced due to emigration and the events of the war. Incidentally, neither term Viennese nor Austrian school received any mention in these volumes. A fundamental paradigmatic shift in economics had taken place in the Anglo-American sphere even before the annexation. Following the brilliant success of the General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money, 1936, by John Maynard Keynes, Interest in the Austrian school declined almost overnight. Its advocates suddenly found themselves in the position of being outsiders. The Keynesian theory and its interpretations, with mathematical equilibrium analysis as one of its centerpieces, dominated modern economics for more than three decades from this point in time onward. Against this backdrop, Hans Meyer carried on with his teaching at the University of Vienna until becoming a professor emeritus in 1950. After the war, the statue of Menger that had been removed after the annexation was unobtrusively restored to its original place in the Arkadenhof courtyard of the University of Vienna. Otherwise, there was no way to approach proximity with anyone even remotely connected with the former greatness of the school. The number of students enrolled at the Faculty of Law and Political Science, in 1954-1955, there were 1900, was now smaller than it had been before the war. Alexander Ma and Ewald Schams, two teachers of the Austrian school who had worked unhindered throughout the Nazi period, were only allowed to return to teaching after some time had elapsed. There was a general shortage of young academics. Meyer's first postdoctoral student was Karl Gruber, 1909-1995, who, as the newly elected governor of the federal state of Tyrol, had his habilitation procedure transferred from Tyrol's capital Innsbruck to Vienna and remained completely removed from the tradition of the school. After Leo Illy, Schoenfeld, who was a mature student, the first young scholar to whom Hans Meyer awarded a habilitation was Wilhelm Weber, 1916-2005. This was in 1950, the year Meyer became an emeritus professor. In 1949, after a five-year gap, a new edition of the Zeitschrift für Nationalökonomie was published, in the form of a festschrift on the occasion of Meyer's 70th birthday. A reviewer compared it to the opulent commemorative volume for Friedrich von Wieser and lamented on one hand the dramatic extent of the destruction and lowering of standards in economics in German-speaking countries. On the other, he complained that emigrated members of the Austrian school had not contributed to the festschrift. Indeed, scholars who had remained in Austria, and public authorities and politicians as well, had done little or nothing to improve relations with the emigrants and exiles who had been damaged for the long term by past events. 
Mises, whose apartment had been ransacked during his absence, wrote immediately after the war that he did not want to meet the mob that had applauded the massacre of excellent men. In full accord with the prevailing sentiment, economists in Austria at that time made it all too clear that they had no serious interest in a return of the emigrants and exiles. In October of 1945, the bestowal of an honorary doctorate upon Socialist Chancellor Karl Renner, 1870-1950, by the Faculty of Law and Political Science at the University of Vienna, became a symbol of reconciliation. In the very same academic ceremony, the faculty was represented by its middle-class conservative president, Ludwig Adamowitz, 1890-1955, the Catholic legitimist Ferdinand Degenfeld Schornburg, and the last tenured professor of the Austrian school in Austria, Hans Meyer. But speakers at the ceremony primarily invoked a balance between the middle-class Catholic and the social democratic camps, and in addition, paid an astounding tribute to public service employees. In this emerging ideological-political duopoly, which would later be criticized as a concordance democracy or as moderated pluralism, there was hardly room for exiles, emigrants, liberals, Jews, or dissenters of any kind. Invitations from Austrian faculty colleagues, from Hans Meyer, for example, to exiled economists to hold guest lectures and talks were often not even approved. Nevertheless, Friedrich A. von Hayek made tireless efforts to intensify contacts with Austria and took part, as did a number of other emigrants, in the academic conferences at Alpach in Tirol, a small mountain village which served as one of the first meeting places for intellectual exchange after the war. Hayek held a higher professional opinion of students there than he did of the majority of faculty colleagues, who had by this time been promoted in his former home country. Among the authors of the Festschrift for Hans Meyer, only two could be counted outright as followers of the Austrian school, Leo Illy Schoenfeld and Ewald Schanz. Some other authors, like Hans Bayer and Alexander Ma, showed eclectic sympathies. The overwhelming number of contributions emphasized their critical distance to the Austrian tradition, in some cases even demonstrating a lack of secure knowledge of the sources. To what extent this first large anthology upon post-war Viennese soil was already removed from international economic research was made clear, for example, by the fact that out of 25 contributions only three were written in English, and only one discussed the ubiquitous Keynesian paradigm in any detail. The Festschrift appeared to intend to defiantly deny that the centres, the research programmes, and the lingua franca of economics had in the meantime become Anglo-American, and that Vienna would henceforth find itself on the fringes of economic research. The first concise and objective critique in the German-speaking world of Keynes's theories, from the viewpoint of the Austrian school, was made by Hans Meyer. Meyer criticized Keynes for his many imprecise definitions, as well as his completely useless, all-encompassing terms, such as volume of labor, volume of employment, and involuntary unemployment. The results thus achieved were a setback, because the mercantilists had already worked with all-encompassing terms. Meyer considered Keynes's psychological assumptions, a general propensity to consume, a liquidity preference, and the expectation of future earnings from capital values, to be unrealistic. In response to the proposition of a comprehensive socialization of investment under central direction, Meyer asked whether there would still be leeway in this model for the maneuvers of private self-interest. Finally, Meyer criticized Keynes for not having considered a purpose for the economy as a whole, as the Austrian school had attempted to do with the optimum of fulfillment of demand. 
because full employment as a goal is a misjudgment of means and ends. Meyer's critique of Keynes came much too late and was ultimately ineffective. Even his two students, Wilhelm Weber and Alexander Ma, vouched for the Austrian school's insight in a limited way only. On one occasion they declared themselves its supporters, another time they denied even belonging to the school, although admitting being in its debt. They effectively advocated, with some reservations, a neoclassical Keynesian worldview. Their healthy distrust of macroeconomic aggregates was the main reminder of their having come out of the Austrian tradition. Irrespective of these differences with the school's tradition, Wilhelm Weber in particular made bona fide attempts to improve relations with the emigrants. He was able to persuade Oskar Morgenstern and Gottfried Habeler to be co-publishers of the Zeitschrift für Nationale Ökonomie, which after 1970 appeared as the Journal of Economics. Weber, along with Friedrich A. von Hayek, also quietly supported the ultimately unsuccessful preliminary talks between the university administration and Hayek, their purpose being to persuade him to come to Vienna. Hayek found the idea of reviving the Austrian school in Vienna very enticing. After Fritz Machlup had withdrawn his candidacy in 1967, the Austrian government even considered Hayek for president of the Österreichische Nationalbank, the central bank of Austria. Despite these gestures toward a long-overdue reconciliation, post-war Austria and its duopolistic intellectual climate remained alien to many immigrants, especially to those who had retained the individualist liberal tradition of the Austrian school. The symbolic reconciliation with Ludwig von Mises, the ancestor of the American state skeptics, amounted to nothing more than presenting him on behalf of the socialist federal president Adolf Schaaf, 1890-1965, with the Ehrenkreuz für Wissenschaft und Kunst, Medal of Honor for Science and Art of the Republic of Austria, at the Austrian Embassy in Washington in 1962. After becoming a professor emeritus, Friedrich A. von Hayek accepted a guest professorship at the University of Salzburg in 1969. But feeling rather isolated both academically and intellectually, he returned to the University of Freiburg after only four years. It was easier for the nomenclatura of the resurrected Republic of Austria to be reconciled with those who had more or less turned their backs on the Austrian school after their emigration of expulsion. In 1965, Oskar Morgenstern was awarded an honorary doctorate by the University of Vienna and played a leading role at the Institut für Konjunkturforschung. In 1971, Fritz Machlup became an honorary senator of the University of Vienna and Gottfried Habeler received honorary PhDs from the University of Innsbruck, 1970, and the Vienna University of Economics and Business, 1980. Martha Stephanie Braun was awarded an honorary PhD from the University of Vienna, 1989. In 1971, Hayek participated in a symposium organized by Wilhelm Weber and John Richard Hicks, 1904-1989, which took place in Vienna on the occasion of the centenary of the first publication of Karl Menger's Principles. In addition to Oskar Morgenstern, Fritz Machlup, and Gottfried Habeler, other participants included the son of the school's founder, Karl Menger, and Kenneth G. Arrow, born 1921. Never before had three future economics Nobel Prize winners come together at a conference in Vienna. Kenneth J. Arrow, John R. Hicks, Friedrich R. Hayek. It was pointed out in the English-language presentations, among other things, that varying strands of thought existed among the Austrians. Two authors even chose to speak of a Menger tradition instead of a school. Indeed, more than a few theoretical achievements from Austria had found their way into the mainstream, 
over the entire span of its existence, the actual quintessentials of the Austrian school were no longer easy to define. Fritz Machlub later looked back and formulated the six most important characteristics of the Austrian school in an English article for an anthology celebrating the hundredth birthday of Ludwig von Mises. Most of the emigrated Austrian economists made contributions as follows. 1. Methodological individualism. The explanation of economic phenomena stems from the actions or inactions of individuals. Groups or collectives cannot act except through the actions of individual members. 2. Methodological subjectivism. Economic phenomena stem from individual judgments and are based on personal knowledge and subjective expectations toward the future. 3. Taste and preferences. Subjective valuations of goods and services determine the demand for them. In turn, consumers determine types of goods, quantities, and prices. 4. Opportunity cost. The economic actor takes into account alternative possible applications. Choosing one possible use means sacrificing other possible uses. 5. Marginalism. Economically relevant valuations are determined by the significance of the last unit added to or subtracted from the total. 6. Time structure of production and consumption. Production and consumption are determined by subjective time preferences. Machlou pointed out that within the Austrian school the economic notion of time is regarded in different ways. Finally, Machlup introduced two further characteristics that were particularly applicable to Mises and his students. 7. Consumer sovereignty. Consumer demands are the optimal drivers of production, distribution, prices and allocations of resources, so long as they are not hindered by the external intervention of laws, public authority measures or cartel agreements. 8. Political individualism. Political freedom requires economic freedom. Political and economic restrictions lead, sooner or later, to the extension of coercive measures on the part of the state and undermine individual freedom. Mahloup's succinct and precise descriptions gave us a clear indication as to why, in the political and intellectual climate of the Second Republic, it was almost inevitable that the Austrian school's research program would be met with disapproval. In many ways, the Republic embodied the antithesis of the individualistic liberal creed of the Austrian school. In 1978, for example, the government share of nominal capital of Austrian companies still amounted to 32.6%, and government-owned companies employed 19% of the entire workforce. The two major parties, with their ambivalent attitude toward the individualistic liberal tradition, were omnipresent. With 2.4 million voters in 1979, the Socialist Party at 721,000 members and the Christian Social People's Party at least 560,000 members. For a long period of time, voters were in favour of an economic policy which allowed the federal debt to be raised from 10% of GNP 1974 to 38.5% 1985 and finally to 68% 1995. Against this background, the established view was that the Austrian school was not to be seen as anything more than an interesting but closed chapter in the history of economics. This became particularly clear during a symposium in 1985, when Austrian organizers indeed attempted to bridge the gap with the American Austrians and extended an invitation to Israel M. Kurtzner, born 1930. The majority of speakers kept their distance from, or even expressed antagonism toward the Austrian school. 
In view of the crisis of Keynesianism, and aside from Kurtzner, only Hans Seidel, born 1922, spoke tentatively about the present and future relevance of the Austrian school. At the time, in fact, the principles of the Austrian school at Austrian universities were being taught systematically by Innsbruck professor Karl Zocher, born 1928, alone. For the first time in decades, the Austrian school was spotlighted as a research subject once again, this time as a noteworthy tradition of the University of Vienna. Almost all the authors of the aforementioned symposium emphasized their distance in terms of content, but at the same time they were pleased to use the chance with their language skills, knowledge of the intellectual environment, and the stores of historical books at their disposal to assume an internationally recognizable leading role in the narration and interpretation of the history of thought of the Austrian school. In this context, Erich W. Streisler, born 1933, the holder of Menger's former chair at the University of Vienna for the last third of the 20th century, published about two dozen papers on the history of ideas and science of the Austrian school. He was one of the first to include the political, sociological and historical intellectual aspects as well. His estimation of the Austrian school's relevance to modern economics in terms of decision theory was very high in the end. His assistants and faculty colleagues Werner Neudeck, Gerhard O. Rosel, Peter Rosner and Karl Milford also published articles concerning the history and epistemology of the school. Hans-Jörg Klausinger of the Vienna University of Economics and Business published works on the interwar history of the school. At the University of Graz, it was Heinz de Kurz, director of the Graz Schumpeter Center, along with Manfred Prisching, who published several articles on Josef Schumpeter and also Bern Barwerk and the Austrian school as a whole. Tracing historical roots is actively continued in the Austrian universities to this day, but attempts to revive the Austrian school's fundamental ideas have been almost entirely limited to non-university and private initiatives. The Karl Menger Institute, founded in Vienna in 1987, had to close down after just a few years. Today, the Friedrich August von Hayek Institute, founded in 1993, has taken on well-known promoting role by organizing events on topics pertaining to the Austrian school, publishing books, and by financing one guest professorship in Vienna each semester. Of the more recent initiatives, the Institut für Wirtewirtschaft, founded in Vienna in 2007, deserves particular mention. Of course, these activities cannot in any way compensate for the fact that Austria has rejected its great legacy. Chapter 24 The Renaissance of the Old Viennese School The New Austrian School of Economics In the 1930s it became clearer than ever before that the fundamental theoretical assumptions of the Austrian school ran decidedly counter to the dominating spirit of the age which appeared increasingly dedicated to the salvation-promising collectivist ideologies of the left and right. This trend was felt even in those societies which had remained democratic. It meant that John Maynard Keynes's presumptuous claim of being able to secure the future welfare of mankind readily found zealous supporters. The Austrian school had already been on the sidelines for some time, when it finally collapsed under the strain of external forces after the annexation of 1938. The ideas of the school seemed to sink into oblivion after the Second World War. Social policy in the Western democracies was oriented toward ideas of a welfare state and was bolstered by economists promising the affluent society 
Galbraith, 1958. One of the fundamental insights of the Austrian school, namely that utopian societies designed by social engineers are nothing but unscientific illusions, seem destined to disappear. That Menger's principles of economics was first translated into English in 1950 made no difference to the fact that the 1950s and 1960s would become years in the wilderness. Most of the exiled members of the Austrian school joined the neoclassical mainstream soon after emigration. Fritz Machlup, for example, who became the pioneer of information economics in the United States. His stance on American monetary policy caused a rift between himself and his father-like friend Ludwig von Mises, which lasted for many years. Oskar Morgenstern advised American government agencies and primarily published works on game theory, economic forecasting, and methodology. Paul Rosenstein-Rodan became a highly esteemed expert on developing countries, and Gottfried Habler worked for the American Central Bank System. They all felt a lifelong bond to the Austrian school, but did not continue to conduct research on its behalf. It was therefore possible to have the impression that Austrian school theories had entered into mainstream economics. It's to Friedrich A. von Hayek's, and in particular to Ludwig von Mises's credit, that it was not only possible to keep the legacy of the Austrian school alive in a new environment, but also to perpetuate its marked development with only a few colleagues and new students. Among others, Hayek's later and most influential students from his time at the London School of Economics were Ludwig Lachmann, 1906-1990, and George L.S. Shackle, 1903-1992. Lachmann, who taught in Johannesburg, South Africa, from 1948 on, and who developed a radical form of subjectivism, challenged altogether the information character of prices on the grounds of constant change and the resulting unpredictability of knowledge. Having begun his doctoral thesis under Hayek, Shackle pursued a similar path, but ultimately turned toward radical subjectivism, steering it toward nihilism. The Austrian school tradition came to a sudden halt when Hayek was appointed to the University of Chicago in 1949. Having there been assigned to the Committee of Social Thought, Hayek increasingly moved away from the terrain of economic research in the strict sense, which suited his interests quite well. He subsequently applied himself to the study of the legal and institutional frameworks of a free society. Even though his contributions to the theories of law and politics were closely connected to his economic theory and were logically cohesive, his faculty colleagues soon labelled him a social and law philosopher, and others with smug overtones placed his work in the category of conventional wisdom. In contrast, Ludwig von Mises remained true to his original profession. After his arrival in New York in 1940, and with the help of Machlup's contacts, he was able to have omnipotent government, 1944, bureaucracy, 1945, and human action, 1949, printed. In 1945, by then 64 years old, Mises obtained a guest professorship at New York University with the help of friends and former students. He remained active in the position until reaching the grand old age of 87. The response to his first two books published in the United States was modest. Human action, however, became a great success. Critics of the then-prevailing New Deal statism soon recognized in Mises a welcome comrade in arms. Particularly impressed by Mises was the brilliant journalist Henry Hazlitt, 1894-1993, who published two influential books, Economics in One Lesson, 1946, and The Failure of the New Economics, 1959. 
which contained ideas that were very similar to those of the Austrian school. A heterogeneous stream of freedom thinkers gradually emerged, who, since the label liberal had already been taken by the American Democrats, referred to themselves as libertarians. Admittedly, their critical and at times hostile attitude to the state sometimes went too far for Mises, whose origins were in European liberalism. In New York, Mises managed once again to assemble a sustainable circle of students from which eminent economists in the tradition of the Austrian school would arise. In Market Theory and the Price System, 1963, and Methodological Individualism, Market Equilibrium and Market Process, 1967, Israel M. Kurtzner developed a theory of markets and entrepreneurs which explained an economy's endogenous tendency, helped by entrepreneurial action toward equilibrium. According to Kurtzner, the entrepreneur is characterized by an outstanding alertness that enables him to detect price differences and thus deficiencies in coordination. What follows is that the profit motive instructs the entrepreneur to act as a coordinating force. Kurtzner's theory of the entrepreneur as discoverer is considered groundbreaking to this day. Hans F. Zenholz, 1922-2007, another student of German origin, who would later become a professor at Grove City College and the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, translated many of Mises's writings from German into English. With his published books, and especially his numerous talks, Zenholz contributed to the early dissemination of the Austrian positions on monetary theory and monetary policy, and attempted to bridge the gap between the economic sciences and intellectual Protestant American circles. Quite possibly the most distinguished of Mises' students in the New World was Murray N. Rothbard, 1926-1995, who had later become professor at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. In his opulent early work in two volumes, Man, Economy and State, 1962, Rothbard succeeded in expanding on his teacher's approach, especially in the areas of monetary theory, the theory of monopoly and the theory of capital and interest. Using his extensive knowledge of theoretical economics and history, he demonstrated in America's Great Depression, 1963, how inflation of the money supply, responsible for the artificial boom in the golden twenties, had developed, and how it inevitably led to the stock market crash of 1929. His explanation contradicted the Keynesianism-biased interpretation of Black Thursday that prevails to this day. With an Austrian Perspective on the History of Economic Thought, 1995, a two-volume work, Rothbard presented a comprehensive history of economic theory from the Austrian perspective. Aside from his teaching assignments in New York and Nevada, he wrote well over a thousand articles and twenty-five books, including works on political philosophy and natural rights ethics. As a political agitator, he sharply criticized the U.S.'s aggressive foreign policy and the expansion of the state as well as the curtailment of basic freedom rights, and he evolved into a radical advocate of the libertarian movement, all the while maintaining his pacifist stance. Even though a succession of talented and later well-known economists emerged from Mises' New York seminar, for example, Louis Padaro, George Reisman, Percy L. Graves, Jr., and his wife Bettina Beaton-Graves, Leonard P. Ligio and Ralph Rako, there was hardly any mention of a modern Austrian school of economics prior to 1970. Until the mid-1960s, many established economists considered the Austrians, represented by Hayek and Mises, mere historic relics who fought aggressively and bitterly 
in a hopelessly quixotic manner against the mainstream, and who made one mistake after another on questions of economic policy. In the academic community, they were but a small minority whose way of thinking was incompatible with the neoclassical paradigm. The three basic assumptions of neoclassical economics, optimization behavior, fixed order of preference and equilibrium, was diametrically opposed, then as now, to the basic positions of the Austrians, expedient action, individual preferences, and dynamic processes. Moreover, the Austrians categorically rejected a mathematical treatment of economic problems because, in the sphere of action, there is no unit of measurement and no measuring. Very few essays appeared in academic journals, with the consequence that Austrian economics was perceived predominantly as a book science of little consequence. During this phase of noticeable academic isolation, the Mont Pelerin Society, established in 1947 in a hotel on Mont Pelerin near Vivet on Lake Geneva, was the most important bridge to old Europe for both Hayek and Mises. As well as the former Italian President Luigi Einaudi, 1874-1961, and the philosopher Bruno Leone, 1913-1967, the author of Freedom and the Law, 1961. Members of the society Hayek founded included, among others, the French expert on finance and political theoretician Jacques Ruff, 1896-1978. After the First World War, Ruff successfully proved in every single case that the money that had been handed out by central banks in the countries suffering from hyperinflation France, Italy, Germany, Poland, and Austria had been used primarily to finance budget deficits. After the Second World War, he introduced currency stabilization measures under President de Gaulle and later recorded his insights and experiences in the monetary sin of the West. Other members of the Mont Pelerin Society included the economics minister and later chancellor of West Germany, Ludwig Erhard, 1897-1977, Walter Eucken, 1891-1950, Alfred Müller Armack, 1901-1978, Alexander Rustov, 1885-1963, and Wilhelm Röpke, 1899-1966, who, as ordo-liberals, attempted to find a third way between socialism and laissez-faire capitalism. Much like Hayek in his later works, Röpke paid particular attention to cultural factors like morals and tradition. Moreover, he warned against the modern anti-individualist tendencies and against the domestication and convenient stable feeding of people by the welfare state. Whereas Hayek maintained an ongoing close relationship with the ordo-liberals, Mises repudiated them categorically. The Mont Pelerin Society, however, hardly played a direct role in the rebirth of the Austrian school as modern Austrian economics. Instead, it was the historical recollection of its central protagonists and the fundamental themes of the school that brought about a new beginning. In 1967, influential English economist John Richard Hicks remembered the crucial debates between Hayek and Keynes at the beginning of the 1930s, which he called quite a drama, and rehabilitated Hayek's then-defeated position. One year later, Hayek published the second edition of the collective works of Karl Menger in four volumes for German readers. The 1971 centennial of the publication of Karl Menger's Principles, the eulogies of Mises's life's work after his death in 1973, and Hayek's Nobel Prize for Economics in 1974, subsequently, created a growing interest in the rich legacy of the old Austrian school. This return to the roots led to a complete re-evaluation of Karl Menger. 
The voluminous literary tradition of the Austrian school had not infrequently obscured a direct view of Menger's original mindset. Menger, along with Leon Walras and William Stanley Jevons, was counted among economic theory's marginalist revolutionaries. With Menger's distinguishing characteristic, his strict rejection of the mathematical approach being mainly attributed to his mathematical inexperience. Mathematician Karl Menger, the son of the school's founder, would provide evidence that his father's verbally formulated, logically constructed concept of marginal utility was indeed more comprehensive than that which Valras had formulated mathematically. The differences between the three revolutionaries were more clearly outlined in a notable article some years later. The effort to carve out Karl Menger's original position within the Austrian school's body of tradition peaked with Max Alter, 1990, and Sandy Gloria Palermo, 1999, both of whom painted a very complex and sophisticated picture of Menger. Gloria Palermo was able to point out the considerable methodological differences between Menger and Böhm-Barbeck. In the same year, Hans-Hermann Hopper and Josef T. Salerno, continuing Mises's work, demonstrated with great detail that Friedrich von Wieser had made a crucial departure from Menger on fundamental questions of methodology and economic policy. The consequence was Wieser's final expulsion from the pantheon of Austrians. Whereas the symposium held in Vienna in 1971, commemorating the centennial of the publication of Karl Menger's principles, proceeded in an obligatory fashion, respectfully maintaining tradition, conferences organized by American Austrians in the 1970s were distinguished by lively, indeed sometimes vehement discussions. The contributions of Ludwig Lachmann, George Ella Schackel, Israel M. Kurtzner, and Murray Rothbard seemed radical, enriching, and boldly refreshing, but they threatened to split the already small camp of Austrians into Lachmanians, Kurtznerians, and Rothbardians. The split even began manifesting itself institutionally, and often appeared more confusing than appealing to outsiders. In 1981, Kurtzner and Lachmann of New York University, along with George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, were challenged with the founding of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, first in Washington, D.C., and later in Auburn, Alabama, by Margaret Mises, Murray and Rothbard, and public intellectual Llewellyn Rockwell, where to this day researchers and students from all over the world become acquainted with the teachings of the Austrians. The controversy centering on the question of whether Hayek was opposed to or in agreement with Mises' theory flared anew in the 1990s. Contributing to the growing appeal of the Austrians and to a noticeable rise in funding placed at their disposal for research, teaching and publications was the fact that from the 1970s on and in light of developments in the real economy, inflation and high unemployment, the neoclassical Keynesian paradigm suffered a real crisis of interpretation. Alternative models of explanation were in stronger demand once more. Since then, the Austrians have tirelessly pointed out that it is quite impossible for neoclassicism, with its model of equilibrium, neglect of dynamic market processes, negation of subjective information, knowledge and learning, and its unconditional application of macroeconomic aggregates, to reach a well-founded understanding of the real economy. In contrast to neoclassicism, Austrians have a much more realistic, coherent and prolific paradigm. The academic network of the Austrians has grown considerably in recent decades, and since the 1980s has extended beyond the United States to the whole world. A program of study in the tradition of the Austrian school was offered 
at New York University up until Kurtzner went into retirement. It produced numerous economists who either considered themselves members of the school or who were significantly inspired by it. For example, Don Lavoie, Sanford Aikida, George Selgin, Roger Garrison, Llewellyn H. Rockwell, Jeffrey Herberder, Randall G. Holcomb, Peter G. Klein, George Reisman, Roger Garrison, Walter Block, Bruce Caldwell, Richard Langlois, Stefan Böhm, Uskali Maki, Frederick Sote, David Harper, and Mario J. Rizzo. Notable Austrians have been involved in research and teaching at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, up to the present as well. For example, Peter Butker, Don Boudreau, and Karen I. Vaughan. Economists adhering to the Austrian creed currently work at Loyola University, Baltimore, Thomas Lorenzo, the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, Pace University in New York, Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, Auburn University in Alabama, the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. For example, Don Lavoie, Sanford Aikida, George Selgin, Roger Garrison, Bruce Coldwell, Richard Langlois, Stephen Bohm, Uskali Maki, Frederick Sote, David Harper, and Mario J. Rizzo. Philosopher Barry Smith at the University at Buffalo, New York, should also be mentioned. Two academic journals available to Austrians today are the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics and Review of Austrian Economics. Beyond the United States, economists and philosophers of the Austrian persuasion are currently at work at universities in Great Britain. Stephen Littlechild, Norman B. Barry, Holland, William J. Kaiser, Gerd Meyer, Aukelein, Italy, Raimondo Cubedo, Enrico Colombato, Lorenzo Infantino, France, Jörg Guido Hersmann, Pascal Salin, Jacques Garello, Gérard Bromboulet, Philippe Nataf, Antoine Gentier, Georges Lannes, Nicolai Gerce, Portugal, José Manuel Moreira, Spain, Jesús Huerta de Soto Ballesté, Rubio de Urquia, José Juan Frank, Ángel Rodríguez, Oscar Varra, Javier Aranzari del Cerro, Gabriel Calciada, and in the Czech Republic, Josef Sima, Dan Stastny, Jan Havel. No dedicated Austrian chair exists in Germany, Austria, or Switzerland. But a number of experts and authors, like Christian Vatrin, Roland Vaubel, Victor van Berg, Erich Wede, Gerd Hammermann, Manfred E. Streit, Torsten Polleit, Roland Bader, Rahim Tuchri Sordegaon, Gregor Hochreiter, and Mark Faber identify themselves with the research agenda of the Austrians. In Europe today, the leading representatives of the revitalized Austrian school, the Austrian School of Economics, are Hans Hermann Hoppe, Jörg Guido Hülsmann, and Jesus Huerta de Soto. Hans Hermann Hoppe, born 1949 a native German, wrote his dissertation in philosophy under Jürgen Habermas, born 1929. After its completion, he departed in order to study in the United States, where he eventually took over the chair of his long-standing teacher Murray and Rothbard at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. In his Kritique der Kausalwissenschaftlichen Sozialforschung, 1983, Critique of Causal Scientific Principles in Social Research, Hopper made a substantial contribution to the refutation of empiricism and positivism 
It would be logically impossible to research causality in social science, as such research is incompatible with the statement that learning is possible. The statement implicitly acknowledged as valid by every scientist and which cannot be denied without contradiction. Economics, therefore, cannot be an empirical social science, but has to be understood instead as an a prioristic science of action. In a theory of socialism and capitalism, 1989, Hopper defines socialism as an institutionalized system of aggression against property, a deeply immoral social system which by no means corresponds to a natural order. This key idea was further expanded in Democracy, the God that Failed, 2001, and augmented by a fundamental and comprehensive critique of democracy. Hopper has written numerous books and articles on theoretical questions of the Austrians and on natural rights ethics, and has also criticized prevailing economic fallacies with his focus on monetary theory and public goods. In 2006, he founded the Property and Freedom Society, a forum committed to intellectual radicalism in the tradition of Mises and Rothbard. German economist Jörg Guido Hülsmann, born 1966, of the University of Angers, France, pointed the interest debate in a completely new direction with the publication of A Theory of Interest in 2002. According to Hülsmann, interest reflects the difference in value between ends and means resulting from the logic of action. Unlike Böhm-Barbeck and Mises, Hülsmann no longer traced interest back to the factor time. In his work on the problem of money, Hülsmann emphasized that until now advocates of the subjectivist theory of value have laid too much stress on the material aspect, that is, the economic aspect in the narrow sense. In The Ethics of Money Production, 2008, he defined inflation as that part of money production which arises from the violation of property rights and classed the problem primarily as an ethical one. Quite generally, says Hülsmann, state intervention in the monetary system produces a continually perverse internal dynamic that ultimately leads to either the destruction of the currency or to total state control. With The Last Night of Liberalism, he provided a comprehensive biography of Ludwig von Mises using English, French, German and Russian sources. Jesus Huerta de Soto, born 1956, the current vice-president of the Mont Pelerin Society and a leading economist in the Hayekian tradition, is a professor at the Universidad Rey Juan Carlos in Madrid, a master's and PhD program devoted specifically to the Austrian school have been set up under his guidance. With Money, Bank, Credit and Economic Cycles, 1998-2009, Huerta de Soto, who majored in economics, law and actuarial mathematics, succeeded in presenting a comprehensive fundamental work on the Austrian theory of business cycles. He also published a comprehensible book, The Austrian School, Market Order and Entrepreneurial Creativity, 2008, Spanish 2000, offering an easily readable exposition of the Austrian approach. Another focus of his work is research into creative, entrepreneurially driven market processes. Huerta de Soto has also become well known for his theory that Spanish late scholasticism should be considered the forerunner of the Austrian school. He has yet to provide the crucial missing link between the scholastic tradition and Menge. The newly awakened interest in the tradition of the Austrian school and its modern form, the Austrian School of Economics, has led to an increased number of publications in the last two decades. Austrians today are focusing primarily on the theory of institutional coercion, price theory, and the theory of monopoly and competition, the theory of capital and interest, 
the theory of money, credit and financial markets, and questions of the welfare economy and its implications. Other areas of activity proven fruitful are the new institutional economics, the branch of law and economics, and the analysis of law and ethics. Irrespective of the multitude and diversity of these contributions, the original canon of issues of the Austrian school is still strongly discernible in the current research agenda of modern Austrians. Nothing could be better proof of the astonishing longevity and freshness of the Austrian school, arguably the most significant Austrian contribution to modern economics. As we enter the third millennium, Austrians are endeavouring more than ever to intensify the dialogue with mainstream economics, to find allies beyond the boundaries, and effectively to reach an audience of interested experts. In doing so, they share with Karl Menger, the founder of their tradition, the strong conviction that they indeed have the better ideas at their disposal. They want to use these ideas actively to influence economic and political discourse, and not rely merely on the hope of a mature Menger who once penned the following. In science, there is only one secure way that leads to the final triumph of an idea, to allow each and every opposing school of thought to live itself out completely. The Ludwig von Mises Institute hopes that you have enjoyed this audiobook. For a world of free market literature, media and discussion, visit Mises.org. Music